This episode from the life of Sherlock Holmes will be transmitted to our men and women overseas by shortwave and through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Petri Wine brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And if you don't mind, I'd like to suggest something that you might share with your friends. And that something is a glass of sherry before dinner. Naturally, a glass of Petri California sherry. I say Petri sherry because it's the perfect before dinner wine. You couldn't think of a better way to begin a meal. That Petri sherry has a beautiful, inviting color like, like dark amber. And for flavor, well, you've heard sherry described many times as having a rich, nut-like flavor. But if you want to learn for the first time what those words, rich and nut-like, really mean, you just taste Petri sherry. It's wonderful. Serve Petri sherry by itself, or serve it with hors d'oeuvres, or, or those little cocktail sandwiches. And incidentally, if you prefer your sherry dry, you know, not sweet. Just ask your wine merchant for Petri Pale Dry Sherry. Well, the important thing to remember is if you want sherry, you want Petri Sherry, because that means good sherry. And now let's look in on our genial friend and good host, Dr. Watson. Good evening, Doctor. Good evening, Mr. Bartell. Punctual to the minute, as usual. <laughs> Never keep a doctor waiting, I always say. Particularly, Dr. Watson. <laughs> Draw up a chair, my boy. Thank you. That's it, that's it, that's it. All ready to tell us the Sherlock Holmes adventure of the Speckled Band, Doctor? Yes, I'm all ready, Mr. Bartell. Say, Doctor, just what does the Speckled Band mean? You wait until I've told you the story, young fellow, my lad. You'll find out for yourself. <laughs> Sorry. The floor is all yours, Doctor. The adventure of the Speckled Band began on a rainy April morning in 1883. An urgent call from one of my patients had kept me up most of the night before, and in consequence, I came down to my breakfast rather later than usual to find that Holmes had already left our house some hours earlier. As I sat there reading the morning paper and consuming my two lightly boiled eggs, there was a knock at the door. It opened to disclose a typical example of the British working man, a bag of tools in one hand and a grimy cap in the other, as he spoke to me from the doorway. You sent for me, Mr. Holmes? I'm not, Mr. Holmes. Oh, beg your pardon, Governor. But I've come to in the guest bracket over the mantelpiece. Oh? What's wrong with it? I've got a leak in it. Oh, leak? Well, 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 get along with your work. Yes, sir. Hope I won't be disturbing you, no, sir. No, no, no. That's all right, my man. Don't mind me. Don't mind me. Oh, dear. Very untidy, man, Mr. Holmes, sir. What do you mean by that? Well, you can't help noticing the mess this room's in. I've heard say he was as tidy as anyone he started. But he learned bad habits from a bloke what lived with him. Uh... Dr. Watson, I think his name is. You impertinent fellow. How dare you talk to me like that? I've got a good... Oh, where does he go to? Here. You come out of there. That's Mr. Holmes's room. Don't be angry with me, Watson. What? Just slipping out of these grimy rags into a dressing gown. Good gracious me. So was you, Holmes. Well, upon my soul, I, I'd never recognized you, but <laughs> why the disguise? A case, my dear Watson, a case. One of those small problems which a trusting public occasionally confides to my investigation. Uh-huh. To the British workman, old chap, all doors are open. 
His costume is unostentatious and his habits are sociable. Tool bag is an excellent passport and a tawny moustache will secure the, uh, <laughs> cooperation of the maids. But what's the case, Holmes? Huh? A modest little drama of life in the kitchen, one of those seemingly inconsequential affairs, and yet, Watson, the honor of a duchess is at stake. A uh, mm-hmm. mad world, my master, mm-hmm. a mad world. Ah, now I feel a little more comfortable. Let's return to the sitting room, shall we? A strong cup of tea would be most acceptable. Oh, I wish you'd tell me about the Duchess and life in the kitchen home. Some other time, old fellow, some other time. At the moment, suppose you tell me what you know about Miss Helen Stoner. I received a letter from her this morning in which she informed me that she would be calling here at 11, and also that she was a friend of yours. Helen Stoner? Oh, yes, yes. A charming girl, indeed. Then pour me a cup of tea, Watson, and tell me about her. Well, I befriended her at the time of the tragic death of her sister two years ago. I told you about the case, don't you remember? The sudden death of Violet Stoner at an old house in Stoke Moran? Oh, yes, yes, yes. It all comes back to me now. There was a, there was an inquest, wasn't there, with a string of stupid, ineffective witnesses? No, ineffective. I was one of them. Oh, I'm sorry, old fellow. Then you were the exception, of course. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me see. I docketed the evidence on the case. Where is it? Oh, my scrapbook. Ah, here we are, here we are. Let me see. Yes, S. S. Salisbury, Hatchet, Murder, Lords and Simon. Here we are, here we are. Stoke Moran. Yes, I remember the affair well now. The villain of the piece was Dr. Grimsby Roylet, wasn't he? Yes, a dreadful fellow. He's the stepfather of the two girls. Violet, the one that died so mysteriously, and Helen, the one who's coming here to see you. Dr. Roylet has a pretty record. Fifty-five years of age, killed his kit in India, once in an insane asylum, married money, wife died... Distinguished surgeon. Well, Watson, hmm. I wonder what the distinguished surgeon has been up to now. You know, some deviltry, I fear. Why do you say that? You remember that Miss Violet Stoner's death followed close upon the announcement of her engagement? Yes. Well, I met Miss Helen Stoner on the streets a few weeks ago. She told me that she'd just become engaged to a young fellow in the army who was leaving for the Far East. She was very upset at the thought of being alone with her stepfather at, uh, at Stoke Moran. Oh, naturally she was. Hmm. Dr. Roylett stands to lose a considerable sum of money in the event of his stepdaughter's marriage. Yes. They both had a trust fund which he administered only as long as the girls were unmarried. That fact was brought out at the coroner's inquest two years ago. But if Roylett did poison the other stepdaughter, and I'm pretty convinced that he did, it seems unlikely that he'd try it again. Two sudden deaths in the same household could hardly pass the coroner. Oh, no, my dear Watson. You're making the mistake of putting your normal brain into Rolliot's abnormal being. Oh, that, that must be Miss Stoner now. Yes, let me see. It's precisely 11 o'clock. Well, let's see what we can do for her. Well, I hope you can help her, Holmes. She's an extremely nice girl. Come in. Yes, Mrs. Hudson? There's a Miss Helen Stoner to see you, sir. She says she has an appointment. Show her in, please, Mrs. Hudson. Aye, sir. Come in, my dear. Thank you. Uh, Miss Stoner, I'm... I'm so glad to see you again. How do you do, Dr. Watson? And this must be your friend. Yes, Miss Turner, I'm Sherlock Holmes. Sit down by the fire, won't you? Yes, yes, please do, my dear. Hello, you're, you're trembling with cold. It's not cold that makes me shiver. Tell me, Mr. Holmes, has my stepfather, Dr. Grimsby Roylett, been here? No, he hasn't. He saw me in the street. I dashed by him in a handsome cab, but he saw me. Our eyes met and he waved me to stop, but I came here as fast as I could. A very sensible move. Uh, Dr. Watson has already given me several hints as to your present problem as well as having refreshed my memory as to the circumstances of your sister's death. My problem is a simple enough one, Mr. Holmes. I'm... 
I'm waiting to be murdered. No, no, no. Please be a trifle more explicit, Miss Turner. Very well, Mr. Holmes. My fiancé is leaving for the Far East today. When he leaves, I shall be alone with my stepfather at Stoke Moran. He plans to murder me just as he murdered my sister. What makes you say that, Miss Turner? Many strange things have happened recently. For instance... He's just moved me into the bedroom in which my sister died. What reason did he give for changing your room? That my old one needed repainting. It didn't need it, but Dr. Roylett did need to move me into that horrible room. And other things have happened. I... I've heard the music again. Music? What music? My sister first heard it a few days before she died. I heard it myself on that dreadful night she breathed her last. Oh, Mr. Holmes, I'm terrified. Don't worry, my dear. Please don't worry anymore. You have friends to help you now. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? No, of course not. Now, this music, does it seem to come from inside the house or outside? Well, it it's hard to say. It, it sounds so faint. What's it like? A sort of soft droning sound. Like a flute or a pipe? Yes, it, mm-hmm. it reminds me of native music I heard during my childhood in India. India, hell. There's one other thing that puzzles me, Mr. Holmes. Now, what's that? My sister's dying words. As she lay in my arms, she gasped out two words. Oh, what were they? Banned and speckled. You remember that evidence from the inquest, don't you, Dr. Watson? Yes, 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 I do. I couldn't make head or tail of it. Uh, so? Banned, speckled, Indian music. Miss Stoner, do you sleep with your door and windows fastened? Yes, Mr. Holmes, but so did poor Violet. It didn't save her, though. What did you gather from your sister's dying allusion to the band, the speckled band? Well, sometimes I thought it was merely the wild talk of delirium... And sometimes that it referred to a band of people. Oh, yes. I remember that there were some gypsies encamped quite near us at the time of Violet's death. Gypsies, eh? Yes. And it occurred to me that the spotted, gaily-colored kerchiefs, which so many of them wear over their heads, might have suggested the unusual adjective which my sister used. Miss Turner, how long is it since you heard this strange music that you've told us about? I heard it last night. Your fiancé leaves today, you say? Yes, Mr. Holmes. Well, Miss Turner, I shall do everything I can to help you. If we were to come to Stoke Moran today, would it be possible to see over your rooms without the knowledge of your stepfather? Why, I think so. He told me this morning that he intended to take a late train home tonight. Ah, that's splendid. Watson, out with the timetable, old fellow, and look up the trains to Stoke Moran. Right, you are, Holmes. That's my stepfather. I know it is. Oh, yes. Yes, there he is on the doorstep. Oh, Mr. Holmes, he's followed me. Oh, what shall I do if he finds me here? Don't worry, Miss Stoner. Please don't worry. There's a private exit through that room there. Watson. Show the way, will you? Come along with me, my dear young lady. And and you will come down today, Mr. Holmes. Certainly, my dear Miss Turner. I'll telegraph you the time of our arrival. Goodbye and courage, my dear. Goodbye, Mr. Holmes, and thank you. Come along, Miss Turner, quickly. Come in. Yes, Mrs. Hudson? It's a, a gentleman, sir. I told him you wouldn't see anyone without an appointment, but he... Out of the way, woman. Didn't push me like that. I'm sorry, Mr. Holmes. That's all right, Mrs. Hudson. You can leave us. What kind of gentleman does he call himself pushing an old lady? So you're Sherlock Holmes. You have the advantage of me, sir. Your name is, uh... My name, sir, is Roylott. Dr. Grimsby Roylott of Stoke Moran. Oh, yes, yes, of course. A charming place out here and obviously good for the lungs. You won't trifle with me if you know what's good for you. Ah. Uh, Watson, there you are. And how was the, uh, uh, the experiment? Very successful, Holmes. Good day to you, Dr. Roylott. I haven't seen you since I gave evidence at your stepdaughter's inquest. Yes, yes, I remember you, Dr. Watson. Now listen to me, you two. My stepdaughter's been here. I've traced her. 
What's she been saying to you? A little cold for this time of the year, isn't it? You answer me! I hear that the crocuses promise well. You dare to try and put me off, do you? I know you, you scoundrel. You're Holmes the meddler. Am I? Holmes the busybody. I believe that a man should occupy his time. Holmes the Scotland Yard jack in office. Uh, when you go out, close the door, won't you? There's a draft. I'll go when I've had my say. Keep your nose out of my affairs, you hear? Oh, yes. My hearing is excellent, thank you, and your diction and delivery most forceful. But time flies, my dear doctor. Time flies, and life has its duties as well as its pleasures. Goodbye. Insolent rascal. Here. See this poker? Oh, the fire doesn't need poking, thank you, doctor. But I, I should be obliged if you'd uh, put some more coal on for me. Mm. You laugh at me. You don't know my strength. Look. There. Your poker's bent double. And that's what I'll do to both of you. If you don't keep out of my affairs. I had a presentiment that he'd slam the door. Phew. He's an ugly customer, huh? Literally as well as figuratively. Watson, I'd be much obliged if you get your revolver. It may prove to be an excellent argument with a gentleman who twists iron pokers into knots. The fellow's amazingly <clears throat> strong. Just look at it. I don't want to appear flamboyant, but, uh... Ah, there we are. Great, Scott Holmes, you straightened the poker out again. Yes, it was utterly useless in its former shape. And now what's on the timetable? We'll catch the next fast train to Stoke Moran. Oh, Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson, I'm so relieved that you've come. But don't you think my stepfather might have followed you down here? You have to take that chance, Miss Stoner. A few hours' delay might mean the difference between your life and death. It was imperative that we examine this bedroom of yours before Dr. Roylott returns. Anyway, my dear, you mustn't worry anymore. We're here in your house, and we're going to take good care of you, no matter what harm befalls you. Thank you, Dr. Watson. So this is the room in which your sister died, is it? Hmm, it's much as I pictured it. Uh, and Dr. Roylott's room adjoins this one, you say, Miss Stoner? Yes, Doctor, on that side... The room which adjoins it on the other side is my regular bedroom. The one that's being so conveniently painted, eh? Yes. Well, let's examine this room. No trap doors or sliding panels, I suppose. It sounds solid enough, Holmes. Yes, I think it is. Hello, what's this? Are you aware that this bed is clamped to the floor, Miss Stoner? Why, no, no, Mr. Holmes, I didn't know that. What an extraordinary thing. Was the bed in your other room anchored also? I know, I don't think it was. Very illuminating. And this bell pull hanging against the wall above your bed. Oh, that, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, but if you want to ring. There's another one on the other wall over there. Now, why this one? Well, I, I don't know. My stepfather made a number of changes after we came here. Yes, quite a burst of activity, apparently. And it took some strange shapes. Why are you standing on the bed, Holmes? I'm curious, my dear fellow. Aha! Uh -huh. It may interest you to know that this bell rope is fastened to a brass hook. There's no wire attachment. It's a dummy. A dummy? But why? There's a small screen above it. It's a ventilator, I suppose. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Yes. A ventilator leading into your stepfather's room. Curious. I notice there's no means of opening the ventilator on this side. It can only be operated from your stepfather's room next door. I wonder if you'd mind taking us in there. Of course, Mr. Holmes. Follow me. What do you make of it, Holmes? That's devil's work of what, old chap. Here we are, Mr. Holmes. It's much the same as the other room. 
bit bigger, perhaps? That large safe against the wall seems to be an unusual piece of bedroom furniture. What is it, Miss Dona? Uh, my stepfather's business papers. Oh, yes. You've seen inside it, then? Only once, some years ago. I remember that it was full of documents. What's this saucer of milk doing on top of it? Does Dr. Royler keep a cat? No, but he does have a cheetah and a baboon as pets. He brought them with him from India. Well, Holmes, a cheetah is just a big cat. True, but I doubt if a saucer of milk would go very far in satisfying the appetite of a cheetah. Well, I think I've seen enough. This matter is too serious for hesitation. Your life may depend upon your following of my instructions, Miss Homer. I'll do anything you say, Mr. Holmes, anything. Hmm. Is that village inn I see through the trees from this window? Yes, the Queen's Arms. Uh, your bedroom windows would be visible from there. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Very well, then. Watson and I will go there now and obtain accommodations. When your stepfather returns, you must confine yourself to your room on the pretense of a headache. You follow me? Perfectly. When Dr. Roylott returns for the night, you must open your bedroom window and put your lamp on the sill as a signal to us at the inn. Then withdraw quietly to your usual bedroom, the one that's being painted. I'm sure that you could manage that for one night. Of course. But what will you do? When we get your sig signal, Dr. Watson and I will come here and spend the night in your dead sister's room. We are going to solve this mystery of the dummy bell rope and the unusual ventilator and the strange music in the night. You'll hear the remainder of Dr. Watson's story in just a second, so I'm just going to point out that at any really important dinner, you know, like when diplomats get together, you'll find wine on the table. Because for years it's been a known fact that good wine makes good food taste better. Prove that to yourself tomorrow night by having your dinner together with a glass of Petri wine. If you prefer a red wine for any meat or meat dish, try a Petri California Burgundy. That rich, hearty red Petri Burgundy is really out of this world. Now, if you'd rather have a subtle, intriguing white wine, let's say to go with chicken or fish, then try Petri California Sauternes. But so turn or burgundy, to make sure it's good, make sure it's Petri, won't you? Well, Doctor, it's a rattling good story so far. What happened next? You went to the local inn, I guess, and waited for that lantern to appear in the bedroom window at Dr. Roylott's house? That's right, Mr. Bartell. We had an early dinner at the Queen's Arms and then retired to our upstairs bedroom and sat there side by side, puffing away at our pipes, our eyes straining through the darkness, that telltale lantern to give us the signal that there was dangerous work ahead for us. As we sat there discussing the various aspects of the case, I remember that Holmes was very concerned about my own safety. Watson, I really have some scruples about taking you with me tonight. This is an infernally dangerous business. Well, what about that poor girl alone in the house with that fiend Roylet? I can handle the case by myself, old chap. I'm coming with you, Holmes. You speak of danger... You haven't seen more in those rooms than was visible to no, me. No, but uh, possibly I've deduced a little more, and I imagine you saw all that I did. No, I saw nothing remarkable except the bell rope, and what purpose that could answer, I confess, is more than I can imagine. You saw the ventilator, too. Yes, but I don't think it's such an unusual thing to have an opening between two rooms. It's so small that a mouse could hardly pass through it. True, but at least you will admit there was a, a curious sequence of coincidences. A ventilator is constructed, a bell cord is hung from it, a lady sleeps in a bed directly below the ventilator, a bed that is anchored to the floor. A lady dies. Well, I begin to see what you're driving at, Holmes. Look, 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 look. There's a lantern in Miss Turner's window. That's our signal, all right. Come on, Watson. Our night's vigil begins. 
Foul night. Foul night for foul business, Watson. Come on, through these laurel bushes. It's only another 50 yards to the house. The lantern's still burning away in the bedroom window. Yes, all the other lights are out. Including the one in Dr. Roylott's room. He must have gone to sleep. To bed, possibly, Watson, but not, I think, to sleep. Great heavens, Holmes. Look at that frightful creature leaping about in the moonlight. It looks like some hideous child. That's Dr. Roylott's pet baboon. It looks positively human. Yes, probably a great deal more so than its master. Shh, shh. I directly blow the window now. This ivy provides a most convenient ladder. I'll go up first. Be careful, Holmes. Careful. Wait a minute. I hope the thing's strong enough to to hold us both. We look pretty stupid on our backs in the mud. Give me a hand, will you, Holmes? I can't quite get my leg up over this window ledge. Here you are. Thanks, old boy. Oh, say, phew. Now to close the window shutters. This room looks exactly like the same as it did this Shh. afternoon. These sound would be fatal to our plans. Keep the lamp covered, so that if the ventilator is open from Dr. Roylott's room, no light will show him in there. That's it. Why are you carrying that stick home? Prepared for a visitor that I expect before the night is over. A visitor who will herald his entrance with faint music from an Indian pipe. You mean the music is, is a signal? Exactly, old fellow. The signal to an accomplice who can enter a room with locked doors. An accomplice who kills and leaves no trace. You mean that... Shh! Now we're talking, Watson. I'll sit on the edge of the bed here. You sit on that chair. Have your revolver ready in case you, you should need it. Right you are. Have the lantern ready, too. When I shout now, turn the light, pull on the top of the bell rope. You understand? Yes, perfectly. Good. Now we must wait. Perhaps for some time. Don't go to sleep, Watson, to go to sleep. Your very life may depend on it. Watson. Yes? You're not smoking, are you? No, I smell tobacco smoke. Is up. Look, 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 look. There's a tiny shot of light showing up in the ventilator. Shh. Listen. There's the music. Yes. Heralding the messenger of death. Have your lantern ready, Watson. Now, Watson, now! Great heavens, it's a snake slithering down the bell rope. You can't kill it without stick holes out of the way. Let me get a shot at it. I'm trying to drive it back the way it came. Get out. There it goes. Back through the ventilator. Oh. What a fiendish plan. Wait, Scott, what's that? I think the devil has turned on its master. Come on, Watson. Into Dr. Roylott's room. Dr. Roylott. Dr. Roylott. Good Lord Holmes. Look at him sprawled on the bed. Look at his eyes. Yes. And see what is coiled round his forehead. It's the snake. Yes, the band. The speckled band. He's dead, Holmes. Yes. He's been bitten by the deadliest snake in the world. The Indian swamp adder. 
Its deadly fangs produce death within ten seconds. Well, Watson, violence does in truth recoil upon the violent, and the schema falls into the pit which he digs for another. What should we do now, Holmes? We must remove the macabre headgear from the dead doctor and return the snake to its den. Ah, and I suggest that we tell Miss Stoner that there's no more danger under this roof. After that, we can turn the matter over to the local police. Our work is done. Dr. Watson, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you brought me back into Baker Street. It would have been inhuman to leave you in that house of horror and death. We have a spare bedroom, and Mrs. Hudson is a motherly and understanding woman, and I can assure you that Dr. Watson and I will be delighted to have you stay with us here until you've decided on your future plans. Yes, of course we will, my dear. As a matter of fact, it would be rather refreshing to have a a touch of youth about the place. You're both so (laughs) kind. Mr. Holmes, I think it's wonderful how you foiled my stepfather's devilish plans. Yes, wasn't it a remarkable example of logical deduction? No, it wasn't, old fellow. At first, um, your mention of the gypsies, Miss Stoner, and the use of the word ban put me on an entirely wrong scent. However, when we examined the fatal room, I drew the obvious conclusions. Mm, the dummy bell rope, the <clears throat> ventilator, and the immovable bed. Yes, old fellow, it instantly gave rise to the suspicion that the rope was there as a bridge for something coming through the ventilator and traveling to the bed. I once thought of a snake... When I saw the saucer of milk on top of the safe, my suspicions crystallized into certainties. Oh, it was a fiendish plot. Yes, an extremely clever one, too. Exactly. My stepfather must have trained the snake to return to him when he played the music. Yes, he put it through the ventilator with the certainty that it would crawl down the rope and land on the bed. It might or might not bite the occupant. Perhaps she might escape every night for a week, but sooner or later she must fall a victim. Thank heaven I came to you, Mr. Holmes. Amen to that, Mr. Holmes. You know, Holmes, if you hadn't lashed at the snake with your stick... I bet it wouldn't have turned back on its master. True, old chap. In that way, I am no doubt indirectly responsible for Dr. Grimsby Rylett's death. <laughs> but I, I can't say it's a fact that's likely to weigh too heavily on my conscience. Doctor, that was quite a fascinating story. You know something? I, I'm not exactly a coward, but... No kidding, my toes really curl when I get mixed up with snakes. Oh, I'm not alone in that respect, Mr. Bartell. I must admit that I like to have a revolver and at least 20 feet between me and any snake that wants to cross my path. <laughs> well, if you want a revolver in 20 feet, I'll take a cannon in 20 miles. <laughs> it's fortunate that you're a wine expert, Mr. Bartell, not a detective. I'm afraid you wouldn't, uh, shall we say, find detecting to your liking? We certainly shall say it. <laughs> and incidentally, I'm not a wine expert, Doctor. All I know about wine is that it either tastes good or it doesn't. And I also know that Petri wine always tastes good. The Petri family sees to that. The name Petri on the label is the personal assurance of the Petri family that every drop of wine in that bottle is good wine. And they know how to make it good because they've been making fine wine for generations. Handing down from father to son, from father to son, every secret, every skill of the winemaker's art. Yes, the Petri family took time to bring you good wine. That's why, no matter what type of wine you wish, you can't go wrong with a Petri wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what new Sherlock Holmes story are you planning to tell us next week? Well, now, let me see. Now, next week, Mr. Bartell, I think I'll tell you an adventure that took place at a gambling casino in the south of France. It's a strange story of sudden tragedy and death. I call it The Adventure of the Double Zero. Sounds swell. We'll all be listening. Get on it, Mr. Bartell. Before I go, 
I want to say that every one of our friends bought war bonds to help our boys win the war. Now let's all buy victory bonds to help bring our boys back home again. Yes, and let's buy victory bonds to make sure that the men who were wounded will get the finest possible care. Those same victory bonds will help make the GI Bill of Rights a success too. And they'll help provide for the families of those men who gave everything, including their lives. The men of our armed forces finished their job. Now let's finish ours. Buy victory bonds. <laughs> Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and is an adaptation of the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Adventure of the Speckled Band. Music is by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes with Sir John Gielgud as Sherlock Holmes and Sir Ralph Richardson as our storyteller, Dr. James Watson. Oh, Dr. Watson, he's dying. It's Miss Holmes, sir. He won't last through another day. What shall I do, Doctor? Oh, heaven help him. Mr. Holmes is dying. I'll never forget that terrible November day in 89. I was in practice in Paddington, and Mrs. Hudson, our old Baker Street landlady, somehow made her way to my room through the fog with that dreadful message. I was horrified. I'd heard nothing of Sherlock Holmes' illness. I'd seen little enough of the man himself for some time, knowing that he was engaged in a very complex case somewhere. But I need hardly say that when I'd calmed Mrs. Hudson as best I could... I snatched my coat and hat, and I rushed out with her to a hansom. Doctor, we're going so slow. Well, heavens, man, can't you go faster? I'm a doctor. A man's life depends on it. Not a hope, sir. Not in this form. Can't hardly see a yard. Careful, careful, man. Sorry. Can't have it all, right. Nearly went into that dray I did. Blind Harry. Oh, do what you can. Try the side streets. No lights in them, governor. What number was it you said in Baker Street? 221B, two, two, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Is it him that's dying? It is, hurry, man. You have double fare. That's different, sir. I don't mean the pair, but if it's Mr. Sherlock Holmes, it's different, I mean. Yeah, there, Miss Oh, Mrs. Hudson, Mrs. Hudson, I really must beg you the things worrying enough without tears. Oh, I can't help it, Doctor, honest. I'm that upset. He's been so good to me always. Yes, yes, I know. I'm sorry. How long has he been like this, so ill? Three days it's been. Thinking faster. Oh, it's pitiful to see him lying there. But why on earth didn't you tell me before? At least you could have got some kind of medical help for him. Let me. You know how masterful he is. I couldn't bear it anymore when I saw him lying there this afternoon. Then bones sticking out of his face and his 
great bright eyes staring at me. Oh, he'll never get out of his bed again, Doctor. Oh, pray heaven, I can do something to prevent that, Mrs. Hudson. I told him I wouldn't bide another minute. I was going to fetch a doctor with his leave or without, I said. And he said, let it be Dr. Watson, then, he said. So I'll come, sir. Thank heaven. What have you been doing lately? Do you know? Oh, I never do, sir. But he did say something about a case down at Brother Eyes. The river and this fog. He's picked up some infection. That's me, beauty. We've nearly done it, sir. There's 221B Baker Street. Heaven bless you. Now, take this sovereign, Mrs. Hudson, and do you settle with the driver while I run straight upstairs. Very good, sir. Here we are, sir. Well, we old beauty. This is it, sir. Well, now, we beauty. again, I see. You never could escape from Baker Street for long. Uh, but we've fallen on evil days, you see. My dear fellow. No, Watson, keep back. Come one step nearer. I shall order you out of the house. But you're sick to death, Holmes. I'm a doctor. Do what I say, Watson. Stay where you are. <coughs> you're, you're in a fever. Mrs. Hudson was right. I've never seen such a brightness in man's eyes. Yes, and this foul crust on my lips. My bone's almost breaking through the skin. Oh, don't think I haven't seen it, Watson. Don't think I haven't kept staring into the mirror these last three days. Just waiting. Waiting? For confirmation. What I've suspected from the start. Well, now, let me... No, 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 don't be angry with me, Watson. You're a good fellow, but it's for your own sake and you must keep your distance. Don't come near me. My sake? Holmes, you're delirious. Am I? But I know, you see... I know what's the matter. It's a coolie disease from Sumatra, Watson. The Dutch know more about it than we do, but even they've hardly made much of it. It's deadly and horribly contagious. Good heavens, Holmes. Do you suppose that'd hinder me? It's my job, man. I'd go near a stranger in such circumstances, let alone an old friend. Stay where you are, I say. Do I have to ask again? Uh, Sit there and I'll go on talking. Otherwise... You'll have to leave me alone to die in peace. Now, Holmes, I warn you. You can be master elsewhere, but at least I'm master in the sick room. Now, I'm going to examine your symptoms and treat you for them. Now then, very well, Watson, I must say. If I am to have a doctor, I must at least have a man in whom I have some confidence. You... you've none in me, then? Oh, in your friendship, of course. We've been through so much together. I know you're worth, man, but... Well, facts are facts. And your experience is very limited, and your qualifications rather mediocre, Watson. I see. Do you think I wanted to say that, old friend? I, I hated to do it, but I had to. Forgive me. Yes, yes, of course. But if you've no confidence in me after all we've been to each other, I won't intrude my services for a moment. Oh, Watson, Watson. Yes, but at least you'll permit me to bring someone else, then. I can't sit here and watch you die, even if you have hurt me so abominably. Now, let me bring Penrose Fisher, any of the best men in London. <laughs> you mean so well, Watson, you always did. You want me to demonstrate your ignorance? What do you know of fever? What do you know of the black Formosa corruption? I admit I've never heard of either of them. Uh, you see, there's so many problems of disease in the East, Watson, I've learned so much lately. That's how I became infected. Yeah, <laughs> case of my some coolies at the docks. You can't do anything. I can. I've suddenly remembered. 
Aintree's in London. He's the greatest living authority on tropical disease. I'm going to fetch him Holmes this instant. Watson! Stay where you are! I'm not dead yet. And you won't pass this door while I have strength to stand up in front of it. Great heavens, Holmes. Yes. There, you see? It's locked. And you won't get this key from me by force, Watson. I've got you, my friend. Holmes, this is insanity. Is it? Those are the final symptoms, I believe. Stand over there, little. Is there by the table? Let me pass round you to <coughs> get back to bed. Oh, oh Lord, the pain. Please, <coughs> let me give you some water. All right, Dad. I can reach it if I want to. You shall have your way, Watson, if you'll just have patience. Only give me a moment to get my strength. I seem to have no choice. I'll let you go, Watson. Yes. In a quarter of an hour, I'll let you go. But you'll seek help. Only from the man I choose. As long as I clear? can... As long as I can bring someone. Yeah, you shall, I promise. There's only one thing. Just one thing, old friend. Well, what is it? I'll do anything. Have you... Uh, any change in your pocket? Change? Well, I... I think so, yes. <coughs> any silver? Uh, yes, a good deal. How many half-crowns? Half-crowns? Yeah, quickly, count them, Watson. Uh, why, why? Five. Uh, too few, too few. Too, too few, too few for what? Oh, but we must do what we can. Quickly, put them all into your watch pocket, Watson. And all the rest of your money in your left trouser pocket. Ah, thank you. It'll, it'll balance you so much better, do you see? <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, light the gas now, will you? I'll let you move to light the gas, Watson. But you, but you must be careful. Not for one instant, must have been more than half on. I implore you, Watson. Otherwise, the balance of your silver will be altered again. Thank you. Thank you. Well, now, there's nothing to do but wait. What are you doing, man? Nothing, nothing. I'm just putting the matches back on the table. Hello, hello. Curious little ivory box. Put it down, Watson! This instant you hear! My dear Holmes! Hey, I hate to have my things touched. <coughs> you know that? Oh, you fidget me beyond endurance. You a doctor? You're enough to drive a patient to an asylum. You'll find the sugar tongs on the mantelpiece. Sugar tongue? To lift the box, man. Yes, that little ivory box. Set it closer to me here, where I can watch it. You see, it might be full of oysters. Oysters? Yeah, of course. They're so prolific, Watson. Everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, but I think you wanted, wanted to go now. Now that your silver balance is... Anywhere to get help for you. Yeah. I can't bear to see you like this, Holmes. Yeah, very well. It's time now. You can go and fetch Mr. Culverton Smith to me. Number 13... Lower Burke Street. Culverton Smith? <coughs> I've never heard the name. No, no doubt. It may surprise you that the one man on earth who really knows about this disease isn't a medical man at all, but a planter. He's a well-known resident of Sumatra. Home on leave. Well, I'll go at once if you'll give me the key. Yes, stay there. I'll throw it under the table. Oh, oh, there's only one thing more. Watson, one more. What is it? You, 
You may have to plead with him to come. To plead? Yes, there's no good feeling between us. His nephew, a young fellow called Victor Savage, died recently. I had suspected foul play, and I let Culverton Smith see that I suspected so that the fellow has a grudge against <laughs> But you'll beg him, Watson, implore him. Get him here by any means. He's the only man in all the world who can save me. I'll bring him if I have to carry him. Nothing of the sort. Persuade him to come, but come back yourself first. Yes, make any excuse so as to reach me before he dies. You won't fail me, Watson. I never did, I think. No. Oh, bless you, Watson, never. Here's the key. In Lower Burke Street, Culverton Smith. Yeah, you and I, Watson, have done our part. But the world might still be overrun by oysters. All our ghastly, foggy, wondrous world. heart, shocked at the wreck of that magnificent intellect, I left him babbling like a foolish child. The fog had lifted a little, but progress through the gas-lit streets was still delayed. I found my destination at last, 13 Lower Burke Street, and feeling desperate, I forced my way in past the manservant who opened the door. I found myself in a dark hall, confronting the figure of a man, very small, and twisted in the shoulders and back, but with a skull of enormous capacity, and a face coarse-grained and strangely yellow. Mr. Culverton Smith. Mr. Culverton Smith. What is the meaning of this intrusion? I'm sorry, but the matter simply can't be delayed. My friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes... What? Holmes? You come from Sherlock Holmes? This instant. My name's Watson. What about Holmes? How is he? Desperately ill. That's why I've come. So... I'm sorry to hear it. Do sit down, Mr. Watson. Doctor, doctor. Indeed. A professional in my own amateur line, then. And Mr. Holmes has his enemies, too. In crime, of course. Where ours are among the microbes. (laughs) As an account of your special knowledge that Mr. Holmes wanted to see you, Mr. Smith, he's a high opinion of your skill in Eastern diseases. Indeed. I will confess the subject is a particular hobby of mine. But, um, why did Mr. Sherlock Holmes fancy this disease of his was uh, Eastern? He's been working on a case among some Chinese sailors down by the dock. Ah, that's it, is it? Well, we must trust that the matter isn't as grave as you suppose. How long has he been ill? Three days. Is he delirious? I'm afraid so, quite severely. It sounds serious enough, then. I'll come with you at once. Oh, thank you, thank you. But I'm afraid I have another appointment, Mr. Smith. You'll find the street door ajar. His landlady may not be back. Now, I I must hurry, Mr. Smith. Oh, oh, very well. I'll go alone, then. I know Mr. Holmes' address. You can rely on my being there within half an hour. Thank you. Good evening, Dr. Watson. Good evening. A very good evening to you, Who's that? All right, all right. Oh, 
Oh, Watson, that's good. Did you see him? Yes. He's coming. Admirable. You're the best of messengers, my dear Watson. Well, he wanted to come back with me. Ah, that would never have done, Watson, would it? But, but why? Well, he asked what was wrong with me, of course. Well, I told him about the Chinese in the East End. Exactly. You've done all that a good friend could. I'm very much obliged. Well, now you must disappear from the scene entirely. I must wait and hear his opinion, Holmes. You can't deny me that. Oh, yeah, yes, of course you must. <laughs> I wouldn't dream of depriving you of it. But he's such a curious fellow, Watson. I've reason to believe his opinion will be more valuable if he thinks that he and I are quite alone. I believe there's just room for you here. Here, behind behind the head of my bed, I think. My dear Holmes. Yes, yes I... there's no alternative, man. Well, the old room doesn't lend it so much to concealment, does it? Quick, Watson, if you love me! Do you hear what I say? But there's a cab drawing up. What? I must say, Holmes, that if it were not for heaven's sake, we'd keep quiet. Don't speak. Don't move. Whatever happens. Just listen, Watson. Listen with all your ears. Well, well, if, if, if you say so, but this is, this is really hardly, hardly dignified. He's coming, man. Quiet now. Holmes. Huh? Smith. Is that you? Oh, thank you. I hardly dared to hope you'd come. <laughs> I should imagine not indeed. And yet, I did, you see. Coals of fire, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Yes, it's very good of you. Very noble of you. Mm. I appreciate your special knowledge. <laughs> you do, eh? Fortunately, you're the only man in London who does... Do you know what's the matter with you? Yes. The same. I... I recognize the symptoms. I shouldn't be surprised. And a bad lookout for you, if it is, eh, Holmes? Poor Victor was a dead man on the fourth day. I knew you did it, Smith. Oh, you did, did you? Only you couldn't prove it. Uh, mm. So, you uh, spread your rotten reports about me, and then you come crawling when you're in trouble yourself. Mm? Uh, I, I... What sort of game is that for the great Sherlock Holmes to play? Let bygones be bygones, Smith. I'll forget it all. Only cure me and I'll forget it all. Forget? What? About Victor Savage's death. You must go to submit it. Just now that you've done it. I'll forget it. Can't you remember any unusual incident about the time your symptoms began? Nothing. I'm too ill. But didn't anything come by post, for instance? Uh, a box, by chance? Smith in mercy's name. Oh, you must tell me. An ivory what? box. It what? came on Wednesday. Yes. You opened it. Do you remember? Uh, yes, yes. There was a sharp spring inside it. Some kind of joke. A joke, eh? Wasn't any joke as you find out your uh, cost. I remember the spring. It drew blood. Uh, that box there on the table. Ah, oh, the very one by George. And it may as well leave the room in my pocket. <laughs> there goes your last shred of evidence, Sherlock Holmes. But you have the truth at last, and you can die with the knowledge that I kill you. 
You knew too much about how Victor Savage died, so I sent you to join him. You think I'll sit here and watch you go? You haven't long now. Gas. Turn up the gas, Smith. Please. Oh. <laughs> the shadows begin to fall, do they? Well, the gas, eh? All the better to see you by. Um, is there... Is there any other little service that I can do for you, my friend? Oh, yes, yes, if you'd be so good. Just give me your hand. Your hand. Your hand. Ah, oh, thank you. <laughs> What's the meaning of this? I wouldn't struggle if I were you, Mr. Culverton Smith. These handcuffs are quite strong enough to hold you. You can stand. <laughs> ah, my pipe. You're perfectly well. Ah, the best way of acting a part, of course, is to be it, Smith. <laughs> I give you my word that for the last three days, I've tasted neither food nor drink, but really it's the lack of tobacco that I found most irksome. You <sighs> Holmes, I'll murder you. You almost did, my friend. But wait, there's someone coming in I think will be delighted to make your acquaintance. Ah, good evening, Inspector Morton. There's your man. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. We've been waiting in the street, as you told us to, in your message. Yeah, cold enough, too, I fancy, on a night like this. To save a poor invalid trouble, Inspector, Mr. Smith was so very good as to give you our signal himself. By turning up the gas. <laughs> Before heaven, this is an outrage. I'll not stand for such a trick. Uh, one trick's as good as another, Mr. Smith. Huh? Inspector Morton is from the yard, and the sergeant, well, you better hold out your hands and go quietly. Come, sir. I arrest you on the charge of the murder of one Victor Savage. And the attempted murder of one Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, Morton, the prisoner has a small box in his left-hand coat pocket, which I think it'd be just as well to remove. Yes, but handle it gingerly, if you please. Uh, let me pass you the sugar tongs. There, that's it. Yeah, here, on the table. Thank you so much. A nice trap, Holmes. Or so you fancy. <laughs> but you've no witness that whatever was said in this room was only between ourselves. And my word is just as good as yours. Hush! Oh, I beg your pardon. Good heavens! My dear Watson, where are you? Bless you. Oh, yes, behind the bed. I owe you a thousand apologies. So I should think, Holmes, I've never been so uncomfortable in all my life. Oh, my poor dear fellow. I need hardly introduce you to Mr. Calverton Smith, who I am sure will now accept his defeat most gracefully, now that he sees that you were witness to his confession. Your servant, Mr. Smith. Confound you, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, thank you. Take him away, Inspector. We can make all formal arrangements later. In the meantime, Watson, perhaps you'll be good enough to pour me out a glass of brandy. Well, take his other arm, Sergeant. Much obliged to you, Mr. Holmes. You've done it again. Good night, sir. And Dr. Watson. Good night, Morton. Good night. After you, Mr. Smith. <laughs> well, well, there you are, then, Holmes. Here's your brandy. Thank you. And I should prescribe a couple of biscuits for an empty stomach, I think. Oh, thank you, thank you. I never needed this more. Huh? Huh? I never forgive you, Holmes. You know that, of course. 
Oh, come, Watson. No, never. It was essential now to convince Mrs. Hudson that I was a dying man so that she could convince you and you could convince our friend Mr. Culverton Smith. Yes, but you should have oh, told me. Oh, offended, Watson. It was really a compliment, you know. Compliment? <laughs> well, among your many talents, dissimulation finds no place, old friend. And you could never have impressed Smith with the urgency of it all if you hadn't really believed it yourself. But, but your, your, your whole appearance, your ghastly face and those, those eyes. <laughs> Three days of absolute fast hardly improve one's beauty, Watson. And the rest, well, a smear of Vaseline on the forehead, a little belladonna in the eyes, a touch of rouge on the cheekbones, and these crusts of beeswax oh. on the lips. <laughs> a very satisfying effect may be produced, I think. Malingering is a subject I've often thought of for a monogram. Yeah. The little occasional talk about half-crowns or oysters, for instance, and behold, a case of tragic delirium. Exactly. Yes, but why, why, why did you never let me near you if there wasn't any infection after all? Now, that was the unkindest cut, Holmes, it truly was. You said you'd no confidence in me. I too much, my dear Watson. What? Well, do you imagine I'd have no respect for your medical ability? Could I imagine for a moment that your astute judgment would pass a dying man who had no rise of pulse or temperature? My dear fellow. Huh? <laughs> well, if, if you put it that way... Of perhaps... course I do. How else? At four yards I could deceive you, not a foot nearer. <laughs> and who then would have brought Mr. Smith within my grasp? Ah, yes. Yes, but, but the little box, eh? That harmless-looking little ivory box. What of that... No, 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 Watson, don't touch it. Not even now. Can't you see the way the little sharp infected spring shoots out like a viper's tooth when you look down at it sideways? Hmm? He killed his nephew with that device. The boy stood between Smith and his inheritance. He died horribly. Oh, still, I find it hard to forgive you, you know. You worried Mrs. Hudson and me in constant. Ah, poor Mrs. Hudson. I'll make it up to her. But you must admit it was the work of a true artist. You must permit me my methods. Watson, you of all people. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Now let me soothe your savage breast. And then perhaps when I've dressed, uh, something solid and nutritious at that little chop house of ours in the Strand will not, I fancy, be out of place. I confess that dying is quite one of the hungriest hobbies I've ever taken up. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, based on the original stories of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, have been dramatized anew with original music composed by Sidney Torch. Sir Ralph Richardson played the part of Dr. Watson and Sir John Gilgood that of Sherlock Holmes. The program was produced by Harry Allen Towers. Capital, my dear Watson. Let us return to our humble abode. 
221B Baker Street, please, Kevin. From London, we present The Second Stain, a play for radio by Michael Hardwick, based on the short story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The Second Stain. The reason why I have not hitherto included the adventure of the second stain in these chronicles of the cases of Mr. Sherlock Holmes lies in the nature of the affair itself. In fact, it was only upon my representing to him that I promised my public that it should someday hear the account that he recently gave his consent. But he stipulates that my narrative must be a carefully guarded one. And if in presenting it I seem to be somewhat vague in certain details, then pray be assured that there is an excellent reason for my reticence. Pray come in, gentlemen. Thank you. May I present my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson. Sir. Sir. Yeah. Your servant, gentlemen. If you will sit here, Lord Bellinger. Thank you. And you here, Mr. Hope. Thank you. Mr. Holmes, I shall come straight to the point. If you please. I discovered my loss at eight o'clock this morning. I at once informed the Prime Minister... And it was at his suggestion that we have both come straight to you. In the strictest confidence, let me make it plain. Rest assured, Prime Minister. May I ask if the police have been informed? No, sir. Nor shall they be. Indeed. To inform the police must in the long run mean to inform the public. I understand. Now, Mr. Hope, you speak of this as your loss. I should be much obliged if you would tell me exactly what has occurred. I can do that in a very few words. The letter was from a foreign potentate. It was received six days ago, and was of such importance that I have never left it in my office safe, but have taken it each evening across to my house in Whitehall Terrace, where I have kept it hidden in my bedroom in a locked dispatch box. Yes. It was there last night, of that I am certain. This morning, it was gone. I am a light sleeper, and so is my wife. We are both prepared to swear that no one could have entered our room during the night. And yet, I repeat, the paper is gone. Was the dispatch box unguarded at any time during the evening? For several hours, between my arriving home and going to bed. Oh. But I was in the house all the time. My wife was at the theater. No one could have had access to the room except our servants. They are both completely trustworthy. I see. In any case, they could have had no inkling that the box contained anything of undue importance. Did your wife know about it? Certainly not. Yes, but could she have guessed? No, she could not. Have you lost any documents before? Never. Very well. You've told me who in England knows of this letter's existence. Now, who could know of it abroad? No one, save the man who wrote it. No one? We understand that he did not employ the usual official channels, even to the exclusion of his ministers. I see. Then next I must ask you more particularly what this document is. That is a state secret of the utmost importance. I fear that we cannot tell you more. <clears throat> Gentlemen, you are two of the most busy men in the country. And in my own small way, I also have a good many calls upon me. I regret exceedingly that I cannot help you in the matter. Mr. Holmes, sir, I'm not accustomed to being treated in this way. I'm I... sorry, sir. I suppose we must accept your terms. It is unreasonable to expect you to act unless we give you our entire confidence. Just so, Lord Bellinger. The letter, then, is from a foreign potentate who has been ruffled by certain colonial developments of this country. It has been written hurriedly and entirely upon his own responsibility. It is couched in so unfortunate a manner 
with certain phrases of so provocative a character, this publication would undoubtedly lead to a ferment of feeling in this country. Really? You must hesitate to say that within a week of its publication, we should be impelled into war. Need I say more than that, Mr. Holmes? No, sir. Have you informed the sender of its loss? By cipher telegram. We believe that already he regrets having written it, and is just as concerned that it should never be published as we are. This being so, in whose interest is it that the letter should come out? Who would wish to steal and publish it? Ah, there, Mr. Holmes, you take me to regions of high international politics. Then we can assume that at this very moment the letter is probably speeding on its way to one of the chancelleries of Europe as fast as steam can take it. Precisely. Oh, no. My dear Hope, no one can blame you. Now, Mr. Holmes, what course do you recommend? You think, sir, that unless this letter is recovered, there will be war? I think it is very probable. Then, sir, prepare for war. What? That is grave counsel, Mr. Holmes. Are there no inquiries you can make? There are a few, Lord Belinda. Then come along, Hope. You'll let us know of any development during the day, Mr. Holmes. I shall, sir. Good day, gentlemen. Allow me, sir. Thank you. Good day. Good day. Good day. By Jove, Holmes, I don't like the sound of this. On the brink of war? The situation is desperate, Watson, but not hopeless. Have you an idea, then? Yes. I believe the letter was taken by someone in the house. But how... Acting on behalf of some foreign agent who by some means had come to know of its existence. Oh, a spy. Exactly. Well, even if you're right, it isn't going to help you much. As you said, the letter would have been passed on straight away. How could you hope to get it back? Unless I'm mistaken, the man behind this will prove to be one of that handful of international agents in London whose names are tolerably familiar to me. Mm. I will begin by going round and finding if each of them is still here. If one is missing, especially if he has disappeared since last night, we will have some indication as to where the document has gone. But uh, what can you hope to do then? <laughs> if it's on the market, I'll buy it. Even if it means another penny on the income tax. With these fellows, it's money that counts. I have the British Treasury behind me. Yes, yes, of course. Yes. Now, now, let me see. Yes. Yes, there are only three secret agents capable of playing so bold a game as this. Oberstein, La Raffia, and Eduardo Lucas. I'll Just see. a minute, Holmes. Eduardo Lucas? Yes. Do you know them? Well, I didn't until I read my paper this morning. What? Um, yeah, you, you, you'd, you'd better listen to this. Now, where... Ah, here we are. A crime of a mysterious character was committed last night at 16 Godolphin Street, Westminster, the home of Mr. Eduardo Lucas, well known in society circles and regarded as one of the country's best amateur tenors. Oh, go on, Watson, go on. Oh, sorry. Um, at a quarter to midnight, Police Constable Barrett, observing that the front door was ajar, knocked but could gain no reply. Entering the house, he found a state of wild disorder with furniture and objects scattered and overturned. In the middle of the floor lay Mr. Eduardo Lucas. What? He had been stabbed to the heart and must have died instantly. Oh, my soul, Watson. Is there any more? Um, well, only to say that robbery didn't seem to be the motive. Amazing coincidence, eh, Holmes? A coincidence? Here is one of three men whom we had named as possible actors in this drama... And he meets a violent death during the very hours when we know that drama was being enacted. No, my dear Watson, the odds against coincidence 
are too enormous for figures to express. You think the events are connected? Precisely. And it's for us to find the connection. But what hope is there of secrecy now that the police are involved? The police know about Godolphin Street. They know and shall know nothing of Whitehall Terrace. Mm. We must be on our guard, Watson. That is all. Ah, Mrs. Hudson. There's a lady asking to see you, Mr. Holmes. I have no appointment this morning. I'm sorry, I cannot see the lady. Well, here's her card. Oh, all the same, I... That's my soul. Ask her to come in, please. Very good, sir. You soon changed your mind, Holmes. And the visit from Lady Hilda Trelawney Hope must have a bearing on our present inquiries. What? Hope's wife? Yes. Uh, Lady Trelawney Hope, sir. Good morning, madam. Good morning. Uh, may I present my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson? Charmed, madam. Charmed. How do you do? Mr. Holmes, has my husband been here? He has, madam. Uh, will you sit here? Uh, no. Uh, here will do. Oh, very well. Mr. Holmes, if you should meet my husband again, I implore you not to tell him I'll call. I fear I can make no unconditional promise. I implore you also to tell me exactly what is happening and what it might lead to. Your husband has not told you. I know that a paper has been stolen from our house. And because my husband will not discuss it with me, I know it is a political document. Why do you come to me? Because, because I can tell from my husband's state that the loss has struck him a grievous personal blow. I wish to know, and it is no use my asking him, whether his political career is in danger. I think I can answer, without betraying any confidence, that if this matter is not set right quickly, it may certainly have a... Very unfortunate effect. Oh, oh madam, uh, no, can I... No, I, I'm quite all right, Dr. Watson. Thank you. Mr. Holmes, I want you to tell me all about this matter. Madam, what you ask me is really impossible. But why? If your husband keeps you in the dark about it, is it for me, who have only learned the true fact under a pledge of professional secrecy, to enlighten you? No. No, of course Forgive me, I will take up no more of your time. But once more, I beg you will say nothing of my visit. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Good morning madam. Good morning, madam. I say, oh, what a beauty. As an expert upon the fair sex, Watson, what did she really want? Uh, surely she made herself perfectly clear. Her anxiety is very natural. <laughs> Highly gallant. But think of her appearance. Note her manner, her suppressed excitement, her restlessness. Well... Remember that she comes of a caste who do not like to show emotion. Oh, she was certainly much moved. Did you also observe that she maneuvered to have the light at her back? Yes. Yes, yes, she chose her chair very carefully. You remember the woman at Margate who made me suspicious for that same reason? <laughs> no powder on her nose. That was all it proved to be in her case. <laughs> With Lady Hope, I fancy it was a desire not to let us read her expression too plainly. Oh, now, really, Hope. The motives of women are so inscrutable. Their most trivial action may mean volumes, or their most extraordinary conduct may depend upon a hairpin or a pair of curling tongs. How can you build on such a quicksand? Good morning, Watson. You're orphan? Yes, sir. I shall file away the morning at Godolphin Street. With Eduardo Lucas lies the solution of our problem. Now, you stay on guard and receive any fresh visitors. 
I'll join you at lunch, if I may. For the next three days, Holmes remained in a taciturn mood. He ran out and ran in, smoked incessantly, played snatches on his violin, sank into reveries, devoured sandwiches at irregular hours, and hardly answered the casual questions I put to him. He would say nothing about the case, and it was from the newspapers that I learned that Eduardo Lucas's valet had been suspected of his murder. However, a sensational occurrence led to his release. I managed to secure sufficient of Holmes' attention to read him the newspaper account. Oh, well, let me hear it, Watson. A report has been received from the Parisian police that a woman known as Madame Henri Fournay had suddenly become insane only a few days after returning from a visit to London. Inquiries in London disclosed that a woman of the same description had attracted attention at Charing Cross Station by the wildness of her appearance and manner. It now transpires that she had recently discovered that her husband maintained a bachelor establishment in London, in Godolphin Street, Westminster, under the name of Eduardo Lucas. <laughs> a few hours after Madame Fournay's hasty return to Paris, her husband's murdered body was discovered in his London rooms. French doctors hold out no hopes of being able to restore the woman's reason, and it is generally thought that she may have committed the murder in the grip of jealous frenzy. Yeah. Well, there, Holmes, what do you think of that? Lucas's death is a mere incident, a trivial episode compared with our real task, which is to trace this document and save the European catastrophe. About which you haven't seen fit to utter a blessed word to me these three days. My dear Watson. You are the most long-suffering of fellows. But the only important thing that has happened is that nothing has happened. Mm. The letter disappeared three days ago, and yet nowhere in Europe is there the least sign of repercussion. Hasn't it reached its destination, then? If not, why not? Who has it? And why is it held back? Well, yes, yes, yes. I see what you mean. Then what will you do? We, my dear Watson, huh? will pay a visit to the scene of the murder. But you said that Lucas's death was a mere incident. Compared with our real task. But it may have something for us. And in any case, I have a note from our old friend Lestrade, who is handling the case. Oh, is he? <laughs> he thinks he's made a discovery and wishes to consult me about it. Mm. We're scarcely in a position to overlook any possibility. Yes, Mr. Holmes, only one possible explanation, and that's the one they've come up with in Paris. Uh, Lucas was leading a double life. His wife found out, came over from France, and traced his establishment here. One thing led to another, and she finished that by stabbing him. Then when she realized what she'd done, it proved too much for her mind. I got no feeling sorry for the woman. You seem to have it all very clear, Lestrade. Then why send for me? Ah, well... Uh, it's a mere detail, I admit, and can't have anything to do with anything, but... Oh, I thought it was one of those odd little things that appeal to your fancy. You intrigued me. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. Well, now this is the room where Lucas was murdered, right? So you inform us. Therefore, ever since the discovery of the crime, there's been one of my men on duty in here, night and day. And nothing's been allowed to be touched or moved. Now, you see this loose rug here? Not fastened down anywhere. Yes, Inspector. I was having a final hunt round this morning, and I had occasion to lift it. Yes? Like this. What? 
heavily bloodstained on top. And you can see how the blood soaked right through. No but... blood stains on the floorboards underneath. Exactly. But if I lift the other side of the rug here, there's your blood-stained floorboard. A second stain. Meaning that the rug has been turned round at some time. Yes. But I mean to say, it's not all that large. It could easily have been lifted by accident and not put back exactly. Not by any of my men, Dr. Watson. The spade. Yes? That constable in the passage. Has he been in charge of the place all the time? McPherson? Yes, he has. Then question him carefully. Don't do it in front of us. Speak to him outside while we wait here. Yeah. You'll be more likely to get a confession out of him alone. Confession? What about? Ask him how he dared to admit unauthorized people and leave them alone in this room. Don't ask him if he's done it. Take it for granted. Press him. Do you understand? If anything like that's happened, I'll have it out of him. Constable McPherson, I want a few words with you. You better mind how you answer me. Now, Watson, now. Pull back that rug. Right, Holmes. <clears throat> there must be. Yes. But, but where... What are you looking for? A cavity in the in these floorboards. Oh, there has to be one, Watson. Mm -hmm. Confounded, where's my knife? Got it? Ah. There may not be time to Ah, here we are. I knew it. A cavity. What's what's in it? Easier to let Oh, cursed it's empty. Holmes and Quick, Watson, quick. Get everything back in place before the trade comes in. There may still be hope. Right. Ah, that's it. Good. Just in time. I can hear him. Come in here, McPherson. I want these two gentlemen to witness what you've just told me before I put it into my report. Uh, she wanted to see where the crime was done. She'd read about it in the papers. She was a very respectable young woman, sir. I saw no harm in letting her have a peep. But when she saw that mark on the rug, she fell down in a faint. <laughs> One of the oldest tricks in the business. Well, I ran round the corner to the ivy plant to get some brandy for her. I wasn't gone about five minutes. And believe it or not, Mr. Holmes, when he got back, she'd recovered and gone. Oh, I'm very sorry, sir. Uh, Constable, this young woman, can you describe her for us? Well, she was pretty, sir. Yes. Uh, well, uh, rather, I mean, handsome, sir. Tall and real genteel-like, I thought. Uh, how was she dressed? Quiet-like, sir. And what time was it? Just growing dusk, sir. Thank you. Well, the stage, we must be going. We have a call to make. Come along, Watson. This is most unfair and ungenerous of you. After I had made it quite clear that I wished to keep my visit to you a secret. By coming here now, you have compromised that secrecy. Unfortunately, madam, I had no possible alternative. I have been commissioned to recover this immensely important document. So I must ask you to be kind enough to place it in my hand. You insult me. Come, come, madam, it is useless. Give up the letter. No, do not ring for your butler. If you do, then all my efforts to avoid a scandal will be frustrated. If you will give up the letter and work with me, all will be set right. If you work against me, I must expose you. You are trying to frighten me. It is not a very manly thing to come here and browbeat a woman. Pray sit down, madam. I give you five minutes, Mr. Holmes. Come, Lady Hilda. I have no desire to bring trouble to you. My duty ends when I have returned the lost letter to your husband. I tell you again, you are under some absurd illusion. I'm sorry for you, madam. I've done my best for you. Come, Watson. We must go at once to Mr. Trelawney Hope's office. Very well, Holmes. Mr. Holmes. Madam. I beg you, please don't tell him. I love him so 
It would break his heart. I am relieved to hear you say that, madam. Where is the letter? Here it is, Mr. Holmes. Oh, to heaven, I have never seen it. Please be careful. He will be home at any moment. Now, the question is, how can we return it to him without his knowing? Quick, Watson, think. Um, I, uh... Where's the dispatch box from which it was taken? Over here. It'll be locked, Holmes. How did you open it before, madam? You have a duplicate key? Yes, of course you have. Open it. Yes. Yes. There. Capital. Oh, good. Plenty of papers. Now we'll trust this one well amongst them. So. And there. Please hide the key again. Good. Now, Lady Hilda, I'm going far to shield you. In return, you will spend the time until your husband arrives in telling me frankly the meaning of this extraordinary affair. I will. I will. But you must believe me, please, that there is no woman in London who loves her husband as I do. I could never, never have done what I did if I had not been forced... Quickly, madam. It all springs from an indiscreet letter I wrote before my marriage. Somehow it passed into the hands of this man, Lucas. He lost no time in informing me and convincing me how he could be used to destroy my husband's confidence and trust in me. He blackmailed you with it? He said that he would return my letter if I would procure for him a certain letter which some informant in my husband's office had told him would be contained in that dispatch box. He assured me that no harm could come to my husband as a result of its loss. Oh, put yourself in my position, Mr. Holmes. What was I to do? Take your husband into your confidence. Oh, it is easy to say that. But Lucas convinced me that the consequence of the letter's disappearance would be small. Whereas I knew too well how great the consequences of a confession to my husband might be. He is not uh, a forgiving man. His own standard of honor is so high that he cannot forget or pardon any lapse by another. How did you obtain a duplicate key of this dispatch box? I took an impression of his key. This man, Lucas, furnished a duplicate. So you took the letter as arranged. What then? I carried it to Lucas at Godolphin Street. Our business was soon over. I gave him the letter. He gave me back mine. I was about to leave when there came a thunderous knocking at his door and I heard a woman's voice cry out. He threw back the rug before his desk, prized up a board and dropped the letter into a cavity there. Then he opened the door. Pray, pray calm yourself, madam. It was like some beautiful dream. I was swept aside by a woman who rushed in. She was screaming in French. I could understand a little of it. She said something like, I knew there was another woman. At last I have found you with her. My waiting has not been in vain. I saw a knife in her hand. Lucas was trying to push her away. I, I said... Listen, there's my husband... Now, Mr. Holmes... You have my promise. When I read of Lucas's death, I was glad. Until I saw my husband's anguished state. I knew then that the letter must have been of very great importance. My one concern was to get it back. I watched his house for two days, wondering how I could get in. Then I grew desperate, and I tricked a young constable into admitting No me. more now. Oh, Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson, they told me you were here. Does this mean there is news? I have some hopes, sir. You have? Oh, thank heaven. The Prime Minister is with me. Ah, here he is. Oh, 
Now, you explain, Franken. Can this mean... Hey, Hilda, my dear, this is a political matter. We will join you in a few minutes in the drawing room. I understand, my dear. Good morning, Mr. Holmes. Dr. Watson. Good morning, ma'am. Now, Mr. Holmes, I'm quite sure, Prime Minister, that there is no danger to be feared. No danger? Then, have you the letter? I have not. Then you cannot possibly reassure me. I have been thinking the matter over very closely. I'm not convinced that anyone took the letter at all. I believe it is still in this house. This is not a time for joking, Mr. Holmes. I am not joking. Am I, Watson? No, no, no. Mr. Hope, have you examined your dispatch box since the day the letter was missed? No, it has not been necessary. I believe you may have overlooked it. Impossible. I have known such things happen. No, no, I had everything out. Open it and show him. Very well, sir. This is the box. I promise you that letter is not amongst these papers. Letter from Lord Meadow. Report from Sir Charles Hardy. Memorandum from Belgrade. Letter... Good heavens. What is it? Great Scott. The letter. What a careless fool I must have been. Prime Minister, I... Oh, but what a weight from my mind. Mr. Holmes... You are a wizard, a sorcerer. How did you know it was there? Because I knew it was nowhere else. I can't believe my eyes. I must tell my wife that all is well. Hilda! <laughs> well, fellow. Mr. Holmes, sir. Sir? There's more in this than meets the eye. Prime Minister, we also have our diplomatic secrets. Hey, Watson? <laughs> <laughs> that was The Second Stain by Michael Hardwick, based on the short story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes was played by Carlton Hobbs and Dr. Watson by Norman Shelley. Production for the BBC was by Martin C. Webster. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And if you will, I hope you listen to me for a second because... I want to tell you about a wine that can make waiting for dinner a pleasure. The wine is Petri California Sherry. Any evening, well, let's say tomorrow evening, right before dinner, pour yourself a glass of Petri Sherry. Just look at it. It's clear as crystal and a wonderful deep amber color. One sure sign of a good sherry. And if you need further proof of just how good Petri Sherry really is, taste it. What wine? At Petri, Sherry has a flavor that you know comes right from the heart of the grape. And if you like your Sherry dry rather than sweet, you'll really like Petri Pale Dry Sherry. There's no doubt about it, Petri Sherry is one of the most delicious before-dinner wines in this swell country of ours. Oh, and say, when you serve Petri Sherry, serve it proudly. Because those letters, P-E-T-R-I, on the bottle, spell the proudest name in the history of American wine.
And now I'm sure our good friend Dr. Watson's waiting for us. Let's go and join there you are, Mr. Bartell. Good evening, Doctor. All alone tonight, huh? Yes, my boy. If you can call a man alone when he's got his pipe, his books, and a glass of good port at his elbow. Take your coat off. You're full of enjoyment. Thanks, Doctor. Help yourself to the port. There's some rather special tobacco in the jar over there. Fine. And uh, now, Doctor, are you ready to tell us tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure? I am, Mr. Bartell, and I think you'll find it a most unusual story. Began on a winter's night in 1896. Holmes and I had gone to a theatre in the east end of London to see a performance of a famous old English melodrama called Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. That's a good bloodthirsty title, Doctor. Demon Barber. He sounds as though he specialized in close shaves. Good gracious me, Mr. Bartell, that, that's almost unforgivable. <laughs> he was a murderer of voracious appetite who placed his victims in a specially constructed barber's chair cut their throats, and then pressed the lever that would swing the chair over and decamp the unfortunate victim into a horrible cellar beneath his shop. This is only a stage play you're talking about, Doctor. As my story begins, we were seated in a private box watching one of the closing scenes. Holmes was leaning forward in his chair, following the action on the stage with an obvious delight, while I sat beside him equally engrossed. An actor by the name of Mark Humphreys was playing the part of Sweeney Todd, and no one could deny that he was playing it up Where are you going, Tobias? To the nearest magistrate, Sweeney Todd, to denounce you as a fiendish, cruel, cold-blooded murderer. You have pronounced your doom. Into the chair with you, and over and down into the depths below. Whence comes this apparition? Tis the ghost of another customer of mine. The yawning grave yields up his ghastly inmates to prove me guilt. Blood! will have blood! See, he is there. He comes to accuse me of his murder. Oh, save me! T'was not I that slew you. Let me leave, or it will kill me! Let me leave! Ha 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 Well, upon my soul, Holmes, that fellow Mark Humphreys is the most florid actor that I've ever seen on a stage. I find him enchanting, Watson. It seems to me he's really caught the flavor of this murderous monster piece. After all, a restrained performance of a Barber Sweeney Todd would be unthinkable. Yes, I suppose it would. But I must say his makeup seems rather overdone. No barber would wear such an enormous beard. It'd be most impractical. Probably get in the customer's faces. By the way, um, I noticed from the program that Mark Humphreys, as well as being the principal actor, is also the owner of the company. Yes, the current trend towards the actor-manager is a very healthy sign, I think. Come in. Excuse me, but is one of you gentlemen Mr. Sherlock Holmes? Yes, I am. I was asked to give you this note. Thank you. Who on earth knows that you're at the theater, Holmes? We'll soon find out. Ah, this note is from Mark Humphreys. Our actor manager. What does it say? Dear Mr. Holmes, I recognize you in your box. Please come to my dressing room after the performance. My sanity and even the safety of London, perhaps, depends on your compliance. My sanity and the safety of London. I wonder what on earth he means. That, my dear fellow, we can only discover by going backstage to meet him. As it is, the curtain's going up in the last scene I see. For a little longer, we must possess our souls in patience. (laughs) 
Mr. Sherlock Holmes? Yes, sir. Oh, my name is Lindsay. Derek Lindsay. I'm the business manager. Mr. Humphreys asked me to meet you at the stage door and take you to his dressing room. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, this is my colleague, Dr. Watson. How do you do? Oh, how are you, Doctor? Uh, will, you, uh, will you follow me, please? Excuse me asking, Mr. Lindsay, but surely you must be related to that distinguished actor of some years back, Lytton Lindsay. Uh, he was my father, Mr. Holmes. Ah, indeed. The resemblance is extraordinary. With such a heritage, Mr. Lindsay, you must love the theatre. <laughs> It'll probably sound like heresy, but I hate it. <laughs> However, it's the only thing I was trained for, and there's good money to be made in it, sometimes. And money's a thing I both like and want. Oh, Mr. Holmes, I do hope you'll be able to help Mark Humphreys. He certainly needs it. Oh, really? What seems to be his trouble? Oh, he'll have to tell you that for himself. But his wife and I think... There's Mrs. Humphreys now. Maria! Yes, Maria, this is Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Mrs. Mark Humphreys. How do you do? Oh, Mr. Holmes, I'm so grateful that you're going to see Mark. He's in such a dreadful state. There have been times lately when... When Mr. Lindsay and I have been afraid he's going out of his mind, haven't we, dear? Indeed we have. We're both dreadfully worried about it. In that case, I hope I can be of service. And which is his dressing room? Number one, next door to mine. Derek, I think it'll be better if Mr. Holmes and Dr. Watson go in alone. I'm sure Mark will speak more freely if we're not in the room. I think perhaps that is a good idea, Mrs. Humphreys. We'll see you later on. Come on, fellow. That's all right. Come in, come in. Thank heaven you're here. Close the door. Now, uh, Mr. Humphreys, uh, this is Dr. Watson. Watson, eh? Yes, I, I know of you, too. How do you do, sir? Sit down, won't you, gentlemen? You're wondering why I asked you to come back and see me, of course. Naturally, sir. Well, I won't beat about the bush and waste your time. I come straight to the point. I'm going mad. Oh, come. I know, oh, I know. Come, it come, sounds come. fantastic, but it's true. I've often heard of actors beginning to live their parts off the stage. They play on it. Well, it's happening to me. I'm turning into another Sweeney Todd, the character I'm portraying on the stage. Are you suggesting, sir, that you're a potential murderer? Yes, I am. What reason do you have for holding that belief? Reason? Listen to this. Three times in the past week, I've wakened in the morning to find my boots covered with mud and my razor stained with blood. You've had no recollection of any untoward events during the night? None. Have you ever been addicted to the unfortunate habit of sleepwalking, sir? Not to my knowledge, Doctor. And if I had been, surely my wife would have told me about Your it. Your wife? Uh, where do you live, Mr. Humphreys? We uh, have a flat here above the theatre. Above the theatre, eh? And Mr. Humphreys, you say that on three separate occasions on waking in the morning, you have found a blood-stained razor and mud-covered boots. Can you show us this proof? No. No, I can't. I was always so frightened that my wife would see that I, I cleaned them before she had the opportunity of finding them. Pretty, sir. They would have been very valuable clues in a case like I this. I couldn't risk my wife seeing evidence like that. Doctor, she'd know the truth. But at night times, while she's asleep, some devilish unconscious urge has overcome me. An urge that causes me to prowl the streets of London. Razor in hand, looking for a victim. Mr. Holmes, you've got to help me. I'm certain that without knowing it, I've been committing murder. And if you don't help me, I'll go on and on. Mr. Humphreys, please. I'll undertake the case. It's a very unique assignment. In effect, I'm being engaged by a possible murderer to prove him guilty. <laughs> Oh, 
Mr. Holmes, I've been through all the records we have here at Scotland Yard. What have you found, Inspector Gregson? In the last two months, we haven't had one case of an unsolved killing with a razor. Any mysterious disappearances, Inspector? <laughs> Bless your heart, Doctor. There's never a day that passes without one or two of them. Here's a list of them, Mr. Holmes, if it's any use to you. Thanks. Come on, Watson. In the morning, we can go back to the theatre and set our friend's mind at rest. I'm much obliged to you, Gregson. Glad to be of service, Mr. Holmes. We examined the homicide records at Scotland Yard after leaving you last night, Mr. Humphreys. There have been no unsolved razor murders in London during the past fortnight. And therefore, I think you may rest easy on that score, sir. But it proves nothing. Remember that in the place, Sweeney Todd's victims are never found yes, either. Yes, thanks to his singularly horrible ingenuity in disposing of them. But this is real life, Mr. Humphreys. Then how do you account for the bloodied razors and the muddied boots? Well, now, uh, are you sure that they aren't uh, just in your imagination, sir? You admit that your wife's never seen them. The whole thing could be, or shall we say, an overdose of extremely <laughs> tart. Well, I admit that I'm suffering from a surfeit of that. And why not drop the plate from your repertoire? Our manager, Derek Lindsay, won't let me. It's our best moneymaker. He's always got a keen eye to business. Mr. Holmes, I can see that you still don't believe my story. So I've saved some evidence for you, evidence that I found this morning. Look at these. Now what do you say? Do you still think it's my imagination? Got a blood-stained razor and boots covered with mud. Splendid. At last, some real clues to work on. How can you be so calm, Holmes? It happened again last night. Do you realize that I'm a murderer? I'm a menace to society? For heaven's sake, lock me up before I do some more damage. No, 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 sir. Don't get too excited. Mr. Humphreys, I should like to take these objects back to Baker Street where I can perform some chemical tests. You have no objections, I hope. Objections? Good heavens, no. Excellent. You've told no one of this fresh discovery of yours. No one. Not even Derek Lindsay. Derek Lindsay, that's your manager, isn't it? Yes. The best friend I ever had. Except for his father before him. It was Derek who helped me back on my feet. Terror, too. Yes, two years ago, when I put on that disastrous production of Macbeth. I don't know where I'd be today if it went for him. You lost a great deal of money on that production, sir. Nearly every penny I had. Indeed. By the way, uh, where is your wife, Mr. Humphrey? She's in her dressing room next door. We have a matinee today, you know. I'd like a word with her. Uh, what's an old chap? Wait here for me, will you? I won't be a moment. Uh, right you are, Holmes. Who is it? Sherlock Holmes. You... Want to talk to me, Mr. Holmes? For a moment. May I come in, Mrs. Humphreys? Well, couldn't we talk on the stage? It's empty. I should prefer to come into your dressing room, if you don't mind. What I have to say is confidential. Very well, then. Come in. Mr. Holmes, may I introduce Signor Vanelli, our musical director? How do you do, sir? It is a great honor to meet the so great Signor Holmes. I have so admired you. Oh, often I have envied you. Many times I say to myself, Stepsy, uh, Senor Vanelli, if you don't mind, I wish to speak to Mrs. Humphreys alone. Oh, I quite understand. Excuse me, Senor. Adios, Madame Maria. Mr. Holmes, I'm really awfully glad of this opportunity to talk to you. Tell me truthfully, please, what's your opinion of my husband? I haven't formed a definite opinion yet. Except that it's possible that he's the victim of a fraud. I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions, if you don't mind. Of course not, Mr. Holmes. Has your husband ever shown evidence of being a sleepwalker? A sleepwalker? Oh, no, never. I see. Are you a light sleeper? Yes, I am. Exceptionally so. Why? Oh, I was just curious. You're being very mysterious, Mr. Holmes. 
Can't you tell even me what's going on? I promised your husband the answer to that question before tonight's performance. I'm afraid I can't tell you any more until then. Oh. And now may I ask a question? Oh, certainly. No, I won't promise to answer it. You said just now that my husband might be the victim of a fraud. What did you mean? Again, I'm afraid that you must wait for the specific answer to that question. However, there's another fraud being practiced on him that I can speak of now. What fraud? The fraud that you are indulging in, Mrs. Humphreys. What do you mean? Of course, this particular fraud is none of my business, but um, when I almost force my way into your dressing room and find your musical director, a plenty of rice powder on one shoulder and suggestions of rouge on his cheek, it doesn't take a great deal of intelligence deduce that your husband is being deceived. Get out of here, at once. That's exactly what I propose doing. Good day to you, madam. No doubt I shall see you later on. Well, Holmes, what does the microscope tell you about the mud on the boots and the blood stains on the razor? On a blank on the mud, old chap. Extremely common type found in most parts of London. And the blood? I'm examining that now. <laughs> this is a stranger case as ever I remember, Holmes. Here you are trying to prove a man innocent when he insists that he's guilty. Why, George Watson, here's the answer. What? This blood is definitely not human blood. It's probably canine. Now, a Sweeney Todd madness would hardly drive its victim to kill dogs. Therefore, it's obvious that Mark Humphreys is the victim of a devilish plot. And he's not a murderer. No, come on, old fellow. Let's go to the theater at once and give him the good news. Where doesn't the answer? Three quarters of an hour before the curtain time. Oh, I must be in his dressing room. I'll knock again. Ah, come on, Watson. Let's go in. Holmes, look. Look, he's stumped over his dressing table. Oh, I hope we're not too late. Here, give me a hand with him. Not too late. His throat's been cut. Uh, poor devil. I promised him a solution to his troubles before the night was over. Little did I think that the solution would be death. We'll hear the rest of Dr. Watson's story in just a second, so... I'm going to ask you if you're one of those people who just eats to live or whether you really enjoy good food. If you love good eating, you've just got to know about Petri wine. Petri wine makes good food taste wonderful. For instance, if you're having steak or a roast or any meat or meat dish, you'll love it served with Petri California Burgundy. Petri Burgundy is the last word in delicious red wine. Now with chicken or fish, you can't beat the delicate Petri California Sauternes. A really extraordinary white wine. Just to make sure you don't miss either Petri wine, don't buy one, buy two. Buy both Petri Burgundy and Petri Sauternes. They're both swell because they're both Petri. Well, Dr. Watson, what happened next? Well, Phil, I think I'll pick up the story exactly where I left off. Holmes and I were standing in Mark Humphrey's dressing room, looking with horror the flashed throat of the actor manager. There was a bitter, self-accusing note in Holmes' voice. I promised him a solution to his troubles before tonight was over. Little did I think that solution would be death. This worry over his supposed madness caused him to commit suicide. Suicide? Rubbish, old fellow. It's murder. 
Look at the razor clutched in his hand. Undoubtedly placed there by the murderer before Rigor Mortis had a chance to set in. In any case, scrutinize the wound. Does that look as if it had been done by the hand of a suicide? Oh, I don't see why not. Look closer, old chap. The depth of the wound is even, whereas a suicide's cut always wavers towards the end. No, this is murder, Watson, and I think I know who did it. But I, uh, I have little evidence. I must lay a trap. What kind of a trap, Holmes? I've time to tell you now, fellow. Every moment counts. I'll put you to Scotland Guard and get Inspector Gregson. Bring him back here as fast as you can. Right you are. And Watson. Yes? Tell absolutely no one except Gregson of Mark Humphrey's death. Say that he's still alive and well and that his problems are solved. It's the performance of the play. Don't you worry about that, old chap. Off with you to Scotland Yard. I'm sorry it took so long to find me, Dr. Watson. I was out on another case. Oh, that's all right, Inspector. But the performance, if there is one, must be nearly over by now. Here's the stage door, sir. Yes, here we are. Here, here, you can't go on this stage. Who says I can't? I'm Inspector Gregson of Scotland Yard. Oh, sorry. What is going on? I wonder who the devil's playing the Sweeney Todd. Come along, come on. Let's just stand here in the wind. Quietly, quietly. It was only the wind whistling through this cellar. This is impossible. <laughs> There's Mark Humphreys on the stage. I saw him with his throat cut. I don't believe in ghosts, Doctor. Great heavens, it, it's Holmes. Who's this? Here he comes now, Gregson. Amazing disguise. I never recognized him. You're both here. Holmes, and what are you up to? Surely that's apparent. I disguised myself as the dead man, hoping to force the murderer's hand. You're running a terrible risk, Mr. Holmes. Part of my profession, Gregson. Here comes Signor Vanelli, the musical director. My dear fellow, I had to leave the orchestra pit to come and congratulate you. Never have you given a finer performance. Bravissimo, bravissimo. Thank you, thank you. But it is true. You hardly seem the same person. Your performance is incomparable. Keep it up, Mark. Keep it up. I think he spotted you, Holmes. Yes, sir. I didn't like his look as he said that. Well, whoever it is, they've got to show their hand soon. Going up in the last scene. Keep your eyes open and suspect everyone. My guilt! The very dead rise from their settlements to prove Sweeney Todd a murderer! Oh, George, what an actor he'd have made, Doctor. Yes, what an actor he is, Gregson. I'll be hanged if I know how he remembers the lines, though, even if he has seen the play half a dozen times. Here he comes now. Bravo, Holmes. You did splendidly. But it didn't work, Watson. It didn't work, confound it. The murderer still hasn't tipped his hand. 
Have I underestimated him? Looks as if you have, sir. And if you don't mind my saying so, I think you'd have been a lot wiser to let me handle the case as soon as you found his body. Instead of going in for all this uh, dressing up stuff. Oh, but of course. Now I see it. Only one person could have killed Mark Humphreys. Who owned? Do as I say and I'll show you. I'm going to Humphreys' dressing room now, alone. Give me a few moments, start, and then follow me. Out of sight, but within earshot. Dr. Watson, why does Mr. Holmes always have to be so blooming mysterious? Why can't he just say who the murderer is and take us to him? Well, I've been with Mr. Holmes on a great many cases, Gregson, and yet I can't answer that question. Come along. You've got a big enough start now. Let's follow him. I'm very fond of Mr. Holmes, you know, Doctor, and yet there are times when I get so angry with him, he shouldn't risk his life like that. Well, you know Mr. Holmes, he'll never change. Well, if he don't, one of these days he's going to wake up and find himself dead. That's the door. Someone inside with him. You devil, Listen. How many times do I have to kill you? Great Scott, it's Derek Lindsay, the business manager. Come along, Gregson. No, Lindsay. You succeeded in killing Humphreys, but you won't kill me. Grab his arm. Look out for that freezer. I hear you. Let go of me. No, you don't. Ah, very neat, Gregson. Are you all right, Holmes? Perfectly, thanks, old chap, though I'm a little tired. Uh, Gregson, my dear fellow, will you take over from here? I think I've had enough melodrama for one day. Pleasant Watson to be back at Baker Street again, a crafting fire, my dressing gown, and your company combined to make a soothing ending to a somewhat violent day. It's been a most unusual case, Holmes. I still don't entirely understand it. The original plot, of course, was to try and drive Mark Humphreys mad by making him think that he was a murderer. Had a courage for the boots and the blood-stained razor. Precisely, my dear fellow. And the killer, having conditioned his victim by this trickery, then murdered him, trying to make it appear a suicide. Now, who had a motive? Three people, Mrs. Humphreys, her lover, Signor Vanelli, and Derek Lindsay. I must say that I suspected the wife. Well, so did I for a while, and yet it was illogical. She knew, and we may therefore presume that her lover knew, and that I was suspicious of her. And she must have known that you promised her husband a solution to his troubles before the night was out. It seems highly improbable that she or Signor Vanelli would have faked his suicide at that point. Quite right, my dear fellow. So I investigated Derek Lindsay's affairs, and I found that what Humphreys had referred to as the kindly act of a friend in helping him back onto his feet was in reality the mortgaging of his entire theatrical effects. Lindsay stood to inherit the theater on Humphreys' death. Therefore, I was convinced that he was the killer. And then, after he'd murdered him, he saw what he thought to be Mark Humphreys on the stage. Ah, that's where I was slow and stupid, old chap. I couldn't imagine what motive gave the... Cold, clear nerve to suppress all reactions when he saw his supposed victim revived on the stage. Only at that moment did I realize. And what was the motive that made him hold his hand? The characteristic that ruled his life, Watson. Avarice. A morbid love of money. You see, if he'd attacked me during the performance, he'd have had to refund the money to the audience. His greed conquered all other patterns. It made him wait until the performance was finished before he attempted my life. You know, Holmes... Now that the case is solved, I'll tell you something in, in confidence. Please do, old fellow. What is At it? At the end of the play tonight, I was afraid that you'd uh, made a mistake, that you'd slipped up on the case. Uh, Gregson thought so, too. And uh, I, Watson, will tell you something in confidence. Well, what is it? <laughs> there were three of us that felt the same way. Well, now you're being modest, no? <laughs> I assure you I'm not, my dear chap. In fact, in the future, if it should strike you that I'm more well... Getting a little overconfident of my powers, or uh, perhaps uh, giving less pains to a face than it deserves. Kindly whisper Sweeney Todd in my ear, will you? 
I shall be infinitely obliged to you. Doctor, that was a swell story. And, and a pretty narrow escape for Holmes. Yeah. He said he almost solved the case too late. But fortunately, it ended well. Mm-hmm. The thing that sticks in my mind is the fact that this was one of the very rare occasions when Holmes almost made a serious mistake. Well, we all make mistakes at times, don't we? Rattel, I said we, we all make mistakes at times. Mm, I suppose so. You mean to stand there and tell me that you never make a mistake? Well, not when it comes to choosing a wine, I don't, because I always choose Patrick. Rattel, you trap me again. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. But honestly, Doctor, when you choose a Petri wine, you know it's a good wine. Because good wine is the only kind of wine the Petri family makes. And it's easy to understand why when you realize that ever since they started the Petri business way back in the 1800s, the Petri family has handed on down from father to son, from father to son, the highly developed fine art of winemaking. Yes, the Petri family's been making wine for generations. That's why, no matter what type of wine you prefer, for any occasion, you can't go wrong with a Petri wine because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, do you care to give us a clue about next week's Sherlock Holmes well, adventure? Well, let me see. Next week, Mr. Bartell, next week now. Yes, I'm going to tell you a colorful story that took place in the Parisian Circus in 1890. It concerns a very exalted personage, a lady bareback rider, and a faint death. Without warning. Oh, boy, I, I can't miss that one, Doctor. Good. Well, now, before you go, I want to say something to all our friends. I want you just to think for a minute. Think of how terrible it is to see helpless little children stricken by infantile paralysis. And then realize that infantile paralysis can be beaten. It can be beaten in very many cases. And your money, your dimes, can do it. Join the March of Dimes. Send your dimes to your local March of Dimes headquarters. Let's help little children walk. Let's help them live. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in this Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Yellow Face. Music is by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studio. This is Harry Bartell saying good night for the Petri family. For a solid hour of exciting mystery dramas, listen every Monday on most of these same stations at 8 o'clock to Michael Shane, followed immediately by Sherlock Holmes. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. From New York City, the makers of Clipper Craft Clothes for Men and more than 1,200 leading retail stores from coast to coast present Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's immortal character, the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes, starring John Stanley.
this week's adventure, the Guy Fawkes Society. Come at home as you're running an unspeakable risk. Can't you allow the police to handle this themselves? No, Watson, I must be there myself. Well, shouldn't you take along a revolver, a weapon of some sort? I think not. They might decide to examine everyone entering the warehouse. No, I shall attend the secret meeting of this bloodthirsty society, accompanied only by my second closest friend, my Mearsham Pipe. We're at the door of Dr. John Watson's study, and we're about to hear another of his adventures with the fabulous Sherlock Holmes. Oh, good evening, Mr. Harris. <laughs> good evening, Dr. Watson. Uh, have you assembled all the facts for the memoir you're currently writing, Dr. Watson? Yes, Mr. Harris. It's the adventure of the Guy Fawkes Society. Guy Fawkes? You mean the arch-conspirator of 17th century England? The very same. Well, what sort of organization was the society, Doctor? Well, it was a secret cult formed in 1897. Their membership consisted entirely of fanatics devoted to one of the most horrifying purposes imaginable. And what was their purpose? Well, I shall reveal the incredible secret at the appropriate time, Mr. Harris. Uh, but now it would seem as the appropriate time for a word about those remarkable Clippercraft clothes. So it is, Doctor. Let me paint a little word picture of you in the fine local store that sells Clippercraft clothes. Look expensive, don't they? But you try on a Clippercraft suit anyway. Feel comfortable? Okay. Now you walk over to the mirror. Might as well admit it, you do look like a million, and you're thinking, this will really smash my budget. And then you look at the price. Why, it just can't be true. But it is only 40 or 47.50, depending on the Clippercraft model you prefer. How can it be? Well, more than 1,200 of America's finest independent stores from coast to coast have put their combined purchasing power into action to save you money. It's the reason only 47.50 buys you a smart Clippercraft suit of worsted fabrics that can take the hardest wear you'll give. Yes, for suits, top coats, and sport coats, you'll find Clippercraft values at the head of the class. Compare Clippercraft with clothes selling for many dollars more. And now, Doctor Watson, what was the Guy Fox Society? Well, Mister Harris. It was the beginning of November, 1897. Holmes and I were returning to 221 B Baker Street after a late dinner. We were enveloped in an unprecedented yellow fog. We were groping our way up the stairs toward our flat. Have you the key, Watson? Yes, here we are. If I can find the lock, I... Oh, confound it, there's something on the floor here. Kicked it with my foot. Well, i see if I can budge it out of the way. Holmes, it feels like a body. Match, Watson. Yeah, right, Good heavens, Holmes, it's a man. His throat's been cut. Will you look at this pool of blood? Like that lamp, Watson. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Yes, his throat's been slit from ear to ear. Look, Holmes, on the wall. There's handwriting. Someone's evidently dipped his finger in the dead man's blood and scrawled a message. Yes, it says, Guy Fawkes lives. Guy Fawkes lives? Now, what sort of diabolical nonsense is that? Shall I fetch the police, Holmes? In due course, we shall observe that <clears throat> technicality. Let's have a closer look at the corpse. Uh, what's that in his hand? Is that, is that a chunk of wood? Pine wood, Watson. Oh, look, there's some sort of grease at the tip of the wood. From the odor, Watson, I should say it was oil. Oh, the dickens you suppose he was going to do with a chunk of wood dipped in oil? Clearly, the dead man was preparing a torch. Torch, Holmes, that's absurd. Why should anyone want to be marching about with a torch? 
The weather about which you've been complaining throughout the evening supplies the answer to that riddle. You mean the fog? The unbelievably thick fog, Watson. The torch, coupled with the fog, signifies that the dead man lying before us was a link boy. Link boy. Yes, I've heard the term. Can't say I've ever seen one. The venerable tradition originates from the days when it was necessary to accompany members of Parliament home due to the danger of their being attacked by thieves and dissenters and riffraff. Of course, the custom has been abandoned, except for those rare occasions when London suffers an impossible fog. Then the link boys with their torches are called out to escort the parliamentarians homeward. Anything in his pocket? No, there's nothing. Mm. Mm-hmm. This man's torch hasn't been used. He was therefore on his way to perform his duties. Come, Watson, we're off to see the sergeant at arms of the parliament buildings. We shall ask the name of the link boy who failed to appear this evening. You intend to leave the body here, just like this? Of course, but I shall mention it to the first policeman we meet. And thanks to the nature of bureaucratic ineptitude, we shall be many steps ahead of them while they're still here scribbling in their little notebooks. We certainly had the sergeant-at-arms in Parliament baffled, <laughs> asking all those questions about the link boy without ever telling him what it was all about, eh? <laughs> mm. Let's see now, Holmes. Let's see, we've learned that the dead man's name was Harold Pickering, that Mrs. Hudson admitted him downstairs, that uh, Pickering asked for you, that she saw him go out. Uh, two other gentlemen appeared at the front door a moment later, uh, one of them misshapen and very ugly, uh, that she saw them go out. She then went back inside to her rooms and heard and saw nothing after that uh, until the police arrived. Then we... Uh, Holmes, what are you doing to your face? Smudging it with soot. What for? I must assume a disreputable appearance, Watson. You must assume what? There we are. Now, off with this tweed suit. And into some tattered things. Unfortunately, you cannot accompany me on this grotesque mission, Watson. Where are you going? You'll recall that at Parliament we were told that the dead man, Mr. Pickering, resided on Bridge Road by the West India docks. We were also told that he spent a considerable portion of his time at various pubs in that vicinity. I intend to visit every shabby spot on Bridge Road. But why the disguise? I hope to learn what it was that Mr. Pickering wished to tell me when he came here. Obviously, it was something so insidious that it was necessary to cut his throat before he had a chance to talk. I shall visit the pest holes at Bridge Road. I should be very vocal about loathing the government. You were never in here before, were you? That's quite right. Uh, do you mind if I sit down with you? Feel a kind of lonesome. I like to make friends with everybody who comes in. Do you like this place? Very much. It's the best around this part of London. But try the other places. Yes, this is my fourth tavern tonight. My name's Moore. Maud Peter. What's yours? Like so many of your customers, Maud, I must ask you to accept a significant silence in answer to that question. Ma, you've a fancy way of talking. <laughs> Did you hear me sing? Yes. Delightful. Uh, aren't you going to tell me anything about yourself? Where'd you come from? What's your game? Anything's my game, Maud. Why'd you keep watching the door? Look, you can trust Maud. Everyone will tell you that. The police looking for you? They might be. What sort of job did you do? Suppose we just say that it was unpatriotic. 
Is that all you're going to tell me? Yes, suffice it that it was unpatriotic. I have very little use for our current government. I'm one of those who feels that England, once master of the planet, is collapsing of its own weight. Ah, oh, you sound just like him. Like who? Uh, a friend of mine. He always talks that way. He'd like you. You talk like you've got brains. You'd be helpful. Helpful? To whom? For what purpose? Did you say anything's your game? I did. Would murder be your game? If it were worth the candle? I don't mean just taking care of some blokes in a dark alleyway with a pocket knife. We can find plenty around here to do that for a few pounds or a few drinks. I'm talking about murder in a much bigger way. I mean killing a few hundred people, maybe a thousand. You have the stomach for that? If they're sufficient to be gained, I'm your man. Oh, there's more than money in it. Is there? Mm, much, much more. It's a wonderful scheme. And there's a wonderful man running it. You and he did it all fine. Why don't you introduce me to the gentleman? Maybe I will. He wants all the help he can find. Yes, you come along with me. It's just a minute's walk from here, close by the dock. It's a basement under an empty warehouse. It's his headquarters. Who's born? He's the leader of the Guy Fawkes Society. You'll see you now. It's about time. I might catch my death of cold sitting here waiting in this damp basement. He's in the next room. Now just go through that door. Here, you better take my candle. It's dark as pitch. Thank you. Oh, uh, I must tell you, you may think he's a bit barmy at first. He says strange things sometimes, but that's just his way. He's really brilliant. And don't be frightened by Gerardo. Gerardo? Uh, Gerardo's the leader's man, sort of his bodyguard and secretary. <laughs> Gerardo's the ugliest man I've ever seen. Most of his face is burnt off in a fire. Oh, but he won't hurt you. I'll wait out here. Go on through that door. Very well. Come in. Come in. I am Gerardo. How do you do? Before I introduce you to our leader, would you raise your hand? Higher, please. You do not have a gun or a knife, I hope. No, I have not. I just want to be sure. Pay me a formality. <laughs> I have the honor to introduce our leader. Sit down. Get out, Gerardo. But, Mr. Get Sir... out! Yes, sir. Lord tells me that you wish to join our ranks. Possibly. I don't know anything about you. I could be rather verbose about you, though. You, sir? You're extremely nervous, vain, and have spent a great deal of time outside of England. To be more specific, in a tropical country. How do you know? Those pencils on your desk chewed and... almost to the point of uselessness. I... The restless way you pace up and down before me. The nervousness is inescapable. As for your vanity, you're squinting your eyes in order to have a better view of me, a characteristic of nearsightedness. You require spectacles, but do not wear them. You've spent a sizable portion of your life in tropical countries because your teeth have a distinctive corrosion caused by endless munching upon sugar cane. Good. Very good. Maybe more to think about. I have need of men with their wits about them. Ours is a great task. It's a bloody and dangerous task. But the rewards will be well worth the sacrifice. What is the task, Mr. Stewart? What I shall say 
may sound fantastic, but the truth is often very shocking. My name is Douglas Stewart. My genealogy may be traced to the Stewart who once ruled my England. Really? You don't seem to believe it. Well, I... It's the truth, it's the truth, it's the truth. I can prove that I am the rightful ruler of the British Empire. I've been cheated of my birthright. Have you? They plotted against me. The imposters who sit now upon my throne, they plotted against me. When I went to them, when I made my claim, they accused me of being insane. They are nothing but animals wallowing in the sigh of their wealth and privilege. They must be exterminated. They held me prisoner. Oh? Where, Mr. Stewart? On what charge? They held me prisoner in a hospital for a year, a hospital for the mentally ill. When were you released? I was not released. They would have kept me there until I died. They tortured me. I escaped. I escaped. Now I'm free. And I shall strike back. What is your plan, Mr. I'm Stewart? I'm not well. They made me sick in that hospital. They injected me with drugs. I'm not well. But I need... I need men of strength to surround me. What is your plan, Mr. Stewart? Those who have marched with me will share my inevitable triumph. Marched with you where? When? We are known as the Guy Fawkes Society. Can you imagine why? Quite evident. Ah. Guy Fawkes, a deserter, was smuggled back into England by a group of conspirators in 1605. Yes, yes. They plotted to overthrow James II and his government. Overthrow him. They planned to do this by concealing a huge store of gunpowder beneath both houses of <laughs> Parliament. Yes. They intended to blow up both houses and stage a coup d'etat. Ah. Their plan was exposed. And on November the 4th of 1605, they were captured and imprisoned. I dare say... You have revived the Guy Fawkes plan. Yes, yes, I have. Guy Fawkes Day is just 48 hours away. We've dug secret tunnels in the proper places. In just 48 hours, Guy Fawkes' plan to blow up Parliament, its members, and the royal family will become a reality! <laughs> Well, Dr. Watson, Mr. Holmes has uncovered a breathtaking scheme. Yes, he certainly has, Mr. Harris. And you've provided me with just the word I've been seeking. Well, what word is that? Breathtaking is the word for Clippercraft clothes. Subject on which you're well qualified to speak, sir. Won't you? Thank you, Dr. Watson. Men who used to spend small fortunes on their clothes are now wearing expensive-looking Clippercraft suits. Because Clippercraft gives them all the handsome looks and long, dependable wear they demand without digging deep into their savings. Why, they pay only forty and forty-seven fifty for Clippercraft suits you'd swear cost twice as much. Really fine fabrics and top-notch tailoring are unheard of at prices as low as Clippercraft. Then what's the trick? Well, what do you suppose happens when more than twelve hundred of this country's finest independent stores from coast to coast, stores you can trust? concentrate their huge buying power. You're absolutely right. Their combined purchasing power drastically cuts the cost of manufacturing and distribution. Doesn't take an adding machine to figure out how Clippercraft's unique operation saves you money. Or why Clippercraft suits are such terrific values at only 40 and 47.50. That's why men who know insist on Clippercraft clothes. So be sure to visit the Clippercraft store in your city. These leading stores in the metropolitan area are proud to add their names to Clippercraft in your suits, top coats, and sport jackets. 
In Manhattan, Saks 34th, Broadway at 34th. John Wanamaker Men's Store is Broadway at 8th and 67 Liberty Street. In Brooklyn, Abraham and Strauss. In Newark, New Jersey, Boulevard Men's Shop, Kresge, Newark. And in Jamaica, the B&B Clothes Shop, 16408 Jamaica Avenue. Now shall we return to the Guy Fawkes Society, Dr. Watson. We most certainly shall, Mr. Harris. Holmes left the dank, dirty cellar where he'd held his bizarre rendezvous with Douglas Stewart. He returned to 221B Baker Street and recapitulated his experience for Good gracious, Holmes, a plan to blow up both houses of Parliament. I can hardly believe it. Shall we inform Scotland Yard of your discovery? Not just yet, Watson. Impetuosity is a trap into which we must not fall. If the police should intervene at this point, Stuart and his vile henchmen would simply protest their innocence and elude justice. They must be captured with the evidence. Ah, I see. You're waiting to determine their plan of operation. Uh, then you'll strike. Exactly. And I shall have that information this evening when the entire membership of the society convenes. In that same waterfront spot where the renegade Stuart has his headquarters. As a neophyte, I've been invited to attend their ritual. Well, Holmes, haven't they questioned you about your own reliability? <laughs> Extensively. I imagine Gerardo was impressed, eh? Quite. Therefore, I'm off to the foul cellar where the chief lieutenants of the Guy Fawkes Society meet in unholy conclave. I see you've joined us. I'm glad. Are you, Maud? Douglas told me that he's pleased you've joined us. I appreciate the accolade. Douglas tells me everything. He does? Yes. We sit by the river talking. He tells me about what he'll give me when he's in the palace. A maid of my own, perfume, some fronds. He must be very fond of you. Fond as he can be of anyone, I guess. He thinks about his plans, mostly. Sometimes he doesn't see me for weeks. Oh, he's Gerardo. Wine, Maud. Thank you, Gerardo. Some for you, too. Ah, Burgundy. Pomar. We do not drink until the leader enters. Then he will propose the toast. There he is. Pilot! The leader speaks. Everyone, ride. We raise our glasses in praise. In praise! To Guy Fawkes! Guy, Guy Fawkes! To his fearless crew, to Robert Tatesby! Tatesby! John Wright! Right! Thomas Winter! Winter! Quiet! I want each of you to pay close attention. Tunnels are ready, Gerardo? Yes, sir. Good. For those of you who are new, my most trusted men have dug tunnels. <laughs> Where are the tunnels, Mr. Stewart? We work down from the back of the tea room on Parliament Square, Mrs. Ward's tea shop. The tunnels cut across the corner of Parliament Square and point directly to the House of Lords and the House of Commons. And what do you plan to use to destroy the houses? Dynamite! <laughs> Tomorrow night, we shall celebrate Guy Fawkes' path along with the rest of England. While they burn Fawkes in effigy in the streets, we shall set off the dynamite! We meet at Mrs. Ward's tea shop tomorrow night at ten o'clock. Do you understand exactly what you're to do, Watson? Yes, exactly, Holmes. I shall tell the story to the Assistant Commissioner of Police and request that he send a special squad. You'd like them to hide around the corner from the tea shop, eh? Precisely. 
and you must try desperately to convince him that his constables are to be armed. I realize it's an extraordinary demand, but perhaps he'll sense the danger. Oh, by Jove, Holmes, he may not believe the story at all. He may not do a blessed thing. Oh, we must risk it. Remember, Stewart's asked me to meet him at the warehouse. He, Gerardo, and I will then proceed to the tea shop. There we'll meet the others. At ten. If the police will co cooperate, they should be at their posts at nine. Holmes, you're running an unspeakable risk. Wouldn't it be wiser for both of us to try to convince the police to handle this themselves? And allow them to make a botch of it? No, Watson, I must be on the scene myself. Shouldn't you at least take along a revolver, a weapon of some sort? Gerardo might decide to examine everyone entering the warehouse. No, Watson, I shall merely be accompanied by my second closest friend, my Meerschaum pipe. Good evening, Stuart. Maud. Hello. Gerardo. Is everything in Redden? Yes, yes. I have a carriage waiting outside this warehouse. We will be driven to the tube. Excellent, Mr. Stewart. You may distribute the weapons, Gerardo. Maud, you will wait here in the warehouse. When it is over, I shall send them. All right, Daddy. You have my revolver, Gerardo? Yeah, it is. Give it to me. And I? Oh, we're not giving you a gun. Why not, Mr. Stewart? I would feel better if you were not armed. Mr. Sherlock Holmes? Let me kill him now, Mr. No. Stewart. No, Gerardo, no. Ever since his own face was burned off, Holmes, Gerardo enjoys giving the same experience to others. You lied to us, Mr. Holmes. You've been lying all along. We're not exactly fools, Holmes. That story you told Gerardo about your criminal background, we took the trouble to verify it. Oh, you're going to the field. Then after we set off the dynamite, we shall leave the tea room. But you will remain locked inside. You lied to me, Holmes. Everyone lies to me. Stand up, Holmes. If you try any tricks, I'll slit your throat. Just as you slit Harold Pickering's The Link Boy? Yes. That was your handiwork, wasn't it, Gerardo? Pickering, with a keen professional interest in even the vaguest rumor concerning Parliament must have taken up the scent to your society one evening, perhaps in the pub where Maud sings. He ran to me to bring the news, and you followed him. My housekeeper reported that one of the assailants was repulsively ugly. I could make you look just like me. I would like to... Get away from him, Gerardo. Come on. We're leaving for the theater. You first, Holmes, and remember, I have my finger on the trigger of my gun. Maud, stay here. You'll have word to us. Good luck, Douglas. We're leaving now, Holmes. Not much later, because I've taken an extra precaution. Since you might have notified the police that our maneuver is scheduled for ten, I've sent out word that we will set off the dynamite one hour earlier at nine. Come Carriage is waiting. <laughs> The tea room is just around the corner, Mr. Stewart. You told Mrs. Ward to lock up earlier this evening, Gerardo? Yes. Well, Holmes. So you finally met someone who is your mental superior. Don't move. My gun is just a few inches from your head. Gerardo and I have a very good view of you from this back seat. Oh, I had no evil intentions in moving, Mr. Stewart. I yes. merely intended to light my pipe. It's gone out. Do you mind? Go on most considerate of you. 
Here's the theorem. Step out, Holmes. Very well. Walk to the door of the tea room. That's it. Right, right. I want to have a look here on the street. See anyone? No. All quiet. Some of the men must be here by now. Is that Mr. Stewart tonight? Come in. We're all in the back of the shop. Walk in, Holmes. Certainly. Close the door, Gerardo. Don't lock it. We'll have to run out once we set the fuse. Yes, in. yes. Let's all go to the back. Gathered you here an hour earlier because we were almost betrayed. Yes. This gentleman standing before us, whom we took into our ranks, is Sherlock Holmes, the detective. He is to be left here just before we set off the banquet. The fuses are quite long. They'll allow ample time for us to quit the shop and run a safe distance. Has the position of the dynamite been checked? Yes, sir. Ready, sir. We reassemble 30 minutes after the explosion. We meet at the warehouse. I shall be the last man to leave. I'm reserving for myself the pleasure of knocking Mr. Holmes in behind me. I'm complimented, Mr. Stewart. Are we ready? Yes, right. Light the fuses, Gerardo. I say anyone inside? This is the law. There's a carriage caught fire out here. Belong to anyone back there? The alarm, constable. Spread the alarm. Put up, Holmes. Oh, you jersey. The lamp. Holmes has smashed the lamp. Light. Come on, light another lamp. We cannot see. The door, the door. Holmes will run to the door. Stop it. Too late. I see his shadow out there. There you go. Look. Look outside, police. Barricade that door, Gerardo. Start firing. Fire, fire, fire. Get down, get down. They have guns out there. Holmes, I never thought you'd leave that tea shop alive. Oh, I did, Watson. Oh, it's a magnificent job you've done. Stuart and Gerardo have been taken to the morgue. Rest of the crews packed off to prison. You set fire to that carriage outside the shop, didn't you? Of course. I was in the front seat with the driver. He was preoccupied with his horses. Stuart and Gerardo, to keep an eye on me, purposely sat in the back. They could see most of me, but it was comparatively easy to drop a bit of hot ash from my pipe onto the upholstery. I knew that within a minute or two, the carriage would catch fire. It would attract your attention, watching from the corner with the raiding party, or that of the constable on the beat. He poked his head in, sure enough. I shall never cease admiring your quick-wittedness, Holmes. Neither shall I, my dear Watson. Neither shall I. Watson, the Guy Fawkes Society was certainly a blood-curdling experience. <laughs> now, might we have an inkling about our adventure with Holmes for next week? Well, next week, Mr. Harris, I shall relate to you the adventure of Black Peter. It involves a steel harpoon, a dead pig, a proposed Arctic trip, and an advertisement for a murder. And I'm quite sure you'll enjoy it. You shall be here in your study promptly at the same time next week, Dr. Watson. 
for the adventure of Black Peter. The makers of Clipper Craft clothes and more than 1,200 stores from coast to coast have brought you another in the new series of broadcasts featuring the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes. Our stories are based upon the character Sherlock Holmes, created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and the program is produced and directed by Basil Lockridge. Sherlock Holmes is played by John Stanley, Dr. Watson by George Spelton. This week's story was written by Howard Merrill, with special music by Albert Berman. If you don't know your Clippercraft dealer, write Clippercraft, 200 Fifth Avenue, New York City. Be sure to listen next week to Sherlock Holmes in The Adventure of Black Peter. Cy Harris speaking for Clippercraft Clothes. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. All right, Constable. I'll deal with this. Sir? No, gentlemen. I am Inspector Martin of the Norfolk Constabulary. And this is a restricted area. No, your name, please. I'm Dr. John Watson, and this is Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Mr. Holmes? But this is astonishing. The crime was only committed at three this morning. How in the world did you hear about it so quick? We didn't hear about it. We anticipated it and came in the hope of preventing it. How did Mrs. Cubitt meet her death? Mrs. Cubitt? Mrs. Cubitt is still alive. Still alive? Thank God. Well, then what crime has taken place here? Uh, First, sir, are you acting for the lady? No, for her husband. He's extremely concerned for Mrs. Cubitt's safety. Well, Mr. Holmes, I'm sorry to have to inform you that it's your client who's been murdered by his wife. The Dancing Men by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Dramatised for radio by Bert Cools With Clive Medicine as Sherlock Holmes and Michael Williams as Dr. John Watson and featuring Christopher Good as Hilton Cubitt and Diana Hunter as Elsie Cubitt The Dancing Men It's a terrible business She's for the gallows if she lives. What do you mean? Her condition's critical. The doctor's with her now. Oh, after she killed him, she shot herself. Why in the name of heaven? Oh, well, that's the question. <laughs> now, gentlemen, you say you had prior knowledge that something was going to happen here? We did. You must have important evidence that I lack. Only the evidence of the dancing men. The dancing men? I'll explain it to you later. Later? But, sir, if it's relevant... Inspector? Hmm? Will you associate Mr. Holmes in your investigation, or would you prefer that he work independently? Well, I'd be proud to feel that we were acting together. In that case, if you let him do things in his own fashion, he'll share the results with you as soon as he can. Oh, very good, Doctor. But uh, I must say, this does seem a perfectly straightforward affair. Like I said, the only mystery is why she did it. By all accounts, they were the model of a happy couple. Oh, Hilton, this is wonderful. Yes, isn't it? Imagine, ruling over a country for 60 years. Have you ever had a king that long? I don't think so. 
No, I'm sure of it. <laughs> and they say that women are the weaker sex. Will we be able to see her from here? We certainly should. The whole thing's just amazing. Don't you have anything like this at home? This is my home now, Hilton. I told you. Of course. Forgive me, Miss Patrick. <laughs> What? What's so funny? You are Mr. Cubitt. <laughs> Why won't you call me Elsie? It wouldn't be proper. After four whole weeks? Then when would it be proper? Four months? Four years? Well... Come on, Hilton. What does your English etiquette say? When can you call me Elsie? Exactly how serious are Mrs. Cubitt's injuries? According to the doctor, the bullet's still lodged in the front part of her brain. He's telegraphed to London for a specialist surgeon. Mm, if the operation's successful, when will she be able to talk? Perhaps never. There's a strong chance she'll be affected mentally. Damn. How was Mr. Cubitt shot, Inspector? Straight through the heart. Where were the bodies? In the study. In what position? He was faced up in the centre of the room. She was crouching near the window. Yes. Where was the weapon lying? Midway between them. Then why have you assumed it was the lady who fired? Why not her husband? She had powder burns on her forehead where the gun was fired at very close range. There were none on him. Indeed. So, he was face up and she was crouching. Um, who found him, Inspector? Oh, the maid Saunders and Mrs King, the cook. Do you want to examine the room now, Mr Holmes? Mm, uh, no, not yet. I, I want to talk to the staff. <laughs> oh, look at that one. He looks just like your friend the Reverend. And he waddles the same way. Look. <laughs> oh, Miss Cubitt. You can't know how refreshing it is to meet someone who doesn't weigh every word before she speaks it. And you can't know how much I've enjoyed these last weeks. How about you, Hilton? Have you enjoyed your holiday in the big city? Oh, yes. Good. That's good. My dear. Yes, Hilton? <sighs> What's wrong? I'm afraid you'll think me an old fool. I believe that's very unlikely. But why don't you ask me a question, Hilton? Then you'll find out for sure. I was woken up by an explosion. An explosion? You mean a gunshot? Oh, well, obviously that's what it was, sir. But it did seem extremely loud. In the stillness of the house. Yes, perhaps. Uh, well, carry on, Mrs. King. Uh, and then, as I was getting out of bed, there was another one. Another explosion? Well... Yes. I thought perhaps that one was further away. Yes. Did you hear them too, Saunders? Yes, sir. Just like Mrs. King said. Mm, and then we went downstairs together. The hall was full of smoke and the smell. Smell? Oh, the gunpowder. How did you know which room your master and mistress were in? Well, the study door was open, sir, and the candle was burning on the table. I see. Did you go in or did you stay in the doorway? Oh, well, we went in, sir. The master was lying there, not moving... And the mistress, all covered in blood. It was horrible to see. It must have been a terrible experience for both of you. I'd never seen a dead person before, sir. Was never. Mrs. Cubitt unconscious when you found her? <sighs> Mrs. King? <laughs> uh, I realise that this is uh, painful for you, but it's essential that you tell me everything. When you went into the study, was Mrs. Cubitt still conscious? Yes, sir, she was. Ah. Did you say anything or make any effort to speak? Well, it's my belief she was trying to say something, sir, but it was beyond her strength. Of all the bad luck. Holmes. Mr. Holmes, sir. Hush, girl. No, 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 Mrs. King, please. What do you want to say, Saunders? Well, 
begging your pardon, sir. But what they're saying, that my mistress killed the master, well, it just can't be true, sir. She couldn't do it. She wouldn't, not in a thousand years. You must believe that. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Madame. Uh, Monsieur. Well, my dear, to the future. Oh, yes, to the future. Mm, that's very good. Thank you, Hilton. I've never had a better excuse to drink champagne. Nor I. Elsie, my dear, forgive me, but is everything all right? I'm the one who should be asking for forgiveness. I'm spoiling this beautiful dinner. What's wrong? May I help? Hilton, there's something I want to say to you. Go on. I've had some very disagreeable associations in my life. I want to forget all about them. The past is very painful to me. My dear... If you take me, Hilton... If? If you take me, you'll take a woman who has nothing that she need be personally ashamed of. But you'll have to take my word for it. Promise me you won't ever ask about anything that has happened before we met. If you can't promise, if that's too hard, then go back to your Norfolk and leave me here alone. I've booked the carriage for 10.30 tomorrow morning. We don't want to be late at the registry office. Thank you. Thank you. Now, let's have some more champagne. The windows in the study, were they open? There's only one, Mr Holmes. It was closed and fastened. You can confirm that, Mrs. King. Uh, yes, sir. You said that the hall was full of smoke. When you left your bedroom, did you smell the gunpowder straight away, or not until you arrived downstairs? Oh, straight away, Mr. Holmes, sir. Uh, yes, sir, that's the truth. As soon as I came out, it hit me. Ah, a significant detail, Inspector. Mm. I commend it to your attention. And this is Mrs. King, my... Ah, cook. Mrs. King? Ma'am. <laughs> it's going to take me a while to get used to that. Yes, ma'am. Mrs. King's steak and kidney pudding is unequalled in the county. I love steak and kidney pudding. <laughs> I hope there's someone here as good at letting out dresses. Oh, that would be Saunders, ma'am. This is Saunders, my dear. The housemaid. Hello, Saunders. Ma'am. Are you really good with a needle? Oh, that's not for me to say, ma'am. Oh, come on. Don't be modest. Mrs. King? Best I've ever seen, ma'am. Well, bring me some of your work after dinner tonight, Saunders. I'd like to see it. Ma'am? If I'm going to be a proper English lady, I'm going to need a lady's maid. Now, aren't I? Oh, yes, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. <laughs> Good. Thank you all for your wonderful welcome. I'm going to be very happy here. There. Two cartridges fired, you see? Yes, indeed. And it was lying... Exactly... Uh, here. Here. Ah, oh, yes. Here. Doctor? Ah, at least has a good chance it was painless. Death was instantaneous. It's likely. According to a local doctor, the bullet struck him in the chest, he collapsed backwards and fell as you see him. Yes, I'd agree with that. 
The bullet's still in his body, Holmes. And the bullet that injured the lady is still in her brain. That's correct. So, two shots fired and two bullets accounted for. Exactly. Then how do you explain the bullet that struck the edge of the window here? By George. However did you see that? Because I looked for it. Elsie, my dear. What is it, Hilton? A letter for you. For me? From Chicago. Here you are. Thank you. I shall be in my study until lunch. Enjoy your book. This turns the whole case around. If a third shot was fired, a third person must have been present. Yes, quite so. Well, who was he? I mean, how did he get away? All the doors and windows were fastened. Well, when Mrs King and Saunders left their rooms, they were immediately conscious of the smell of gunpowder. Yes, you see, that was important. <laughs> I'm afraid I didn't quite follow it. It was only moments after the guns went off. The fumes couldn't possibly have spread so rapidly without a through draft. Ah, so when the shots were fired... This window must have been open. Not all of the shots, necessarily. But how did it come to be shut when the servants arrived? Uh, Watson, you'll confirm that a person in shock frequently performs the most mundane, everyday tasks. Quite unconsciously, I mean. Such as closing a window. Yes, that's quite true. Hmm. By George. Now, is this Mrs. Cubitt's handbag? Yes, it is. Hmm. Has it been moved? Only just enough to examine the contents. That's exactly where it was dropped. Thrown. You can see where it struck the edge of the desk before it fell. Yeah. Fascinating. What's in it? Good heavens. How much, Inspector? Twenty, fifty pound notes, gentlemen. Gracious me. A thousand pounds. A singular lady. <gasps> oh, Hilton. Oh, my dear. Did I startle you? No. No, of course not. Isn't it a lovely day? Yes. Have you seen the stable boy? No. Not this morning. Why? I want to give him a piece of my mind. Young Terraway's been chalking damn silly pictures on one of the windows. Pictures? What sort of pictures? Holmes, this third gunshot. Huh? How is it that Mrs. King and Saunders didn't hear it? They did. Mr. Holmes? Uh, Watson, Mrs. King's testimony, if you would. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes, here we are. I was woken by an explosion, and you said... An explosion? You mean, you mean a, a gunshot? Well, obviously, that's what it was, sir. But it did seem extremely loud. Let's carry on, Mrs. King. And then, as I was getting out of bed, there was another one. Another explosion? Uh, well, yes. But she wasn't sure. She wasn't at all, sir. No, thank you, Watson. You see, Inspector. I, I, I'm sorry, sir, but I'm still in the dark. Forgive me, but is this the way you always work together? Uh, yes, yes. The important point is exactly what Mrs. King was uncertain about. She could hardly have been in doubt that there was a second, sir. It was the nature of it that made her hesitate. Um, I thought perhaps that one, that's the second one, yeah. was further away. Now, it wasn't further away. It simply wasn't as loud as the first. An explosion followed by an ordinary gunshot. But, of course, it wasn't an explosion. 
It was two guns going off simultaneously. By George! Well, it explains everything. Gentlemen, I don't know what to say. This is wonderful. Yeah. I rather think we've exhausted all this room can teach us. Let's see what fresh evidence the garden has to offer. Look at that. And to think I wasn't going to check out here at all. It's never wise to accept the first conclusion that presents itself. What can you read from the footmarks? Uh, let us see. Yes, a man, tall but not heavy. It's probably not old. Now, as he approaches very cautiously, to the right window, it is. Yes, stands here for uh, yes some little time, and then, yeah, runs off. Look at this. What have you found? A cartridge from the third bullet. Oh, the gun had an ejector. Yes, this is American. Yeah. I think, Inspector, that our case is almost complete. Hmm. <sighs> Beg pardon, sir. May I speak to you? Of course, child. Come in. Thank you, sir. What is it? It's the mistress, sir. I'm really... We're all really worried about her, sir. Yes, Saunders, so am I. Forgive me, but is she ill, sir? Should we send for Dr Cartwright? No, Saunders, I don't think that a doctor can help. Isn't there anything we can do? Yes. Yes, I believe there is. Tell Arthur I shall want the trap first thing in the morning. I'm going to London. Inspector, there are several points that I've not been able to explain to you yet. You uh, said something about dancing men. Now that I've got so far, I'd best proceed on my own lines and clear the whole matter up once and for all. Oh, just as you wish, Mr Holmes. So long as we get our man. Doctor, heck. Well, we shall, we shall. Yes, I have all the threads in my hand. Oh, that's good enough for me. Now, first of all, there's an, an inn or an hotel in the neighbourhood known as Elridge's. Yeah. Oh, uh, I, I'm sorry, sir. No, there isn't. <laughs> Not that I've ever heard of. There must be. Assemble the staff. I've lived here all my life, sir. There's no such inn. I'm sorry, gentlemen. There's old Ted Elridge. Ted Elridge? Who's he? Well, he's a farmer, sir. That's right. Though Lord knows he's not so active these days. I haven't heard word of him in a twelve-month or more. Is it a, a lonely farm? Oh, very lonely, oh, sir. Perhaps they haven't heard of what happened here during the night. Well, maybe not, sir. Hmm. Saunders, what is in a note there? Tell the stable boy to saddle up. Well, this whole thing's out of our hands now. Out of our hands? Yes, for the present. If you'd like to stroll with us a while, I think we can help you pass an interesting and profitable hour. The first we knew of this whole business was when Mr. Cubitt engaged Holmes to look into the mystery of the dancing men. The dancing men? Well, they keep cropping up, whoever they are. I've seen neither hide nor hair of any dancing men. And it's time that situation was rectified. The dancing men. But... It's just a child scribble. Just a child scribble. 
That's exactly what I thought. And why do you attribute any importance to it, Mr. Cubitt? I never should, Doctor. But my wife does. This child's scribble is frightening her to death. Oh, it's nothing. String of matchstick men. Was this sent to Mrs. Cubitt? Yes. It was the second manifestation. The second? What was the first? They were chalked on the windowsill. It must have been done during the night. What did you do? Had them washed off. I thought nothing of it. Until I just happened to mention them to Elsie. Whatever's the matter, my dear? You're sure, Hilton? You're sure that's what they were? Of course I'm sure. Why are you so concerned? I told you, it's just the stable boy. Hilton, I want you to promise me something. Of course, Elsie. Whatever you want. If it happens again, if any more come, I want to see them. Straight away. I don't mind telling you, gentlemen, I was amazed that she should take it so to heart. It's a thousand pities that we don't have a copy of the first drawings. Did your wife recover from her shock, Mr. Cubitt? Not entirely, Doctor, no. She was on edge all the next week. As if she were expecting something to happen. Exactly so. And when it did... My dear. What is it? I just found this lying on the sand dial. Look. Let me see. <sighs> she fainted just from the sight of this? <laughs> that doesn't sound like the woman the staff have described to me. Quite. Level-headed, independent and strong was Mr. Cupid's own assessment. So you can understand his anxiety. That was yesterday morning, gentlemen. Since then, she's looked like a woman in a dream. I swear there's terror lurking in her eyes. Mm, did you consider going to the police? They'd have laughed at me. But I know that you won't laugh at me. You'll tell me what to do. I'm not what you'd call rich, Mr. Holmes. But I'd spend my last copper to shield my wife from danger. Don't you think that your best plan would be to make a direct appeal to your wife? Hmm? To ask her to share her secret with you? A promise is a promise, Mr. Holmes. If Elsie wanted to tell me, she would. It's not for me to force her confidence, but I'm justified in taking my own line. And I will. Then I'll help you. With all my heart. What did you do? Well, it was obvious that these hieroglyphics had a meaning, but this one sample was so short that I could do nothing. We told Mr. Cubitt to come back here. With instructions, presumably, to make a copy of any fresh dancing men messages. I, uh, I take it we can call them messages? Exactly so, Inspector. How long did you have to wait? A fortnight. I tell you, gentlemen, this business is killing my wife by inches. It's as much as flesh and blood can stand. Take this, Mr. Cubitt. Thank you, Doctor. Mr. Holmes, my Elsie is wearing away before my eyes. Uh, has she said anything yet? No, sir, she hasn't. <laughs> Elsie? Elsie, where are you? Oh, there you are. Why are you sitting all by yourself? Hello, Hilton. Oh, my love. If only you knew how it hurts me to see you so miserable. I do know it. I do. Hilton? My dear? Your family... It, it's a very ancient one, isn't it? It is. The name goes back centuries. Centuries? 
I know you've always taken great pride in your reputation and your honour. Well, yes, of course. What would happen? Just supposing... Go on. I can't. Forgive me. She simply couldn't bring herself to say any more. I dare say I was too clumsy with her. No, no, I, I think not. <clears throat> you said in your wire that you'd found out several things for yourself. A good deal, Mr. Holmes. I've several fresh dancing men pictures for you. Ah. Three of these are identical. Oh. What? Oh, thank you. And more important, gentlemen, I've seen the fellow. What? He'd seen the man who'd been drawing them? Yes. But I should give you the events in order. Now, firstly, the messages. Oh, uh, well, they mean no more to me than the first one, I'm afraid. Did uh, Mrs. Kubit see these? No, her husband had them washed off as soon as he'd copied them. Oh. And then he decided on more drastic action. Oh, Elsie, good God, you shouldn't sneak round like that. What are you doing up at this hour? I couldn't sleep. Come to bed. Not until I've discovered who's doing this to you. I've told you. It's just some sort of stupid joke, that's all. Some sort of joke? A practical joke. You shouldn't take any notice. I can't believe you know what you're saying. Hilton, if it really annoys you, why don't we... Go away somewhere. What? We could travel. A holiday. Good things happen on holidays. Be driven out of our own house. <gasps> what is it? What's wrong? Come to bed. We'll talk about it in the morning. What did you see? Elsie, let go of me. Come to bed. Please. Let go, I say. <gasps> there's someone out there. No, there's no one. Him, don't. He's gone. It sounds to me that she was more concerned about this stranger's safety than her husband's. This is beginning to look rather sordid. I'm afraid that Mr. Cubitt was of the same opinion, Inspector. Well, it wouldn't be the first time. Anyway, now you had a lot more of these figures. Did that help at all? Yes, if these symbols are purely arbitrary, it may well be impossible to solve, but yes, if they're systematic... What? Just a straightforward substitution code. Mm -hmm. One man equals one letter. One letter, exactly, yes, exactly. Why are some of them upside down? <sighs> Probably because it would be difficult otherwise to find 26 variations. I mean, once you've exhausted arms up, down, or bent, and legs the same, well, there's not much mm -hmm. left. True enough. Uh, <sighs> yes, I'm more concerned at the moment with why some of them appear to be carrying flags. Well, I suppose it could have been just another variation, like being upside down. But I don't imagine it was that simple. Uh, has it turned out, Inspector? Yes, it was. Yes, sir. The arm... The arm... Holmes, um, for goodness sake, have a break. Come and eat. Yes, soon, soon, soon. Yes, 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 yes. Yo! Whatever's the matter? Oh, what's become of my brain? Look, look, look. You see? There, and there, and there, and there. I don't follow. The flags. Each flag marks the end of a word. 
Oh, I should have seen that hours ago. After that, it was simple. Simple? Well, comparatively speaking. Hmm? I'm familiar with at least 160 different forms of secret writing, but this one, this one was new to me. Well, I can't imagine how you'd even begin. Well, everything hinges on the fact that E is the most common letter in the English alphabet. You'd expect to find it most often in any message, even a short one. Now, after E, the order's not so well marked, but speaking roughly, it's, um... T-A-O-I-N-S and H that come next. Oh, it helped that the lady's name was Elsie. Hmm. We had three messages with E blank 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 E as their final word. And so you got the L, the S and the I. Well, mm. what about the rest? Well, naturally, the more letters I got, the easier it became. There. Well done. Thank you. But... But what does it all mean? Well, it means that at least I can take a, a practical step at last. <coughs> uh, no. Oh. Watson, what's the matter? Well, aren't you going to ask me who I'm telegraphing? If I did, would you tell me? No. Mr. Worthy. In the business. <laughs> hmm. Exactly. So, no, I'm not going to ask you. It wouldn't be logical. Touché. Excuse me. Mrs. Hudson! So, there was some useful information in the messages. Vital information, as it turned out. And your telegram? Was to clarify a vital point. Ah. Yes, uh, of course. Mm. We spent an impatient couple of days waiting for the reply. Think of the empty house. What? As a title. The empty house. I don't like it. Ah, do you have a better suggestion? Ah. Damn. Who was it? Butcher's boy, late delivery. Ah. Look. <clears throat> Look, perhaps we should go there. Yes, we're... To Norfolk, of course. This telegram you're waiting for, is it really so crucial? To blunder in without all the facts could be as dangerous as doing nothing at all. I wasn't suggesting we should blunder anywhere. More dangerous. <sighs> then we've no option but to wait. None. Why hasn't he replied? I might be in a better position to answer that if I knew who he is. Mm. Uh, Watson, your patience puts me to shame. <laughs> A drink? Uh, uh, yes, 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 thank you. Enforced inactivity gives the opportunity for reflection and contemplation. It's a valuable thing and should be welcomed with joy. Really? Uh, so the theory says. Mm. Here. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, two... Hmm. Patience. Yes, I'll drink to that. Mm. <clears throat> 
Another theory says the patience is always rewarded. Huh? Do you believe it? Yes. Oh. <clears throat> the empty house. Yes. Good. Ah, yeah. oh, dear. <clears throat> Thank you, Mrs. Hudson. <clears throat> Not your reply? No, no, just, just some letters. Yeah. Yeah, this one's from Norfolk. Ah. Mr. Cupid. Hmm? More dancing men. Oh, thank you. Uh, hmm. Found this morning on the pedestal of the sundial. Elsie. Elsie. Uh, any new letters? None that aren't obvious from their context. We've let this affair go far enough. Look. The last train here had just gone. No, we came on the first available one this morning. And uh, no, the rest you know. Well, not really, Mr. Holmes. What are these messages? What's this whole affair about? Did you get an answer to your telegram? Uh, yes, as we were leaving. Uh, yes, I think we should go back inside. It's nearly time. You understand, Saunders? Yes, sir. Excellent. Off you go. Very good, sir. Oh, one last thing. Mr. Holmes? You were quite correct. Your mistress is entirely blameless in this whole affair. Thank you, sir. Uh, that'll be all. Gentlemen. Very well. Uh, Watson, mm. you asked the doctor to remain upstairs with his patient. I did. And everybody else is safely out of the way. Hmm. I think we're all set. There's a man coming up the path. Hmm? Oh, yes. Striding along as cool as you like. As if the place belonged to him. Yes, well, Inspector, you'll need your handcuffs. Right. Yes, very good. Now, leave the talking to me. Now, I think we should take our positions behind the door. Now, silence. In here, if you please, sir. Thank you. I suggest you remain exactly where you are. Just put out your wrists nice and slow. No! No, sir. I don't believe you're going just yet. It's hardly polite. Excellent. Excellent. Gentlemen, may I present Mr. Abe Slaney of the city of Chicago? And just who the hell are you? Unfortunately for you, I'm a close friend of Wilson Hargreave of the New York Police Department. God damn the man. Yes, I thought that name might mean something to you. Commissioner Hargreave has a high opinion of you, Slaney. The most dangerous crook in Chicago, no less. Well, gentlemen, you seem to have the drop on me good and proper. But I'm here at Mrs. Hilton Cubitt's invitation. Now, don't tell me she helped to set this trap. Mrs. Hilton Cubitt was seriously injured last night, and is fighting for her life. No, take it back. Say she's not hurt. She was found badly wounded by the side of her dead husband. This is a trick. It's nothing but lies. Why should we lie to you, Slaney? If she's hurt that bad, then who wrote this? What do you think you're doing? Take it easy, copper. I'm not going anywhere. Huh? Who wrote it? I did. <laughs> you think I'm a fool? No one but us knows the secret. What one man can invent, another man can discover. Lies. 
All lies. No, sir. The truth. I'm here, Abe Slaney. At Elridge's. Come, Elsie. Come, Elsie. Come, Elsie. Well, if I shot the man, he had his shot at me first, and there's no murder in that. But if you think I could have hurt that woman, then you don't know either me or her. I tell you, there was never a man in this world loved a woman more. You've a damn strange way of showing it. Who was this Englishman that he should come between us? She was pledged to me years ago. I had first right to her. I was only claiming my own. A woman is not a piece of property, sir. You've brought about the death of a noble and honorable man and driven his wife to despair. That's your record in this business, Mr. Abe Slaney. And you'll answer for it to the law. If Elsie dies, I don't care what becomes of me. And what if the lady lives? The best case you can make for yourself is the absolute truth. Are you aware that Mrs. Cubitt was suspected of the murder of her husband? No. The very least you owe to her is to make it clear that she was in no way responsible. Tell us exactly what happened here and why. There were seven of us in a gang in Chicago. And Elsie's father was the boss. He was a clever man. It was him who invented that code that would pass as a child's scrawl. Unless you happen to have the key to it. And Elsie learned it from him. Oh, she had his brains even when she was little. She learned a good few of our ways, but she couldn't stand the business. She had a bit of money of her own. Honest money. Yeah, honest money. So as soon as she was old enough, she gave us the slip and got away to London. Where you tracked her down and made her life a misery. How long have you been in this country? A month. I tried everything I could to get her to come away with me. And when your coaxing didn't work, you turned to threats. The final message, Inspector. Hmm. Elsie, prepare to meet thy God. That one worked. She sent me a note. I, I was to meet her here. Three o'clock this morning. Oh, Elsie. Abe. It's good to see you again. You've got to leave me alone. What? Well, you said to come here. Are you mad? You couldn't have thought I'd run away with you. Elsie, I love you. Doesn't that mean anything? And I love my husband. My husband, Abe. Now look. What the hell is that? It's money. All I've got. Take it and go. You think you can pay me off like some servant? I'm safe. Put it away, <laughs> damn you. No. I'll do it for you. There. Now go and get dressed. You're coming with me. No. You want no. to? You know you do. Don't you remember how good it was? Let go. Let go. Let go. What's going on? Hilton. I asked you a question. <laughs> Don't do anything stupid, old so man. This is him. The man you've been exchanging messages with behind my back. No. It's not anything like that. Don't try to shake me, madam. Help, hide your please. own guilt. Me. I've listened to you quite enough. Look here, mister. I don't want to use this. Abe, no! Keep back, Elsie! Oh. Abe, wait! Oh. Help me, my love. Oh, God. I'm sorry. 
The only part of what had happened here that was obvious to all. In her grief and her shame, the woman you claim to love tried to take her own life. Uh, take him away, Inspector. With pleasure. Come on, you. Can I see her first? No one can see her. The least disturbance could be fatal. Mr. Holmes. Inspector. If I ever again have an important case, I hope I'll also have the good fortune to have you by my side. Come on, Slady. Gentlemen. What does it say, your note to him? Uh, oh, simply come here at once. The content didn't matter, only that he was convinced that it came from the lady. Mm. So, the dancing men served a purpose for good at last. Yes, and you have something unusual for your notebook. Yes, indeed. But I doubt if I'll ever write it up. What? Well, we failed, didn't we? An innocent man killed, his wife at death's door. Yes, and there's something else. Something Slaney said. Oh, yeah. Will a jury see it his way, do you think? Well, it's impossible to say. Ah, in any case, speculation's pointless. We'll know soon enough. It's in other hands now. <sighs> yes, you're right, of course. But if I had any say in the matter... That's a lie, my friend. <sighs> Eight minutes past. 3.40 is our train. Abe Slaney was condemned to death at the winter assizes in Norwich, but his penalty was changed to penal servitude in consideration of mitigating circumstances and in the certainty that the dead man had fired the first shot. Of Mrs. Hilton Cubitt, I only know what I have heard, that she recovered entirely and that she remains a widow, devoting her whole life to the care of the poor and to the administration of her husband's estate. In The Dancing Men, Sherlock Holmes was played by Clive Medicine and Dr. Watson by Michael Williams. With Christopher Good as Hilton Cubitt, Diana Hunter as Elsie Cubitt, and John Garasio as Abe Slaney. Inspector Martin was played by Peter Tuddenham, Mrs. King by Jill Graham, and Saunders by Sue Broomfield. The violinist was Leonard Friedman. The Dancing Men was dramatised for radio by Bert Cools and directed by Patrick Rayner. Tonic and Cremel Shampoo present the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson and Tom Conway as Sherlock Holmes. Now suppose we begin by calling on Mr. Holmes' biographer and friend, the genial Dr. Watson. We find him in his comfortable firelit study, leaning back in his easy chair, ready to begin his story. The fire feels good tonight, doesn't it, Dr. Watson? Indeed it does, but sit down, Mr. Bell, sit down and let's get on with the story. You are in a hurry, aren't you? Well, I suppose I am. As a matter of fact, the adventure I'm going to relate was one of the most gruesome experiences I ever hoped to encounter. Perhaps I'd better not tell it after all. It 
Brings up memories oh, of... Oh, ter- come now, Dr. Watson. You're not going back on us now. You promised last week to tell us... Uh, what was the name of the story? The Adventure of the Devil's Foot. Oh, the Cornish horror. The very thought of it makes my blood run cold. I can hardly wait, Dr. Watson. But first, men, I'd like to remind you about this famous modern trend in hair grooming, which is preferred among top-flight executives and America's most successful men. It's called Cremel Hair Tonic. One of the many reasons Kreml has become such a nationwide favorite is that it never plasters the hair down with sticky goo, which makes your hair and scalp feel so dirty. It never gives hair that old-fashioned, greasy, patent leather look. You see, Kreml is a very highly specialized hair tonic. It contains a unique and utterly different combination of hair grooming ingredients, which is found in no other hair tonic. That's why Kreml keeps unruly hair so neatly in place longer with such a handsome, healthy-looking luster. What I especially like about Kreml is that after you use it, you can run your hand back over your hair and your hair never feels sticky or dirty. No greasy film comes off on your hand. Yet Kreml hair keeps hair in perfect order throughout the busiest day, always looking so handsome and well-groomed. K-R-E-M-L. Kreml hair tonic. Now, Dr. Watson... How about the Devil's Foot or the Cornish Horror? It was the spring of the year 1897. Holmes's iron constitution had shown some signs of giving way due to a particularly arduous and nerve-wracking winter. In March of that year, Dr. Moore Agar of Harley Street gave positive injunctions that Holmes get out into the country for a protracted rest. Well, the third week in March found us settled in a small cottage near Poldu Bay at the further extremity of the Cornish Peninsula. Isn't that rather a bleak country for convalescent, Dr. Watson? Bleak is putting it mildly. I've never known such grim surroundings, but it suited Holmes admirably. He seemed to blossom in that weird and foreboding fog-swept district. Just as natural perversion as I suppose. Oh, I dare say. Our little whitewashed cottage stood on a grassy headland. From its windows, we looked down upon the whole sinister semicircle of Mounts Bay, that old death trap, with its fringe of black cliffs and surge-swept reefs. In every direction there were traces of some vanished race which had left as its sole record strange monuments of stone. Holmes spent most of his time pottering round these weird ruins. Everything was going along peacefully until one morning our simple and healthy routine was violently interrupted. and We were precipitated into the middle of a series of gruesome and nerve-shattering events. Quite a surf this morning, eh, Watson? You can see the spray flung up against our windows, and we're a good hundred feet above sea level. I don't think I shall venture out today. Hmm. Bad weather. Old boy is certainly lashing himself into a fine frenzy. What do you mean, the old boy, Holmes? The devil, Watson. The devil himself. What are you raving about? Didn't I tell you that the natives hereabouts refer to that seething death trap down there as the devil's cauldron? They think the old gentleman himself lives there. How unsettling. Yes, a very interesting superstition. You know, Watson, this locality is supposed to have been the last resort of devil worship in England. Oh, really? Really? Many scientists believe that those huge prehistoric monuments of stone were part of a temple given over to the Prince of Darkness. Preposterous. Oh, I don't know. It's as logical as most of the theories that endeavor to explain their existence. The superstition goes on to say that when the devil was finally driven from his temple, he took refuge in the bay down there. Yes, 
They claim that on stormy nights you can hear his hoofbeats as he races up and down the rocks. Holmes, what are you trying to do? Give me a case of nerves. Hello, what's this? What's this? Someone is running up our path, his cloak flapping about like a giant bat. Why, it's that Tregenis fellow, the one who boards with the vicar. Mortimer Tregenis, eh? I wonder what's happened. Face as white as a sheet. Couldn't look more upset if he'd seen Beals above himself. Open the door, Watson. Mr. Holmes, thank heaven I find you at home. The most terrible thing has happened. I can scarcely believe it. Oh, sit down, my dear fellow, sit down. That's better. Now, perhaps you can tell us what has happened. My family, my, my sister, we were playing cards. Oh, slowly I... now, take your time. My family, my sister and my two brothers. It's too terrible. Why, just last night I was with them at the house. Tredanic warfare, it's called. All well and happy. We played cards. And now, without warning, I can't believe Easy, Tregenis, easy. There's a good fellow. I... I left them last night. My sister Brenda... My two brothers, Owen and George. What time was that? The the clock in the church steeple over at Polo was chiming ten o'clock as I closed the front door behind me. I'd left them all in the card room, laughing and in good spirits. And? This morning, being an early riser, I was out taking a walk before breakfast when Dr. Richards overtook me in his carriage with the news that he'd been sent for and the most urgent call from Tredanic Warfare. Something terrible had happened to my family. I jumped in beside him and he whipped up the horses... And what did you find? Oh, Mr. Holmes, it was terrible, ghastly. My two brothers and my sister, there in the card room, just as I had left them. But what a change. What a ghastly change. Yes? Brenda lay back stone dead in her chair. And my two brothers sat on each side of her, laughing and shouting and singing. The senses stricken clean out of them. And all three of them, my poor dead sister and my two demented brothers... Retained upon their faces an expression of ghastly horror, a, a convulsion of terror. How terrible. Yes. Dr. Richard was so overcome at the sight that he fell fainting into a chair. Hmm. Anyone else in the house besides your sister and brothers? Only Mrs. Porter, the old housekeeper. I presume it was she who found them this morning. Yes. She always goes through the house in the mornings, airing it out before the family comes down. When she reached the card room, the shock was too much for her. She's had a nervous collapse. We had to put it to bed. No wonder. An exceptional case. Most exceptional. That's what we thought. We could find no traces of strangers in or around the house. Nothing was stolen, nothing touched. The vicar believes you are the only one who can solve the case, Mr. Holmes. He insisted I come to you. I shall be only too glad to handle the matter, of course. But uh, first I must ask you a few questions. Anything, Mr. Holmes, anything. To begin with, Mr. Tregenis, why do you live with a vicar separated from your family? Well, as a matter of fact, we had a slight argument a few years ago about some property it was. But that was all settled long ago. We were on the best of terms. Now, Mr. Tregenis, about last night, uh, do you recall anything, anything at all, that was out of the ordinary? There was one thing that occurs to me. As we sat at the card table, my back was to the window. George was facing me. Suddenly I saw him look hard over my shoulder out of the window. I turned quickly... And just for a moment, I thought I caught a glimpse of something, something moving. Man or animal? I don't quite know. My brother said he had the same feeling. It's uncanny, that's what it is. Something came into that room, and that something killed my sister and dashed the light of reason from my brother's mind. Something devilish it was. If that should prove to be the case, I fear I shall be of very little assistance, Mr. Tregenis. But short of wrestling with his satanic majesty, I think perhaps we can solve your problem. 
Come, Watson. We'd best go down to Tredanic Water at once. This is the house, Mr. Holmes. Whose carriage is this coming down the drive with the blinds down? There's somebody in it. Listen. <laughs> My brothers. My poor brothers. It, it's Dr. Richard's carriage. He's taking them to Helston Asylum. It's too awful. My poor brother. Easy, Tregenis, easy. Pull yourself together. I, I'll do my best. Good man. Which are the windows of the card room? Uh, this one here. Oh, look out, Holmes. You've upset the washing can. Dear, dear, how clumsy of me. Sorry, Tregenis. I'm afraid I've drenched your boots. But no matter, Mr. Holmes, no matter. Shall we go in? Yes. I have seen all I need to see out here. This way. The card room is over here. Do you notice anything, Watson? No, I can't say that I do. This is the card room. Hmm. I see the window's still open. The housekeeper left it that way, I presume? Yes, she says it was locked on the inside when she came in. Quite so. I think we may close it now. Well, I'll do it, Holmes. No, let me. Candle's quite guttered out. Yes, Cards still on the table. They have not risen from their chairs, I take it, and you left at ten. That sets the hour of death at some time before eleven. Hmm. Fire burned out. Why fire? Had they always a fire in this small room on a spring evening? It was cold and damp last night, Mr. Holmes. The fire was lit shortly after my arrival. I see. Well, that seems to be about all. No disturbance of any kind... Strange. Oh, come along, Holmes. Come along. The room gives me the jumps. There's something about the atmosphere. As though death was still hovering in the air. I wonder. Come, Watson. We will return to our cottage. Should uh, anything occur to me, Mr. Tregenis, I shall communicate with you. <laughs> It won't do, Watson. It won't do. All the facts are negative. Well, do you think Mr. DeGennis's account of his actions last night was truthful? Quite, Watson. Quite. You remember the incident of this pilt watering can? I did that to obtain an impression of his foot. I take it you succeeded? I did. With that print as a sample, I was able to trace his movements last night. His story is correct. He left the house at about ten, went straight back to the vicarage and did not return. Nor did anyone else enter or leave that house. Then it uh, must have been the man or, or animal they, they thought they saw in the bushes. He must have returned and frightened them to death. There was no such man or animal, Watson. Last night was a dark night. Anyone who had the wish to frighten these people would be compelled to put his face against the glass before he could be seen. Well? There is a three-foot flower border outside the cardroom window. But there are absolutely no footprints there. Yes, but, but, but that means... It means... That... Mr. Tregenis' sister and her two brothers were alone when death struck the sister down and drove the brothers insane. But, Holmes, that would be supernatural. I hope not, Watson. Look, look, here I comes another not. visitor up our path. Stranger this time. Big, savage-looking fellow. That, my dear Watson, is none other than the famous Dr. Leon Sterndale. Sterndale, the lion hunter and explorer? Exactly. Oh, what's he doing in this neighborhood? Oh, I've heard he owns a little cottage about five miles down the coast. 
They tell me he lives there absolutely by himself when he isn't off on one of his expeditions. Never mind, Watson. I'll do the honors myself. Come in, Dr. Sterndale. Come in. Mr. Holmes? Yes. And this is my friend, Dr. Watson. How do you do? How do you do? Mr. Holmes, I've come to you about the tragedy to Danick Walther. The police are utterly at a loss. You have a keener brain. Pardon me, Dr. Sterndale, but why are you so concerned in this affair? Well, you see, during my many residences in this locality, I've come to know the family of Tregenis very well. I see. Their, their horrible fate has been a great shock to me, Mr. Holmes. I'm so sorry. As a matter of fact, I was on my way to Africa. I got as far as Plymouth when the news reached me this morning. I came straight back to help in the inquiry. But uh, that would make you lose your ship. One sailed for Africa this afternoon, if I'm not mistaken. I can take the next. When did you last see the Tregenis family, Dr. Sterndale? I saw Brenda, uh, Miss Tregenis, three days ago. Just as I was leaving for Plymouth. Oh. So you have been in Plymouth for the last three days? Yes, in Plymouth. But how did you get the news so quickly? Surely the Plymouth papers didn't carry an account of the matter in this morning's edition? I received a telegram. Telegram? Might I ask from whom? You're very inquisitive, Mr. Holmes. It is my business, Dr. Sterndale. Very well. The telegram was sent by the vicar, Mr. Roundkey. I see. And now, Mr. Holmes, have you reached any conclusions? Conclusions? No. That would be a trifle premature. But I have every hope of bringing this matter to a satisfactory termination. Satisfactory to me, that is. Would you mind telling me if your suspicions point in any particular direction? I, uh... I do not feel that this is the moment to answer that question, Dr. Sterndale. Oh, and I see that I've been wasting my time. I need not prolong this visit. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hmm. Close mouth fellow, Dr. Sterndale, isn't he, Holmes? He told me more than he realized, Watson. But he knows even more. How could he if he was in Plymouth? But was he, Watson? That statement is something for us to look into. In just a moment, we'll rejoin Sherlock Holmes as he endeavors to solve the strange mystery of Tadanic water. But first, men... Remember, if you want to keep your hair handsome and healthy looking, one of the first requisites is a hygienic scalp. So why settle for just any hairdressing when you can enjoy the extra advantages of a highly specialized hair tonic like Cremel? Cremel contains a special combination of hair grooming ingredients which is found in no other hair tonic. This is why it keeps unruly hair neatly in place longer with a rich, healthy-looking luster. Yet Kreml never gives hair that cheap, greasy, patent leather look. It never leaves hair feeling sticky, gummy, or dirty. Your hair and scalp always look and feel so clean with Kreml. And if your hair is so dry it breaks and falls when you comb it, start using Kreml at once. Let it make your hair feel softer, more pliable, and look as if it had some body to it. Kreml is also fine to lubricate a dry scalp. At the same time, it removes dandruff flakes. A quick massage with Kreml helps stimulate the cutaneous circulation of the scalp. Notice how alive, how invigorated your scalp feels. So for better groomed hair, a more hygienic scalp, change to Kreml at once. Buy a bottle of Kreml at any drug counter. 
Ask for an application at your barber shop. K-R-E-M-L, Kreml Hair Tonic. I say, Holmes, must you go on smoking that foul pipe? The atmosphere's so thick I can hardly see across the room as it is. Oh, dear, I feel depressed. Who knows what evil thing is talking abroad in, in this neighborhood? Light the lamp, Watson. It's the gathering twilight that makes it gloomy. Rubbish. Look here, Holmes. What about that Dr. Sterndale? Do you think he did it? No, Watson. I've been in communication with his Plymouth Hotel. His story was correct. He had been there for the past three days, and he did receive a telegram from the vicar this morning. Oh, and he couldn't possibly have had anything to do with the Tugenes tragedy last night. Quite. I didn't think he had a connection with the tragedy. But there is a connection with... Now what? Open the door, Watson. Ah, my dear vicar, come in, come in. Dear me, you look as though you'd seen a ghost. It's tracked him down. The curse of the family. He's dead. Dead with that same look of terror on his face. Who's dead? Mortimer Trigenis. In his study at the vicarage. Great Scott. My servant found him there, sitting beside his table, his face turned toward the window, and distorted with that same convulsion of fear that marked the features of his sister. Oh, my poor Paris. Satan himself is loose among us. We are devil-ridden, Mr. Holmes. Devil-ridden. This was his study, Mr. Holmes. Mm, depressing atmosphere. It was worse. I had the servant open the window. He's quite ill from shock, poor fellow. What a terrible look on Tregenis's face, Holmes. The whole body is contorted and convulsed in a very paroxysm of fear. You've never seen death in this form before, Watson? No, never. You know of no poison that would have this effect? Good heavens, no. Hmm. Lamp is lit. It's burning over an hour. Notes the oil consumed. And yet darkness has just set in. Did anyone call at the vicarage this afternoon? No. I was out myself, but my servant says he let no one in. Then Tregenis was alone when he... I wonder. The window was shut at the time of his death, but the lamp was lit. Curious. The window. Let's see. Window. Yes, by Jove, I think I found something. What's that you're putting in your pocket, Holmes? And the lamp. Of course, the lamp. Notice this powder which has been spilled on the base of the lamp? Red-brown powder. Give me an envelope, Watson. I must have these specks of powder. Why are you so excited about the powder, Holmes? Because it contains the solution of our mystery, Watson. It is the source and the solution. Holmes, you haven't touched your supper. Mm. What a foul night. The wind's rising again. Oh, have another cup of tea and be quiet. I don't want to be quiet. I want to talk. I'm tired of waiting here listening to that blasted wind and the roar of the water down there below. Why did you send for Dr. Sterndale? Because he is an authority on obscure African poisons. Poisons? Why are you interested in poisons? Watson, there are two striking points in common in both cases under observation. Yes? In both cases, the atmosphere of the room had a curious effect on the persons who first entered it. The housekeeper... And the vicar's servant were both overcome, as was the doctor who was called That's in. That's right, I hadn't thought of that. The room was still stuffy when we entered it. Right. And in each case, there was combustion going on in the room. The fire in the first case, the lamp in the second, and the lamp was not necessary. 
It was still daylight when it was lit. Yes, but I still don't see what... Something was burned in each case which produced an atmosphere causing strange toxic effects. An unknown poison. Good heavens. I believe we have a sample of that poison in the brown powder spilled on the base of the land. Well, how are you going to prove it? I'm going to burn some of that powder. Notice its effect. Just a small pinch of powder. Yes. Uh, perhaps you'd better leave the room, Watson. Leave you alone in here? Certainly not. I warn you, it's risky. Confound that wind. Come along, come along. Let's get it on with it and get it over. Very well. Uh, place your chair opposite mine. Then we can watch each other for developments. If anything alarming happens, we can end the experiment. All right. Come on. I'm ready. Good. I put a pinch of the powder into our lamp. Oh, I say, what a... What a filthy smell. Hmm. Musky, subtle, nauseous. Listen to the wind, Holmes. I'm afraid... I don't know why. That wind. I can feel my hair rising. Holmes, do you see it? That cloud bank, whirling, black and sinister. It's monstrous. It's concealing something, something too wicked to imagine. Holmes, it's coming nearer and nearer. Can't you smell it? Sulfur and brimstone. You hear that, Holmes? It's hoofbeats. Hoofbeats. I know what it is. I can see it. I can't stand this. It's too terrible. Watch it for the love of heaven. Don't get in. Don't breathe. I'll smash the window. I'll smash it. That's better. Breathe in, Watson. Breathe it in. It's good, clean air. Why, Joe, what a narrow escape. I had no idea it was so powerful. I thought I I saw... I I know. uh... It's a poison that affects the nerve centers of the imagination. The strain is enough to kill a man or drive him crazy. Hello, that's someone knocking at the door. Oh, sir. So that's what I heard. It yeah, seems cleared out. Good thing there was a high wind. I'll close the shutters and draw the curtains. Watson, can you open the door now? Yes, I think so. Phew, my, my knees are still shaking. Good evening, Mr. Holmes. You sent for me? Yes. Come in, Dr. Standale. Come in. Hmm. You, you look rather pale, both of you. Yes. We've... Uh, just been conducting a little experiment with the poison that killed Tregenis. You? Yes, Dr. Sterndale. Perhaps you'd like to tell us why you killed Mortimer Tregenis. I? Preposterous. You can't prove it? No. Let me tell you how you did it. You came over to the vicarage late this afternoon. You didn't want anyone to know you'd visited Tregenis. He was to let you in himself. But how could you attract his attention? You brought some pebbles with you, pink pebbles, from a heap beside your house. You threw these at the study window, where you knew Tregenis was working. I found some of these pebbles on the windowsill. Tregenis came downstairs, let you in himself. You had a talk with him, made him light his lamp, placed a pinch of the poison powder in the flame, and left. You're... You're right, Mr. Holmes. I did kill Mortimer Tregenis. But I'm not guilty of the other atrocity. I swear I'm not. I believe you, Dr. Sterndale. But you know who did it. Perhaps you'd better tell us about it. Very well. It was Mortimer Tregenis. What? He admitted it before I... Before he died. Mr. Holmes, I've been in love with Brenda Tregenis for many years. We were to have been married when my work in Africa was finished. I've lived so long in places where man is a law unto himself. 
He killed Brenda in cold blood. He killed her. I have nothing else to live for. By heaven, I do it again. How did Mortimer Tregenis get hold of the poison? It was something unusual, almost unknown. Yes, it was powdered Pes Diable. Pes Diable? Devil's foot, eh? Yes, a root found in Africa. Shaped like a foot, half human, half goat-like. I have the only specimen in England. And you showed it to Tregenis? Yes, he came over the other afternoon when I was packing. He was interested in my African curiosities, particularly this powder. How he took it, I can't say. I thought no more of the matter until I had received the vicar's telegram and learned how they died. I returned at once. I, looking into the tragedy, I was convinced Mortimer Tregenis was the murderer, that he'd done it to gain control of the family fortune. There was the crime, but what was to be his punishment? What jury would believe such a fantastic story? No. I decided to take the law into my own hands. Perhaps if you ever loved anyone, you'll know how I felt. Hmm. Dr. Sterndale, what were your plans when you set out for Plymouth? I had intended to bury myself in Central Africa. My work is only half finished. Go and finish the other half, Dr. Sterndale. I do not feel called upon to prevent you. What a gruesome story, Dr. Watson. Yes, next to the famous Hound of the Basketball Adventure, that was the most gruesome experience that we ever had. There's just one thing I'd like to know. What did you think you saw in that cloud of smoke? Mr. Burl, you'll have to believe me when I tell you it was too horrible to mention. Just to think of it is enough to make my blood run cold. Ladies and gentlemen, in a moment, Dr. Watson will be back to tell us about next week's story. Girls, Powers models are famous for their beauty and charm. And one of their most outstanding characteristics is their glorious, shining, bright hair. Now, here's how they keep it so shiny. Powers models use Cremel Shampoo. This amazing, beautifying shampoo has been especially developed to actually glamour bathe each tiny strand of hair, revealing all its natural glossy luster. Yes, and don't forget Cremel Shampoo is wonderful for washing children's hair, too. Of course it is, because there are no harsh caustics or chemicals in Cremel Shampoo, and its luxurious active foam thoroughly cleanses scalp and hair of all loose dandruff as well as the dirt. Girls, if you could only see how Powers Models hair fairly radiates natural glossy highlights, I'm sure you'd want to try Cremel Shampoo right away. You can get a bottle at any drug counter. K-R-E-M-L, Cremel Shampoo. Now, Dr. Watson, what about next week? Well, now, let me see. Next week. Next week, I think I'll tell you about the adventure... Of the unfortunate brides. Well, it sounds intriguing, Dr. White. It was, Mr. Bell. It was indeed <laughs> intriguing. It concerned a honeymoon in Scotland and a bridegroom who turned out to be a cold-blooded and ruthless killer. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was adapted by Edith Miser from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, The Devil's Foot. 
Nigel Bruce appeared by permission of California Pictures. Tom Conway through the courtesy of Eagle Lion Pictures. The Sherlock Holmes series is produced by Tom McKnight. This is Joseph Bell speaking for Kremel Hair Tonic and Kremel Shampoo. And inviting you to be with us next week at this same time. When Dr. Watson will tell us about the case of the unfortunate bride. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Uh, An anomaly which often struck me in the character of my friend Sherlock Holmes was that although in his methods of thought he was the neatest and most methodical of mankind, and although he also affected a certain quiet primness of dress, he was nonetheless in his personal habits one of the most untidy men that ever drove a fellow lodger to distraction. (laughs) Not that I'm the least uh, conventional in that respect myself. The, The rough and tumble work in Afghanistan... Coming on top of a natural bohemianism of disposition has made me rather more lax than befits a medical man. But with me, there is a limit. Holmes! Holmes, Ripley! There. Not bad, eh, Watson? It's a wonder to me Mrs. Hudson doesn't turn us out into the street, Holmes. It's all very well you're keeping cigars in the coal scuttle and tobacco lying about in the toe end of a Persian slipper and sticking your unanswered correspondence to the mantelpiece with a jackknife, but really, I do think pistol practice belongs in the open air. Well, Watson, I must say I'm surprised at you. A natural patriot like you should be proud to have VR adorning your sitting room wall. Bullet holes? (laughs) Holmes, you're incorrigible. Well, just look at this room. Oh? I hadn't noticed... Well, then it's about time you did. Chemicals all over the sideboard, criminal relics. That thing in the butter dish. I do wish you'd get it out of here. Oh, is it still there? Of course it is. Well, before weeks of it's left to you to get rid of it. And all these papers everywhere. Oh... If the time's lying heavy on your hands this evening, I suggest you do a bit of sorting out here and now. Well, come to that, I'll give you a hand. Oh, well, in the interest of peace. <laughs> Let me see now. Ah, yes. Yes, this old tin trunk should have room for a bit more. <laughs> so long since I opened it, but I seem to remember... Ah. Yes, I'd quite forgotten. Oh, no, don't start taking things out of it. Watson, if you knew what was in here, I think you'd want the whole lot out. What are they? The records of your early work? Yes, my boy. Oh, these were all done prematurely before my biographer had come to glorify me. Oh, oh your early cases. Oh, Holmes, I've often wished I'd notes of some, some of the... pretty little problems among these. The Tarleton murders... <laughs> Good. Case of Banbury, the wine merchant. A full account, Watson, of Ricoletti of the club foot and his abominable wife. Well, if I might just have a look at this. And the here are. Now, this really is something a little recherche. What is it? It looks like a box of toys. Here you are. Open it for yourself. Thank you. Crumpled bit of paper. 
old-fashioned brass key, a peg of wood, with a ball of string attached, and, uh, and three rusty old discs of metal. Well, my boy, what do you make of this lot? Well, it's uh, a curious collection. Very curious. And the story that hangs round it will strike you as more curious still. Well, these things have a history, then. They are history. They're all I have left to remind me of the episode of the Musgrave Ritual. You'd like to hear about it, no doubt. Well, I said... What? And leave all this litter lying about? Oh, come on, Holmes. Don't rag. So be it. Well, I've told you before how when I first came down from the university, my leisure time was all too abundant. Now and again, cases came my way, principally through introductions from old fellow students. Well, one day... I had a visit from one of them named Musgrave. Reginald Musgrave. The MP, the, the Sussex Musgrave. Quite right. Yes, he came from one of the oldest families in the kingdom. And you know, I never looked at his pale, keen face or the poise of his head without associating him with grey archways and mullioned windows and all the venerable wreckage of a feudal keep. <laughs> Holmes, do go on. Well, now, he'd always been interested in my methods of observation and inference. But I hadn't seen anything of him for four years until he walked into my room one morning. My dear Musgrave, do take a seat and tell me how all's gone with you. Oh, pretty busily, Holmes. You know, I became member for my constituency when my father died a couple of years ago. I had heard something. And I have the Hulson estates to manage, of course. Uh, but you, Holmes, I understand you're turning to practical ends, those powers which used to amaze us. Yes, I've taken to living by my wits. Well, I'm delighted to hear it. I, I don't mind saying I, I'd be glad of your advice. We've had some pretty strange goings-on down at Holston. The police have been able to throw no light upon the matter. Oh, only two peas to help you, Musgrave. Let me hear the details. Well, you must know that although I'm a bachelor, Holston's such a rambling old place, I have to give up a pretty big start. Naturally. Altogether, there are eight maids, cook and butler, two footmen and a boy. The, the, the garden and stables have a separate staff, of course. Of course. Now, of these servants, the one who'd been longest in our service was Brunton Butler. He was a young schoolmaster out of work when he was first taken up on our father. But he was a man of great energy and character. And he soon became quite invaluable to us. But uh, this paragon has one fault. He's a bit of a Don John. Ah. However, a few months ago, we were in hopes that he was about to settle down. He became engaged to Rachel Howells, our second housemaid. But he's thrown her over since and taken up with the head gamekeeper's daughter. I see what you mean about it. Uh, poor Rachel's a good girl, but of an excitable Welsh temperament. The business gave her a sharp touch of brain fever until yesterday she was going about the house like a black-eyed shadow of her former self. And is this the curious business you speak of? Well, that's only part of it. The first drama at Hurston was driven from our minds by a second one. Also concerning Brunton? Yes, I'm afraid, sir. One night last week, I found I couldn't sleep. I rose and lit the candle, intending to go on reading, and then realized that I left my novel downstairs, so I went down to get it. As I was approaching the dining room, I saw light coming from the open door of the library. Well, my first thought was burglars, and I took an old weapon off the wall before I went to see who was there. Who? Who's that? Who is it? It is I, sir. Brunton. Brunton? What are you doing here at this hour? What have you got there? Uh, 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 just uh, a map, sir. A map? Look here, that bureau of drawers open. 
Would you mind telling me what the devil is going on? It's nothing, sir. No, nothing, I assure you. Those are some of my family's papers. What are you doing with them? Well, I... So this is how you repay the trust we have reposed in you. You will leave my service tomorrow, Bantam. I... Very well, sir. If I may say one word, though, sir. Well? Mr. Lunsbury, sir, I... I can't bear disgrace, sir. I've always been proud about my station in life. Disgrace would, would, would kill me. If you cannot keep me after what has happened, then I beg you to let me give you notice and leave this house in a month, sir, as, as if of my own free will. Frankly, Bunton, you don't deserve much consideration. Your conduct has been most infamous, sir. However, as you have been such a long time with the family, I have no desire to bring disgrace upon you. A month is too long. Take yourself away in a week and you may give what reason you like for going. Only a week, sir. Say at least a fortnight, please, sir. A week. And you may consider yourself to have been very, very leniently dealt with. Very good, sir. These papers he was studying, what were they? Well, to my surprise, there was nothing of any importance at all. Simply a copy of the questions and answers in the Musgrave ritual. The Musgrave ritual? What's that? It's a sort of ceremony peculiar to our family, which each Musgrave for centuries past has gone through upon coming of age. I see. Oh, but pray go on. Well, for two days after this, Bunton was most assiduous in his attention to his duties. On the third morning, however, he didn't appear as usual after breakfast to receive my instructions for the day. As I left the dining room, I happened to meet the maid, Rachel Howell. Why, Rachel, you should be in bed. You're not over your illness yet. Get along with you and come back to your duties when you're stronger. I, I'm, I'm strong enough, Mr. Musgrave, sir. We shall see what the doctor says about there. Now, you must stop work at once. And when you go downstairs, just tell Mr. Brunton I wish to see him. Oh, Mr. Brunton has gone, sir. Gone? Gone where? Well, just gone, sir. No one has seen him. He's not in his room. Oh, yes. He's gone. He's gone. <laughs> yeah. There was no doubt about it, Holmes. He had gone. His bed had not been slept in. He had been seen by no one since he retired to his room the night before. His clothes, his watch, even his money were in his room. But his black suit, which he usually wore, was missing. His slippers were gone, too, but his boots were left behind. Indeed? Well, we searched from cellar to garret, but there was not a sign of him. I called in the local police, but without success. They examined the lawn and the paths all around the house, but there was not a trace of his footmarks. Is that all? Well, not quite. There was yet another development which quite drew our attention away from the original mystery. Oh? What was this, then? Rachel Howells collapsed and became delirious and sometimes hysterical. I had to employ a nurse to sit up with her at night. On the third night after Brunton's disappearance, this nurse came bursting into the library. Mr. Musgrave, sir. Oh, Mr. Musgrave. Yes, nurse. What is it? What it's happened? the girl, sir, Rachel Howells. Well? well? She was sleeping so nicely, and I just thought I'd take 40 winks in the armchair, but when I woke up just now, she disappeared. Disappeared? How do you mean? But just disappeared, sir. The bed was empty, and the window was open when I looked out of it, and you could see her footmarks going away across the lawn as clear as anything. Oh, Mr. Musgrave, I'm terrified she's gone to the lake. The lake? Surely you don't think... Well, in her state, I don't know what to think. She was so demented at times, I wouldn't put anything past her. Come along with me quickly. We must get the police onto this at once. Well, the police started dragging the lake at once, but no trace of her body could they find. But they did find something else rather curious. Oh, what was that? Well, it was a linen bag containing a mass of old rusted and discoloured metal and several dull-coloured pieces of pebble or glass. 
uh, that was all that could be found. And from that moment to this, we know nothing of the fate either of Rachel Howells or of Richard Bunton. Musgrave, I must see that paper. Uh, which paper? The one your butler thought it worth his while to consult, even at the risk of losing his place. Well, it's rather absurd business, this ritual of ours, but I, I have a copy with me, if you care to run your eye over it. I should like to very much. And what was it all about, Holmes? Uh, if you straighten out that crumpled ball of paper you found in the box, Watson, I think you'll find the Musgrave ritual written down on it. Hmm? Oh, I see. A sort of um, catechism, questions and answers. Uh, whose was it, his who is gone, who shall have it, he who will come, what was the month, the sixth from the first, where was the sun over the oak, where was the shadow under the, the elm, <clears throat> how was it stepped north by ten and by ten, east by five and by five, south by ten, Two and by two, west by one and by one, and so under. What shall we give for it, all that is ours? Why should we give it for the sake of the trust? That's all, Holmes. Yes. You will have observed, of course, that the spelling puts it in the middle of the 17th century. Uh, yes, yes, of course, yes. Can't have been much help to you in solving the mystery, eh? It provided me with another mystery even more interesting than the first. I sensed that the solution of the one might prove to be the solution of the other. Uh, it pointed to one thing with certainty. Oh, what was that? It showed that Brunton, the butler, was a very clever man indeed. A man with a clearer insight than ten generations of his masters. So Musgrave had no idea himself what this ritual business was all about? None whatever. He asked me if I could tell him. And could you? I told him we should be leaving for Sussex immediately, and I would do my best to find out. Well, there's the oak tree for you, Holmes. Well, plenty more about the estate, but nothing as old as this one. My word. I don't think I've ever seen a more magnificent tree, Musgrave. Oh, a patriarch among oaks. Was it there when your ritual was drawn up? Well, I should say it was there at the Norman Conquest. It has a girth of 23 feet. Remarkable. Well, then, let us assume that this is the oak referred to. Have you any old elms as well? Well, there used to be a very old one over yonder. It was struck by lightning ten years or so ago and cut down to the stump. You can see where it used to be, though. Oh, yes. There are no other elms? Well, no old ones. Then I'd like to see exactly where this one grew. It was over here, on the wall. I see. I suppose it would be impossible to find out how high the elm was. Well, I can tell you now. Sixty-four feet. My dear Musgrave, how on earth do you know that? Well, when my old tutor used to give me exercise in trigonometry, it always had to do with measuring heights. And when I was a lad, I worked out every tree and building on the estate. Well, that's a piece of good fortune for me, then. Tell me, did your butler ever happen to ask you about the height of the elm? Well, now you call it to my mind, he once did. In connection with some argument he was having with the groom. Now, this was excellent news, Watson. It showed me that I was on the right road. Yes. What did you do next, then? I looked up mm. at the sun. It was low in the heavens, and I calculated that in less than an hour it would lie just above the topmost branches of the old oak. I see. Where was the sun over the oak? Oh, yes, yes, part of the ritual. Exactly. And the shadow of the elm must mean the further end of the shadow, otherwise the trunk 
would have been chosen as the guide. So I had to find where the far end of the shadow would fall when the sun was just clear of the oak. Oh, that must have been difficult. The elm was no longer there. True. But if Brunton could do it, I could. Besides, there was no real difficulty. What? I went with Musgrave to his study and whittled myself that pig you see in the collection there. Uh I tied that long string to it with a knot at each yard. Then I took two lengths of a fishing rod, which came to just six feet, and I went back with my client to where the elm had been. It's lucky the sun shone for us today, Musgrave. Look, it's just grazing the top of the earth. Well, what are you doing now? I'm, uh, I'm fastening these two lengths of the rod together. <coughs> there. Now, I stand it on end where the old elm used to be, uh-huh. and you, Musgrave, take this knotted string and measure the shadow thrown by the rod. I see. Uh, one, two, three. Well, it comes to a third knot. Three yards. Nine feet. Now, a rod of six feet throws a shadow of nine feet. So, by a simple calculation, a tree of 64 feet will throw a shadow of 96 feet. Uh, yes. Now, following the direction of the shadow, we use the string to mark out 96 feet. If you'll just lend a hand... 93, 96. And we mark the spot with this peg. Well, we're almost at the wall of the house. Yes. And look at this. What? Is that the person in the ground? If I'm not mistaken, that mark was made by Brunton when he'd completed his calculation. Well, on his trail, Musgrave. Well, this is incredible. But, but, now? We take the cardinal points with my pocket compass. Yes. North lies over there. Now, you recite the directions from the ritual, and I'll paste them. Um, north by ten and by ten. Ten steps with each foot towards the north. Yes. East by five and by five. East by five and yes. South by two and by two. By two and by two. That takes me right to the door. And west by one and by one. Well, that could only mean one step with each foot into the house. May I? Of course. I'll open the door for you. And so under. Under this floor. Unless my calculations are radically wrong. Hmm. The cement between these flagstones is perfectly intact. They haven't been moved for many a long year. Well, at least Brunton hasn't been at work here. Uh, Just a moment, Holmes. You're thinking in terms of having to dig, but there's a cellar under here. A cellar? Yes, as old as a house. Then come along. Down here. Uh, Through this door. There's a candle on this bell. This place is used for storing wood. Yeah, clever. Look, the wood's all been pushed against the walls to leave a space on the floor. What's that tied to the iron ring in the flagstone? A muffler, I think. That's that, that Brunton's muffler. 
I've seen it on him. I, I, I could swear to it. He, he's used it to help him heal up the stone. Uh, come on, Holmes. Uh, just a moment, Musgrave. Huh? I think we've reached a point where we should pause a little while. But why? All we have to if do If you'll is... take my advice, oh, you'll send for the county police to be present when this stone is lifted. Oh, you, you think so? I do. <laughs> in fact, from the look of it, we should be more than glad of their assistance in lifting it. Muffler or no muffler. Now then, Constable. Yes, sir. You take one end of the muffler... I got it, sir. And I'll take the other, and we'll heave the stone up by its ring. Now. Ready, sir. <coughs> now, please shine the lantern into the hole, Musgrave. Ah. Oh. Good old. It's London. Can we get him out? We must. Uh, I'll get down, sir. Uh, won't be room for two of us. Thank you, Constable. Now, uh, uh, oh, sir, if you reach now. Yes. Right. I. I've got him. Right, sir. Uh, Is, uh, rather. Yes, I, I, I no doubt about it. He's been dead several days. Hmm. No signs of any injuries. No, nothing at all. Sir! Yes? There's a box down here. He will lie across it. A box? Uh, we'd better have it up. It, it's heavy, sir. Come in. Uh, come in, sir. Right. I, I have it. looking in. We'll examine that shortly. Is that all, Constable? Yes, sir. Then take my hand and out you come. You knew you would find Brunton down there then, Holmes? I feared as much. But now I had to ascertain how that fate had come upon him and what part had been played in it by the woman who had disappeared. Rachel Howells. Hmm. I sat down on a keg in a corner and thought the matter carefully over. Well, you know my methods in such cases, Watson. Mm -hmm. I put myself in the man's place. He knew that something valuable was concealed. He had found the spot. Yes, but how did he get into it? Exactly. Whom could he trust to help him? The girl? She had been devoted to him. A man always finds it hard to realize that he may have finally lost a woman's love, however badly he may have treated her. Yes, he would try by a few attentions to make his peace with the girl, Howell, and then would engage her as his accomplice. They would come together to the cellar at night, and their united force would suffice to raise the stone. Yes, but Holmes, you said that you and the constable found it hard enough. I got need to say a girl. Ah, I realize that. And I asked myself, what would they do to assist them? Almost at once I came upon what I expected. Uh? A billet of wood with marked indentations at one end. Obviously, it had been used as a lever, and then as a prop to keep the stone upright. Ah, yes, I see. Yes, then Brunton dropped into the cavity, and the girl waited above. Then what? He unlocked the box. That's his ancient key you have beside you there. Ah. And he handed its contents up to the girl. 
I should tell you that it was virtually empty when we examined it. Yes, yes, yes. Logical enough. And then what happened? Ah, Watson. What smoldering fire of vengeance had suddenly sprung into flame in this passionate Celtic woman's soul when she saw the man who had wronged her in her power? Was it by chance that the wood had slipped and the stone had shut Brunton into his sepulchre? Had she only been guilty of silence as to his fate? Or had some sudden blow from her hand dashed the support away and sent the slab crashing into place? Great heaven! I seemed to see that woman's figure still clutching at her treasure trove and flying wildly up the winding stair with her ears ringing perhaps with the muffled screams from behind her mm. and with the drumming of frenzied hands against the slab of stone which was choking her faithless lover's life out. And this was the reason for her hysterical behaviour the next morning. But Holmes, this uh, this treasure trove she took away, you, you said they only found a bundle of old metal and pebbles in the lake. Well, as to that, my client Reginald Musgrave provided the clue. Holmes? Yes, Bunchy? These, these few coins, all, all of them in the box. I've just realized that they're Charles I. You see, we were right in fixing the date of the handwriting of the ritual as mid-17th century. Charles I? Yes. Musgrave, quickly. I must see the contents of the bag they fished out of the lake. Well, it's up in my study. Come on, Holmes. We may find something else of Charles I, Musgrave. Now, what are we here? Not very encouraging, are they? Metal's almost there. Hmm. Shaped in the form of a double ring, but twisted and bent. And the stones are dull. But let me try rubbing one of them on my sleeve. Oh, yes. Look, it's beginning to come up. Why, yes. There's almost a trace of sparkle. You must bear in mind that when the royal party fled, they probably left many of their most precious possessions buried behind them with the intention of returning for them in more peaceful times. My ancestor, Sir Ralph Musgrave, was a prominent cavalier. He was the right-hand man of Charles II in his wandering. Ah, oh, indeed. Well, now, I think that really should give us the last link we wanted. I must congratulate you on coming into possession, though in rather a tragic manner, of a relic which is of great intrinsic value, but even of greater importance as an historical curiosity. What, what is it, Holmes? It is nothing less than the ancient crown of the kings of England. The crown? Precisely. Consider what the ritual says. How does it run? Whose was it? His who is gone. That was after the execution of Charles I. Then who shall have it? He who will come. That was Charles II, whose advent was already foreseen. I think there can be no doubt that this battered and shapeless diadem once encircled the brows of the royal steward. But how is it that Charles didn't get his crown when he returned? Ah, there you lay your finger upon the one point which we shall probably never be able to clear up. It's likely that the Musgrave who held the secret died in the interval, and by some oversight left this document to his descendant without explaining its meaning. From that day to this, it has been handed down from father to son until at last it came within reach of a man who tore its secret out of it and lost his life in the venture. And that's the story of the Musgrave ritual, Watson. What an astounding business. But what about the missing woman, Holmes? Nothing was ever heard. The probability is that she got away out of England and carried herself and the memory of her crime to some land beyond the sea. Oh, bless my soul. Look at the time. Oh, goodness me. Oh, dear me, Holmes. 
No doubt you will wish to add the Musbe ritual to your chronicles now that I've given you the particulars. I most certainly shall, Holmes. Capital, my dear Watson. Then, as you'll be needing all these things to refer to, I suggest we simply leave them where they are and tidy them up another day. makers of Clippercraft clothes for men, and 924 leading retail stores from coast to coast present the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Our stories are based upon the character of Sherlock Holmes, created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes is portrayed by John Stanley, Dr. Watson by Alfred Shirley, and the dramatizations are by Edith Miser. Winter's certainly here, Dr. Watson. There are snowdrifts three to four feet high piled outside your door. Let me take your galoshes, Mr. Harris, while you warm your feet by the fire. Mm, boy, this feels good. I think I'll just dig in here for the winter, Doctor. Well, why don't you? And here is Sherlock Holmes' adventure every evening. Say, come to think of it, that would have the good old Arabian Nights beat all hollow. Thank you, Mr. Harris. A very neat compliment, indeed. Well, Dr. Watson, which of your many Sherlock Holmes adventures have you decided to tell us this evening? Well, to tell the truth, I was... Uh, in a quandary as to where to begin until I received a communication by this afternoon's post. Oh, here it is. Thank you. Wedding announcement. Gloria Waverly Pembroke to Juan Fernando Ferguson. Say, that's a strange combination of names. Juan Fernando Ferguson, Doctor. Yes, uh, Juan Fernando Ferguson was the victim in the case of the Sussex Vampire, although he was hardly a year old at the time. The case of the Sussex Vampire. That sounds promising. Just what is a vampire, Dr. Watson? That's the exact same question that Holmes put to me at the beginning of this case. Oh, oh, but before we go into the subject, suppose you say a few well-chosen words on another subject. A subject we're very pleased to hear about on this program. I thank you, Dr. Watson. A few words that give you the whole story in a nutshell are these. Clippercraft clothes are the best values in suits, top coats, and overcoats you've ever seen. Now, you have every right to say to me, how do you explain that, Mr. Harris? Tell us what makes it so. Well, explaining Clippercraft's great values is simple as ABC. They're planned values. They take advantage of all the ingenuity their makers can bring to bear. The Clippercraft plan concentrates the buying power of 924 leading stores across the nation, making tremendous savings in manufacturing and distribution costs. You get the savings this brilliant plan makes possible. What's more, you get them at your own local independent store, at the store you can trust. Until you see them, you wouldn't believe such beautifully tailored suits were possible at only 40 and $45. Such handsome top coats and overcoats at only $40. Clippercraft values are so downright remarkable. We urge you to compare them with clothes selling for many dollars more. Dr. Watson, to return to the case of the Sussex vampire. It was a blustery afternoon, Mr. Harris, uh, early in November in the year, 
Let me see. Somewhere early in the 1900s. Well, at any rate, I had returned to our rooms in Baker Street to find Holmes standing before the huge reference books he had compiled for himself. The volume V in his hands and a critical look on his face. Ah, there you are, Watson. You look a trifle windblown. Well, it doesn't take any brilliant deduction on your part to ascertain that fact, my dear Holmes. What a gale. It fairly tears the coat off your back. I had to chase my hat almost the entire length of Kensington Gardens. Oh, I'm completely exhausted. Oh, nonsense. A little strenuous exercise is good for you. Oh, yes? Then why don't you indulge in it more frequently? I don't need to. My waistline isn't becoming unmanageable. Well, there's nothing nothing matter with my waistline. A bit more substantial than yours, perhaps, but it's... Watson, <laughs> Watson, stop your spluttering. I haven't time to listen. We have something more serious on hand. Oh, I say, uh, a new case? I haven't decided. Watson, in your own invaluable opinion, just what is a vampire? Oh, I thought you didn't have time for any tittle-tattle. I haven't. My question's entirely serious. A vampire? Oh, well, a vampire is supposed to be a sort of walking corpse that lives by sucking human blood and can only be held in its grave by a, a stake driven through its heart. It's a purely legendary figure like uh, werewolves and uh, sea serpents. Exactly, a childish bugaboo, pure rubbish. Yes, just the result of a lot of ignorant peasants frightening each other. Their imaginations run away with them. <laughs> Hocus-pocus like that could never become current in England. No? Superstition's a difficult thing to stamp out. Read this letter. Oh, what is it? Uh, the hysterical ravings of some neurotic female? On the contrary, it's a business letter from Morrison, Morrison and Dodd, one of the oldest and most reputable law firms in the city. Read it. Mr. Sherlock Holmes, in Re Vampires. Sir, our client, Mr. Robert Ferguson of Ferguson and Muirhead, tea brokers of Mincing Lane, has made some inquiry from us concerning vampires. As our firm specializes upon the assessment of machinery, <laughs> the matter hardly comes within our purview, and we have therefore recommended Mr. Ferguson to lay the matter before you. Hmm. The question now is, does it come within our purview either? Well, we seem to have been switched into Grimm's fairy tale. We may as well expect a witch on a broomstick to come flying down the chimney. Eh? Oh, well, anything's better than stagnation, eh, Watson? Besides, stamping out superstitions, one of my hobbies. Oh. Now what? Come in, come in. Oh, good afternoon, Mrs. Hudson. A letter for you, sir. Came by the light post. Hmm. From Mr. Robert Ferguson, Cheeseman's, Lamberley. Thank you, Mrs. Hudson, thank you. Don't mention it, sir. Well, this Mr. Ferguson, he doesn't seem to have lost any time in getting in touch with you, Holmes. No, the matter must be fairly urgent. Cheeseman's, Lamberley. Where is Lamberley, Watson? Uh, uh, in Sussex, south of Horsham. Hmm. Read the letter, there's a good fellow. Oh, really, Holmes? You're becoming more indolent every day. Rubbish. Just because I sit here relaxed with my eyes closed doesn't mean I'm not mentally alert. But get on with the letter, get on with it. Well, well wait a minute, can't you? Wait till I get it out of the envelope. There we are. My dear Mr. Holmes, I have been recommended to you by my lawyers, but the matter is so delicate I, I hardly know how to explain it to you. Some five years ago, I married a South American lady, the daughter of a Peruvian merchant. She's very beautiful and a most loving wife. But I cannot help feeling that there are sides of her character which I can never explore or understand. A few months ago, she began to show some curious traits quite alien to her ordinarily sweet and gentle disposition. 
This is my second marriage. I have one son by my first wife, charming and affectionate, but a cripple. Twice my wife was caught in the act of assaulting this poor lad in the most brutal and unprovoked way. That was a small matter, however, compared with her conduct to her own child, a beautiful boy just under one year of age. The story, if true, is almost too horrible to mention. One day, one afternoon last week, I, I heard my older boy screaming upstairs. Almost immediately, the baby's nurse burst into the room and begged me to follow her as my wife was in one of her spells. Mr. Ferguson, sir, come quick. It's your wife. She's took bad again. What? She's beating the boy. Oh, hurry, sir. She'll kill him. Good heavens, this is dreadful. Come along, nurse. You're twisting my arm. Oh, oh stop hitting me. Stop. I'm coming, Jackie. I'm coming. Tina. Tina, let the boy go. I say, let the boy go. Father, look. Father, she hit me. Look there. Why, you've raised a great wealth on his arm. This is too much, Tina. Are you going crazy? I hate him. I hate him, you little beast. After all, Tina, he is my son and a cripple. How can you be so inhuman? It is because I love you. Don't you understand? I would sacrifice myself rather than break your heart. You must believe me. You must trust me. Yes, but what do you want me to believe? I, I cannot tell, but you must trust me. After all, actions speak louder than words. How can I believe you love me when I see you torturing my son? I hate him. Take him away. I will kill him next time. Stop it. You're delirious, that's it, you're delirious. Don't you think so, nurse? It's worse than that, sir. She's possessed of the devil. She and Dolores, that black-haired maid of hers. Dolores practices strange rites up in her room. She's a voodoo, I tell you. Oh, nonsense, this is going too far. Has the whole house turned into bedlam? Really, nurse, Dolores is from Latin America. Just because she does things you don't understand doesn't make her a witch. It's all quite easily explained. There's something going on in this house you can't explain so easy, no matter how you try. What do you mean? What I saw in the nursery this afternoon, just before she started into beating Jackie. Oh, don't tell. You promise not to. Oh, for the love of heaven, don't tell. Tina, be quiet. What did you find, nurse? I was out in the back hall, warming the baby's bottle, when all of a sudden I heard a loud cry, like he was in pain. I ran in to find out what the matter was. And there she was, leaning over the baby. I screamed. She looked up, and there was blood on her face. She's a vampire. That's what she is, a vampire. Hmm. Thoroughly unsavory, Watson. Go on with the letter. Ever since then, the nurse has guarded the child day and night. And day and night, the silent, watchful mother seems to be lying in wait as a wolf for a lamb. For the rest, she confines herself to her own room and will see none of us. I know this will all sound most fantastic to you, Mr. Holmes. Vampirism in the heart of Sussex. And yet I beg of you to take it seriously. If you would only come down and investigate the matter... A child's life and a man's sanity may depend upon it. Yours faithfully, Robert Ferguson. Well, Watson, what do you make of it? Well, it all sounds like a nightmare to me. Maybe the man himself is demented. Possibly, Watson. Possibly. Suppose we visit Lamberley tomorrow afternoon to see if we can get to the bottom of this strange case. I've always wanted to meet a vampire. (laughs) 
yes, that must be our client, Mr. Ferguson, waiting at the other end of the platform. You mean the long, slab-sided man with loose limbs and a splendid back? But he looks prematurely aged. An experience like this would add years to any man's looks. Ah, Mr. Robert Ferguson, I believe. Uh, yes, Mr. Holmes. I received your telegram. I can't begin to express my gratitude. Quite. And this is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson. Oh, how do you do, sir? I uh, believe we've met before, Dr. Watson. Oh, really? I... Aren't you the same, Watson, who played rugby for Blackheath while I was uh, three-quarter for Richmond? Bobby Ferguson? Why, of course. Yes. I'm delighted to see you again, old fellow. <laughs> I never forget the day you threw me over the ropes and into the crowd at old Deer Park. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, time has changed us both. Uh... Whoever would have thought we would meet again under such tragic circumstances. Uh, but come, uh, the carriage is waiting over here. So, Watson, you played rugby, eh? No, indeed he did. And a splendid athlete he was, too. And see that. You're full of surprises, Watson. There are unexplored possibilities about you. Oh, now you're pulling my leg home. Now, here's the carriage. Uh, will you get in first, Mr. Holmes? Thank you. Now, Watson. Right, sir. That's right. And uh, tuck this rug in around your knees, will you? Uh, the wind is getting rather brisk. Looks as though we'd have a storm before night. All right, Wilson. Let's get along. Now then, Mr. Ferguson, if you don't object to a few personal questions... No, 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 anything, anything. What can I do? I can't go to the police with such a story. And yet I must protect the children. Is it madness? Is it something in the blood? Have you ever had a similar case? Oh, for the love of heaven, give me some advice. I'm at my wit's end. Gently, Mr. Ferguson, gently. Now, just pull yourself together and give me a few clear answers. I can assure you that I am very far from being at my wit's end. First of all, have you spoken to your wife since the, uh, the discovery? No. No, Mr. Holmes. She refuses to see me. Her maid, Dolores, who's been with her since she was a child, is the only person she will see. I gather that you did not know your wife well at the time of your marriage. Only a few weeks. Then your wife's character would be better known to her maid than to you. I suppose so. This unhappy lady has appeared to assault both the children, her own baby and your son? Yes. She attacked Jackie again just day before yesterday. But the assaults take different forms, do they not? She has beaten your own son. Once with a stick and once very savagely with her hands. The lady jealous by nature? Well, she is a Latin American. She has a fiery, tropical nature. Quite. But the crippled boy, he's 15, I understand, and probably very bright mentally since his body isn't as active as other boys. Did he give any explanation of these assaults? No, he declared there was no reason. Were they good friends at other times? No. No, there was never any love between them. And yet you claim he's affectionate. Well, I've never seen a more devoted son. He's absorbed in everything I say or do. Hmm. Most interesting. Were the attacks on the baby and your son at the same period? In the uh, first case, yes. It was as if she were seized by some frenzy and had vented her rage on both. In the second, it was only Jackie who suffered. And possibly because ne Nurse kept a strict watch over the baby. I see. Ah, but here we are, Mr. Holmes. Cheesemans. The old houses in this part of the country are still named after their original builders. Yes, I see a rebus of a cheese and a man on the ancient tiles that line the porch. The middle section of your house is very old, Mr. Ferguson. Yes, the wings are newer. Very interesting building with its towering Tudor chimneys and its lichen-spotted roofs. If you will come in, sir, I can offer you some refreshment. That will be most welcome. My bones are chilled. 
Wind's rising. That storm can't be far off. Look at those clouds. Well, it reminds one of the right of the Valkyries, eh, Ferguson? Oh, come in, Watson. Come in and shut the door. All right, all right. That's better. Now, if you'll just... Oh! Oh, Dolores. Si, senor. Dolores, uh, bring some sandwiches, will you? And uh, have the windows shuttered. It looks as though we're in for a storm. Si, senor. I shut them after I order sandwiches. That is your wife's maid, I take it? Yes. Handsome girl, but a bit primitive, eh? Ah, I see your iron fire screen is dated 1670. Oh, yes, yes. We've got a great mixture of dates in this room. The uh, half-paneled walls may well have belonged to the original yeoman of the 17th century. And the watercolors hung along the lower part are obviously modern. And the collection of weapons and utensils nailed against the yellow plaster. Ah, those are the oldest of the lot. Inca Indian relics, I believe. Uh, no one knows how old they really are. I see. My wife brought them from Peru. This uh, quiver, for instance. Most enlightening. Most enlightening. Hello. Hello, <laughs> here comes Carlo. Well, 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 how's the boy? Come here. Nice-looking spaniel, Ferguson. <laughs> Hello. What's the matter with the dog's hind legs? Oh, that's what's puzzled the vet. It seems to be a sort of paralysis. Spinal meningitis, he thought. Come here, boy. Come on, come on. Ah, it seems to be passing off. He'll be all right soon, won't you, Carl? Won't you, boy? Won't you, boy? He knows we're talking about him. Look at him thump his tail. Did this uh, paralysis come on suddenly? In a single night. How long ago? Several months. Very remarkable. Very suggestive. What do you see in it, Mr. Holmes? The confirmation of my suspicions. What are your suspicions, Mr. Holmes? It's just an intellectual puzzle to you, but it's life and death to me. My wife's a victim of some terrible curse. My child is in danger. Oh, don't play with me, Mr. Holmes. It's all too horrible. Calm yourself, my dear fellow. Keep a stiff upper lip. You may have to bear still greater pain, I fear, but I'll try to spare you as much as possible. I hope to have a solution before I leave this house tonight. Ah, the storm has broken at last. I say, listen to the rain. Yes. I got the shutters closed just in time. Thunder, by Jove, at this time of the year. It's a thoroughly bad night. Sandwiches, senor. Oh, yes. Uh, come in, Dolores, and uh, uh, put them there on the table. <coughs> careful, careful. Why, oh, you almost dropped the tray. What's the matter, Dolores? Why, oh, you look as if you'd seen a ghost. I... I frightened. Listen. You hear that storm? It the great dogs of death howling round this house. My mistress, she very sick. She no take food. I frightened to stay with her without doctor. Well, I should be glad if I could be of service. Would your mistress see Dr. Watson? I take him. I not ask leave. She need doctor. Oh, then I'll come at once. You're sure you're not afraid? My wife may be really dangerous. Oh, rubbish, Ferguson. <laughs> I can take care of myself. What you've a right to expect in clothes costing many dollars more is yours in Clippercraft at just a fraction of what you'd expect to pay. You get long wear that results from fine materials and good workmanship. You get good taste, correct styling as worn by the world's best-dressed men. And you get comfort and perfect fit from skilled designing and precision tailoring. 
American production genius applied to the making of clothes makes this possible. That and the unique Clippercraft plan concentrating the buying power of 924 of the nation's leading stores from coast to coast. You get the savings that result from this group buying at your own local independent store, at the store you can trust. Clippercraft suits are only 40 and 45 dollars. Clippercraft top coats and overcoats are only 40 dollars. Selling expensive clothes at inexpensive low prices at the nation's finest independent stores is the great big idea behind the Clippercraft plan. That's why men who know insist on Clippercraft clothes. So be sure to visit the Clippercraft store in your city. The leading stores in the metropolitan area that bring you Clippercraft clothes are Saks 34th, Broadway at 34th Street, Manhattan, Abraham and Strauss, Brooklyn, the Boulevard Men's Shop, Kresge, Newark, Newark, New Jersey, and the B&B Clothes Shop, 16408 Jamaica Avenue, Jamaica. These great, courteous, and friendly stores are proud to add their names to that of Clippercraft in the label of your suit, top coat, sports jacket, and overcoat. wish Watson would come back. He's been gone over half an hour. He's all right. If anything had gone astray, I should have heard it. I've been listening. Oh, so that's what you've been doing. You were so quiet, I thought you were dozing. Wait. Something now. Listen. I can't hear anything but the rain. It's coming this way. Hear it? Oh, yes, yes, now I do. That's Jackie's cane, poor fellow. He's coming in here. Mm, it's the spine that's weak, I can tell by the lip. Sightable, too. Here he is. Oh, Father. Father, I didn't know you were back. I, I'd have been here to meet you. I thought you were out in the storm. Oh, I'm so glad oh, to gently, see you. gently, Jackie, please. Don't hug so tight. There, there, now, that's better. We have company. This is Mr. Holmes. Hello, Jackie. Sherlock Holmes, the detective? That's right. Oh. Now that I've met your eldest son, Mr. Ferguson, may I make the acquaintance of the baby? Why, oh, certainly, Mr. Holmes, certainly. And just wait till you see him. How anyone could have the heart to hurt him. The most beautiful baby. So that's it. Hmm. What did you say? What's the matter? Why are you looking out the window like that? What do you see? The solution of this crime. Yes, but the windows are shuttered. Quite. Well, I... I may say you gave me a start. Sorry? Oh, not at all. My nerves are a bit on edge. What with the... This situation and... And the storm. Jackie. Uh, go upstairs. That's a good fellow. And uh, ask Nurse to bring the baby down here, will you? Yes, Father. Has it ever occurred to you, Mr. Ferguson, that this, uh, this story about your wife's peculiarities might have been made up by the nurse to get revenge on her for some slight... Oh, impossible. In the first place, I saw her beat the boy with my own eyes. Yes, but the other... Oh, no, no. Unfortunately, I feel that must be the truth, too. Nurse is a good woman with plenty of common sense. She's always been very fond of my wife and the baby. 
I'm sure she'd never have told me if she'd not felt it were necessary to protect the child. Yes, I thought so. However, we were bound to consider every possibility. You never know. Help! Help! She's killing you! Hello, what's up? Hurry, Holmes! Hurry! Coming, old chap, coming. Oh, this is terrible. What's up? What's happened? Mrs. Ferguson. Her bedroom door was open. She saw the boy go into the nursery. Quick as a flash, she was out of bed and into the other room. Oh, it's awful. There was Jackie standing beside the crib playing with the baby. When she comes in, raging like a tiger, shoves him aside, snatches up the baby, and dashes into her own room before you can wink. Oh, quick. We must get the baby away from her. The door's locked. We can't get in. Break it down, then. Help me, Watson. One. Two. Get out of the way, Dolores. You know, take one step or I shoot. Tina, look at her. She's got the baby. In heaven's name, don't take the baby away from me. Please, don't take it. Stand back, you know, touch her. Go ahead and shoot. I'm going to save my baby. Easy, Ferguson, easy. Dolores, would you mind pointing that revolver in some other direction? I know your intentions are good, but your nerves are a trifle unsteady. Look at my wife, the murderess. Mr. Ferguson. It seems to me that your wife is a very good and a very ill-used woman. How can you stand there and say that? Look at her. Blood on her lips. She's killing him. Has it ever occurred to you that a wound may be sucked for some other purpose than to draw blood from it? What do you mean? To draw poison from it. Your wife has been risking her own life to save your child. Poison? Quite. The South American household has weapons on the walls. When I saw the empty quiver, I was sure... If the child were pricked by one of those arrows dipped in curare or some other devilish drug, it would mean death if the venom were not sucked out. You mean Tina's knife? I see, of course. Why, it's quite obvious. And the dog. If one were going to use such a poison, wouldn't it be wise to first try it on the dog to make sure it hadn't lost its power? Oh, yes. But who could have done it? I don't understand. If I tell you, I must wound you very deeply in another direction. Oh, no. No, you must not tell him. You must... Darling, darling, what does it matter as long as you're cleared? Don't you understand? Nothing else matters. Oh, Robert. Why? Why didn't you tell me? Your wife knew how much you loved your other son. She was afraid it would break your heart. Jackie? My Jackie. Oh, Robert, you must not be sad. He's jealous, just a child. You will get over it. Yes, Yes, we'll, we'll help you. Together. Oh, my darling, I'm so glad it wasn't you. Oh, I'm so happy. Oh, there, there, darling. Don't. Come, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Your work is finished. They no longer need you. Yes, but, uh, Holmes, uh, don't you think we ought to... And Dolores is right. Come along, Watson. At this particular moment, we're decidedly de troll. That's a pretty harrowing story, Dr. Watson. Did Jackie recover his mental balance? Oh, yes, indeed, Mr. Harris. They sent him around the world with a good tutor. Sea air, marvelous for adolescent nerves. Yes, Doctor, but how did Holmes know it was the boy? You remember his saying he saw the solution of the crime in the shuttered window pane? Well, Mr. Harris, what he really saw was the reflection of the boy's face when his father affectionately mentioned the baby. Holmes caught a glimpse of such jealousy and cruel hatred as one seldom sees on a human face. Well, Dr. Watson, that certainly is a thrilling story, and you certainly know how to tell it. To paraphrase my friend Sherlock Holmes, 
Elementary, my dear Mr. Harris. <laughs> Elementary. <laughs> and what story are we to have next week, Dr. Watson? Well, next week I think I'll tell you how Holmes and I spent the Christmas holidays at Penn's Dragon Castle and became involved with a ghostly lady in white, the honor of the Nevilles, and a Father Christmas who, quite unexpectedly, sang bass. <laughs> of Clipper Craft Clothes and 924 leading stores from coast to coast have brought you another in the new series of broadcasts featuring the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is produced and directed by Basil Lochran with special music by Albert Berman. don't know your Clippercraft dealer, write Clippercraft, 200 Fifth Avenue, New York City. Lives are lost needlessly every year when people die of tuberculosis. You do your part to prevent tuberculosis when you buy and use Christmas seals. And be sure to do your Christmas mailing early. Be sure to listen next week to Sherlock Holmes in The Adventure of the Christmas Bride. If you'd like to attend the Sherlock Holmes broadcast in New York, see your local Clippercraft dealer, and he'll tell you how to obtain your tickets. This is Cy Harris speaking for Clippercraft Clothes. This is the world's largest network, serving more than 450 radio stations, a mutual broadcasting system. Tonic and Kremel Shampoo present the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson and Tom Conway as Sherlock Holmes. Once more, we're about to visit Dr. Watson, the friend and chronicler of Sherlock Holmes and his amazing adventures. We find him sitting in his well-worn armchair, an eager look on his face and a humorous twinkle in his eye. Can it be that the good doctor looks forward to his weekly appearances before the microphone? Good evening, Mr. Bell. It <laughs> certainly can. Tonight I have my narrative all picked out. Have you ever noticed that red-headed people always seem to lead very eventful lives? Look at Queen Elizabeth. Yes. And I've heard that Cleopatra was a brick top, and she certainly had very few dull moments. No, I'm sure she didn't. Well, tonight I've decided to tell you the story... Of the Red-Headed League. The Red-Headed League. What a curious title. No more curious than the situation it gave rise to in Sherlock Holmes's life. And as soon as your word with our listeners is out, I'll begin. Good. Men, if you want to be a success in life, if you want to look like a success in life, remember that well-groomed hair means a lot to a man's appearance. I've heard so many men complain lately that the hairdressings they try are too greasy, too highly perfumed. I've heard them complain about those sticky goos which plaster their hair down and leave flaky residue on the hair. That's why I urge you to try Kreml hair tonic. This highly specialized hair tonic has just enough light oil to keep hair handsomely groomed, every hair in place with a rich, healthy-looking luster. 
And Kreml gives hair such a natural, well-groomed appearance. Yet it never leaves hair looking or feeling greasy or sticky. This is because Kreml contains a special combination of hair-grooming ingredients which is found in no other hair tonic. After you apply Kreml, just run your hand over your hair. Notice how delightfully clean your hair feels. So tempting for the ladies to touch. Notice how no greasy film comes off on your hand or hatband. Kreml always gives hair such a handsome, clean-cut look. As if your barber had just combed it. And it keeps it that way all day long. Be sure to try it, men. K-R-E-M-L, Kreml Hair Tonic. Now, Dr. Watson, how about the red-headed leak? Well, the adventure began one day during the autumn of the year 1890, I believe it was. It was just after my marriage, and I hadn't seen much of Sherlock Holmes lately. Anyway, I burst in upon my old friend to find him deep in conversation with a stout, florid-faced gentleman with the fiercest red hair it has ever been my privilege to observe. I was about to withdraw when Holmes pulled me abruptly into the room and closed the door behind me. Come in, my dear Watson, come in. You couldn't possibly have come at a better time. But, Holmes, I was afraid you might be busy. So I am, my dear fellow. Allow me. Mr. Wilson, this is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson. How do you do, sir? How do you do? Sit down, Watson, sit down. Uh, thank you. I know that you share my love of the bizarre, although you've never agreed that for the strangest effects and most extraordinary combinations we must go to life itself. Well, you know I... Uh, Mr. Japers Wilson here oh. has just started a narrative which promises to be one of the most singular to which I've listened for some time. Oh, really? And now, my dear Mr. Wilson, perhaps you would have the great kindness to recommence your story. Oh, certainly, Mr. Holmes. And as soon as I can find that newspaper clipping, where did I put it? And I sworn it was here in my waistcoat pocket. Uh, Watson, while we're waiting for Mr. Wilson to find his missing newspaper advertisement, uh, suppose you tell me what you deduce from his appearance. Oh, well, now, let's see. Uh, well, I would say that he was uh, middle-aged, if you don't mind my saying so, Mr. Wilcox, I'm Wilson, and, uh, and he has red hair. Obvious, Watson. Too obvious. I'll come to your assistance. Oh, Colonel? He has at some time done manual labor. He's a Freemason, has been in China, and has done a considerable amount of writing lately. Oh, Mr. Holmes, you fair give me the creeps. Are you one of these mind readers? No, indeed. Then how in the name of good fortune did you know all this about me? About the manual labor, for example. It's as true as gospel. I begin as a ship's carpenter. Your hands, my dear sir. Your right hand is quite a size larger than your left. The muscles are more developed. As for the Freemasonry, you use an arc and compass breast pin, uh, rather against the strict rules of your order. I see that. But the writing, how about that? What else can be indicated by that right cuff, so very shiny? And the left sleeve with the smooth patch near the elbow where you rest it on the desk. Well, how about China? The fish that you have tattooed immediately above your right wrist could only have been done in China. That trick of staining the fish's scales a delicate pink is quite peculiar to China. And when, in addition, I see a Chinese coin hanging from your watch chain, the matter becomes even more simple. <laughs> well, I never. At first I thought you'd done something clever. But now I see it was nothing to it after all. I begin to think, Watson, that I make a mistake in explaining... Omni ignotum pro magnifico, you know. Yes, just uh, what I was thinking. Yes, I'm afraid what reputation I may have will suffer shipwreck if I'm so candid. Uh, have you found the advertisement, Mr. Wilson? Oh, yes, I've got it now. It was in my watch pocket. This is what began it all, sir. Just read it for yourself. Uh, Watson, 
Uh, suppose you do that for us. With pleasure. Uh, first, uh, make a note of the paper and the date. It's the Morning Chronicle of July the 27th, 1890, just two months ago. Very well. Proceed with the advertisement. It begins, to the Red-Headed League. Owing to the bequest of the late Ezekiah Hopkins, there is now another vacancy open which entitles a member of the League to a salary of four pounds a week for purely nominal services. All red-headed men above the age of 21 are eligible. We are in person on Monday at 11 o'clock to Duncan Ross at the offices of the League, 7 Pope Court, Fleet Street. Hear me, Holmes. What on earth does this all mean? I think I promised you that this was this case was bizarre. Now, Mr. Wilson, if you will continue with your story. Well, it's just about as I was telling you, Mr. Holmes. I have a small pawnbroker shop in Coburg Square. Late years, business has been bad. I used to be able to keep two assistants, but now I only have one. And I don't have a job to pay him, except he's willing to come for half wages so as to learn the business. Obliging youth. What's his name? Uh, Vincent Spaulding. And I couldn't want a smarter assistant, Mr. Holmes. I know he could easily earn twice what I'm able to give him. <laughs> well, as I say, if he's satisfied, who am I to be putting ideas into his head? Hmm. Your assistant seems to be as remarkable as your advertisement. Oh, he has only one fault, Mr. Holmes. Photography. Photography? Yes, snapping away with his camera and then diving down into the cellar like a rabbit into its hole to develop his pictures. An amateur photographer, huh? He is uh, still with you, I suppose? Oh, yes, sir. And an observant young fellow he is. He was the one who has brought this advertisement to my notice. Hmm. It was just this day, eight weeks, when he rapped on the office door with this very paper in his hand. Come in, come in. Oh, Mr. Wilson, sir. Oh, it's you, Vincent. What's the matter? Well, I wish to heaven, Mr. Wilson, that I was a red-headed man. Why? Well, well, look here, sir. What it says in this paper. There's another vacancy in the League of the Red-Headed Men. It's worth a pretty penny to him that gets it. A red-headed league? Never heard of it. Never heard of the League of the Red-Headed Men? No. Oh, Mr. Wilson, and you eligible for one of the vacancies. Huh? What are they worth? Oh, merely a couple of hundred a year, but the work's slight, and it needn't interfere much with one's regular occupation. Hmm. A couple of hundred pounds a year, huh? Let me see that paper, young man. Yes, sir. Here you are, sir. As, as far as I can make out, the league was started by a millionaire named Ezekiah Hopkins, a red-headed man himself. He left his fortune in hands of trustees with instructions to provide easy berths to men who had red hair. Hmm. From what I hear, the work isn't difficult. Oh, there must be millions of red-headed men. Oh, not as many as you might think, sir. You see... It's confined to Londoners. Oh. And then again, it, it, it's, it's no use if your hair is light red or dark red or anything but real blazing fire red. They've got to pick the reddest hair they can find. <laughs> well, if there's a redder head of hair than mine in the length and breadth of London, I'd like to see it. Well, I, I have seen a few that I considered oh, redder. Oh, nonsense. Well, where's Matt? Uh, what are you going to do, Mr. I'm Wilson? going around to apply for that vacancy. If it's rain and gold... No one can say that Jabez Wilson is the man to go out with a sieve. A 
when did you get the job, Mr. Wilson? I did that, Mr. Holmes. There wasn't a head of hair could touch mine for redness. If I do say so myself. And there was thousands competing. And what was the work? Oh, purely nominal, like the paper said. And it paid four pounds a week, regular as a clock. All I had to do was sit at a desk in an office at that address there from ten to two and copy out bits from the encyclopedia. Hmm. Educational as well as remunerative. And uh, how long did this work continue? About eight weeks. I was pretty well through the A's. Abbots, archery, architecture and the like. Then suddenly it come to an end. I went to my work ten o'clock as usual. Door was shut and locked, and a card was nailed to the door. What did it say? Red-headed league dissolved October 9th, 1890. Hmm. I say, Holmes, that's today. Well, it was this very morning it was, sir. Well, I lost no time trying to find the man that hired me. Four pounds a week is four pounds. You say you tried to find the man that rented the office? Yes, sir. I inquired from the house agent, and he gave me the man's name and said he'd moved to a new address. You went there, of course. Yes, sir. Well... When I got to that address, it was a manufactory of artificial kneecaps. No one had ever heard of the Red-Headed League. So then you came straight to me. Yes, sir. I thought it best to lose no time. Quite right. Uh, by the by, Mr. Wilson, uh, this uh, assistant of yours, Mr. Vincent Spaulding, how long had he been with you when he called your attention to the Red-Headed League? About a month. How did he come? In answer to an advertisement. Uh, was he the only applicant? No, sir. I, I had a dozen. Why did you pick him? Because he was handy and would come cheap. At half wages, in fact. Hmm. What is he like? Small, stout built, very quick in his ways. No hair on his face, though he's not short of 30. And he had a white splash of acid on his forehead. I thought as much. Have you ever noticed that his ears are pierced for earrings? Well, yes. He says a gypsy did it for him when he was a lad. Watson... What day of the week is it? Well, Saturday, of course. Saturday, dear me, so it is. Well, Mr. Wilson, I think I may promise you some startling developments by tonight. In the meantime, Watson, I suggest we drop round sometime this afternoon to view the attractions of Saxe-Coburg Square and Mr. Wilson's exemplary assistant in particular. Well, certainly, my dear fellow. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. I'll be expecting you. Goodbye, gentlemen. And now, Watson, if you will hand me my violin, I have some thinking to do. Can't you think without that? Oh, all right. There you Saxe-Coburg Square. Mm. Shabby, genteel little backwater of a place. And this, I fancy, is our friend's shop. The four-story building with the three gilt balls over the door. Yes. Well, the square itself seems fairly uninteresting, huh? Yeah, very depressing. Let's see what streets back, backs onto it on this side. Come along, Watson. Well, I can't see what difference the next street can make to our problem. <laughs> if it is a problem... The whole thing sounds more like a practical joke to me. A practical joke which cost its perpetrator four pounds a week? Nonsense, Watson. No man's sense of humor resides in his pocketbook. Well, this street seems to have more life. 
Entrance, one of the chief arteries leading to the north and west. Let me see. What is the order of the houses here? Order? Yes, it's a hobby of mine to have an exact knowledge of London. First we have Mortimer's, then the tobacconist's, the little newspaper shop, the Coburg branch of the City and Suburban Bank, the vegetarian restaurant, and McFarland's carriage building yard. Yes. Now, now we can go back to the shop of our friend, Mr. Wilson. What's the hurry, Holmes? Don't walk so fast. Well, I found out all I want to hear. Well, Holmes, you behave as if you were taking a memory course. Why should you want to know all the shops on that street? Just a waste of time. Nothing that exercises the brain is a waste of time, my dear Watson. The trouble with most of us is that our brains have become flabby from lack of proper use. Rubbish. Well, here we are back again. Quite. Why are you flapping on the pavement with your stick? Huh? You want to enter the shop? Why not knock on the door? No, quite so, Watson. I'm afraid my etiquette is a bit faulty lately. So, just to please you, I will knock on the door. Somebody's coming. I can see him through the glass. Looks like our bright little assistant. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Won't you step in? Uh, thank you, no. I only wish to ask you how to get from here to the Strand. Third right, fourth left. Smart fellow, that. Hey, Watson? I see no signs of a colossal intelligence. Nevertheless, he is, in my judgment, the fourth smartest mine in London. And for daring, I'm not sure that he's not the third. I see nothing so startling about him. The knees of his trousers, Watson. Didn't you notice? The knees of his trousers? What about him? Most enlightening, my dear Watson. Most enlightening. Oh, this is so much balderdash. I've had just about enough of it. I'm going to get myself some tea and a muffin. There's an appetizing little baker's shop across the road there. Very good, Watson. Suppose you meet me back here at ten tonight. Sharp, mind you. And kindly put your army revolver in your pocket. What? This business is serious. More serious even than I expected. In just a moment, we'll rejoin Sherlock Holmes as he endeavors to solve the strange case of the red-headed league. Leading hair specialists in this country constantly advise us to take better care of the hair we've got. And men, don't forget that if you want your hair handsome and healthy looking, one of the first requirements is a hygienic scalp. And why settle for just any hairdressing when you can enjoy the extra advantages of Kremel hair tonic? Kremel is a highly specialized hair tonic which gives you your money's worth. It contains a unique combination of hair grooming ingredients which is found in no other hair preparation. It keeps hair attractively groomed at all times, looking so neat and orderly. But Kremel does lots more than keep hair looking handsome. A Kremel massage stimulates circulation right in the surface of your scalp and leaves your scalp feeling so alive and invigorated. At the same time, Kremel removes dandruff flakes, and it's excellent to lubricate a dry scalp. And if your hair is so dry that it breaks off and falls when you comb it, Kremel actually helps condition the hair in that it makes it feel softer and more pliable. So, men, take better care of the hair you've got. Buy a bottle of Kremel at any drug counter. Ask for an application at your barber shop. Use Kremel daily for better groomed hair for a more hygienic scalp. K-R-E-M-L, Kremel hair tonic. Now, Dr. Watson, you are going to meet Sherlock Holmes that night in Saxe-Coburg Square. Yes, Mr. Bell, our rendezvous took place right on the dot. I remember the hour was striking. I say, Holmes, it's ten o'clock now. How long do we have to stand here in this confounded rain? I'm soaked to the skin. Until the other member of our party turns up, Watson. Ah, here comes a cab. I think you'll be in it. Whoa! 
Yes. Good evening, Mr. Merriweather. Good evening, Holmes. Yes. I say, Holmes, why have you got to route me out on a night like this? Saturday night, too. I shall miss my rubber of whist. It's the first Saturday night for seven and twenty years that I've not had my whist. My dear Merriweather, I think you'll find that tonight you're playing for higher stakes than even you are accustomed to. And I can promise the play will be more exciting. Oh, indeed. Uh, by the way, this is my friend, Dr. Watson. How do you do? Uh, how do you do? But come, we must hurry. This way, gentlemen. Where are we going? Wilson's shop is here on the square. We'll stop burbling, Watson. Oh, what burbling, Watson. Follow me and don't waste time. In your message to me, Holmes, you said something about John Clay, the murderer, thief, smasher, and forger. John Clay? Who's he? My dear Watson, John Clay is one of our most colorful and dangerous criminals. A young man, but at the head of his uh, profession. I'd rather have the braces on him than on any criminal in London. I've heard that his grandfather was a royal duke. And he himself has been to Eton and Oxford. He'll crack a crib in Scotland one week and be raising money to build an orphanage in Cornwall the next. We've been after him for years, Holmes, and haven't set eyes on him yet. Well, I trust I may have the pleasure of introducing you tonight. Here we are, down this narrow passageway. You'd better let me go first. Look here, Holmes. I don't like the look of all this. This passage goes underground. Gives me the creeps. Sir, just run into something. The wall, I fancy. I forgot to warn you. There's a turn here to the right. Yes, I found that out. Thanks very much. Ah, here's the door. Just a moment till I light my dark lantern. There. Now, Mr. Merriweather, if you'll unlock the door for us. Uh, just a moment till I find my key. Ah, here we are. Better let me go first, sir, in case we're too late. Ah, yes, the coast seems clear enough. Come along, both of you. Holmes, as I said, I don't like the look of this place. Your lantern throws such weird shadows. It smells like a vault. It is a vault, my dear Watson. The basement of the city and suburban bank, to be exact, of which our friend Mr. Merriweather here is managing director. Well, what are all those wooden crates doing here? They explain why the most daring criminal in London is taking such an interest in this particular place. Yes, Dr. Watson. These crates contain our French gold. French gold? Quite. Well, you see, we had occasion some months ago to borrow 30,000 Napoleons from France. From France? Good gracious, me. Most of which has never been unpacked. Rather an inducement for any thief. Oh, really, Holmes, I think you are rather unduly excited. The building is guarded by ten burly watchmen. Yes, I dare say you're not particularly vulnerable from above. Nor from below, Holmes. Nothing but solid earth below these flagstones. Listen to this. Don't do that. Do you want to ruin all our plans? But look here, I say it did sound hollow, you know. Not so loud, please. Now then, I think we'd better take up our positions. You, Merriweather, behind those large boxes in the corner. Watson and I will hide behind this crate. I hope you appreciate the honor, my dear fellow. This crate contains no less than 2,000 Napoleons neatly packed in tinfoil. Good heavens. Ready? We must put the screen over my dark lantern. And sit here in the dark? Certainly. Oh, dear, and I brought along a pack of cards. I thought we might have time for a three-handed rubber. Not tonight, Mr. Merriweather. We are dealing with a dangerous man, and unless we can take him at a disadvantage, he may do us considerable harm. One thing more. When I flash my light, close in swiftly. And if he reaches for a weapon, shoot. And shoot to kill. Dear me, I... I wish I'd stayed at home. Quite. I'm going to cover the light.
I say, Holmes, are you still there? Yes, I'm here. I'm beginning to imagine all sorts of horrors sitting here in the dark like this. Really, Meriwether. Holmes, do you hear that? Look, 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 look. There in the middle of the floor, a slit of light. Somebody's raising one of the stone slabs. Look, look, there's a hand. Catch his hands before I can pull himself through the opening. Right, you are. Wait, Watson. Look out, he's got a knife. Take your hands off. No, you don't, you... Oh. oh, well done, Holmes. Well done. You've knocked him out. Good. Drag him up here. Right, you are. There. Now, Mr. Merriweather, if you'll give us some light. That's better. But I say, Holmes, it's Vincent Spaulding, Wilson's assistant. Spaulding rubbish. This is John Clay, one of the most dangerous criminals in London. I've been after him for years. Help me search him, Watson. Look oh. out, Holmes. Look out. Oh. He's coming, too. Take your filthy hands off me, you scarecrow. No, no, no. None of that now. You may not be aware that I have royal blood in my veins. Oh, lunatic. And when you address me, have the goodness to say, sir, and please. Oh, very well. Would you, please, sir, march yourself upstairs where we can hand you over to the policemen who are anxiously awaiting your highness's arrival? And be quick about it. Better have another spot of whiskey, Watson. Oh, thank you. Hi, Jervis. Feels good to get into dry clothes again after spending hours in that cold cellar. I say, said here, not so much soda, Holmes. Do you want to drown it? Oh, God bless you, my dear fellow. Oh, thanks. I say, Holmes, when did you first begin to suspect that fellow Spaulding? I, I mean, Clay. When uh, Mr. Wilson told me he was anxious to work for half price. Always suspect anyone or anything that comes too cheap. There's sure to be a motive behind yes, but it. But how did you guess what the motive was in this case, I mean? I suspected his uh, fondness for photography and his trick of vanishing into the cellar. The cellar. There was the end of this tangled clue. And why was someone so anxious to have our friend Mr. Wilson kept out of his shop for several hours every day? Activities in the cellar again. Uh, by the way, that red-headed league hoax is one of the cleverest dodges I've come across for some time. Too clever, in fact. When I heard of it, I knew there was only one man who could have originated it. John Clay. We've had our skirmishes, but this is the first time we've come face to face. Well, so you went round to have a look at the shop? At his trousers, Watson. Trousers? At the knees of his trousers, to be exact. You saw how worn and wrinkled they were? They spoke of hours of burrowing. Burrowing in the cellar. But what for? By tapping on the pavement, I found that the tunnel did not stretch out to the front. Where, then? We strolled round the corner, you remember. And there stood the city and suburban bank, abutting on our friend's pawn shop. Yes, of course. The inference was clear. Yes, yes, I see that. But how did you guess that he'd make his attempt tonight? Perfectly simple, Watson. Perfectly simple. The offices of the Red-Headed League closed this morning. Mr. Wilson's absence was no longer necessary. The tunnel was completed, but it was essential that Mr. Clay should use it soon or it might be discovered. Tonight being Saturday would be ideal, as it would give him two days for escape. Q.E.D. Holmes, your reasoning is perfect. A long chain, and yet every link rings true. Well, it saves me from ennui. These little problems help me to escape the common places of existence. Yes, uh, after all, uh, l'homme c'est rien, l'oeuvre c'est tout. As Flaubert once wrote to George Sand. <laughs> Thank you.
fascinating story, Dr. Watson. What a thrilling time you must have had during the days you lived with Sherlock Holmes. Well, I can't say that I was ever bored. <laughs> I should think not. Ladies, how often you've heard it said that a woman's hair is her crowning glory. And how true this is. That's why you ladies should take the very best care of your hair, especially in shampooing. I'm glad you brought that point up, Mr. Bell, because many popular shampoos have a tendency to dry the hair. Well, here's one shampoo that will never dry the hair, never under any circumstances, and it's Cremel Shampoo. Yes, Cremel Shampoo is simply wonderful. It actually glamour bays each tiny strand of hair so that it fairly radiates natural dazzling highlights. It leaves the hair simply gleaming with natural, glossy luster. And what's more, your hair stays this way for days. Cremel shampoo is not a soapless shampoo. It's not a cream shampoo. It's not a caustic soap. It's not a drying detergent. It's entirely different. Cremel shampoo whips up a luxurious, active foam, even in the hardest water. You can use it as often as you wish over a long period of time, and it'll never dry your hair. In fact, Cremel shampoo has a built-in oil base which actually helps keep the hair from becoming dry or brittle. Remember, ladies, that divinely beautiful Powers models wash their hair with Cremel shampoo. They claim no other shampoo leaves their hair more shining bright, yet never dries the hair. Why not try it? K-R-E-M-L, Cremel shampoo. Now, Dr. Watson, what about next week? Well, now, let me think. Well, Mr. Bell... One of the favorite fictional problems of your modern mystery writer is the so-called locked room story. <laughs> yes, I know. Somebody gets murdered in a sealed room, locked from the inside, and the detective has an awful time finding out how it was done. <laughs> quite correct, Mr. Bell, quite correct. And uh, next week, I'm going to tell you how, just ten years before the turn of the century, Holmes actually encountered such a problem. And solved it. I call the story Murder in the Locked Room. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was adapted from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, The Red-Headed Lee. Nigel Bruce appeared by permission of Universal International Pictures. Tom Conway through the courtesy of Eagle Lion Pictures. The Sherlock Holmes series is produced by Tom McKnight, with original music composed and conducted by Alex Steinert. This is Joseph Bell, speaking for Kreml Hair Tonic and Kreml Shampoo. Inviting you to be with us next week at this same time when Dr. Watson will tell us about murder in the locked room. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The original and immortal stories of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle dramatized anew with Sir Ralph Richardson as Dr. Watson and Sir John Gielgud in the role of Sherlock Holmes. Of the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes.
I think I remember the sixth Napoleon, mainly because it was such a triumph for my friend Sherlock Holmes. The one time when his old rival, Lestrade of Scotland Yard, unashamedly spoke his praise. It hadn't always been like that, of course. In the early days, Lestrade had more than once been inclined to jeer at my friend's original method. But by the time of this particular adventure, he'd lost some of his old enmity. He'd taken to looking in in the evening at Baker Street and talking about old times and generally keeping Holmes up to date in everything that was going on at police headquarters. But this particular evening, as Holmes improvised on his violin, the strange fell curiously silent and puffed thoughtfully at his cigar for a moment or two. Remarkable on hand? Oh, no. Nothing in particular, you know, Mr. Holmes. Oh, just so. Then hadn't you better tell me all about it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I suppose there's no use denying it. Except that it's such a peculiar business. I'd hardly wanted to bother you with it, Mr. Holmes. In fact, it's really more in the doctor's line than ours, I suppose. Oh, really? What? What? Some illness of some kind? Mental illness. Madness at the very least. And a queer kind of madness at that. Really? Now, you wouldn't think there was anyone living in this day and age who must hate old Napoleon so much that he smashes to bits any image of him you can lay hands on. A, a hatred of Napoleon? Very curious obsession. Hardly in my line, by the sound of it. Watson, I defer to you. Thank you. Yes, but uh, the only thing is, of course... Well, what is strange? It's still chewing, you know. Uh, well, this maniac fellow adds a bit of burglary, too, you see. Burglary? So he can get hold of these images he wants to smash. Oh, really? Just pass the tobacco, would you, my dear fellow? Yes, of course. Thank you. It, it must be Napoleon, I take it, Mr. Well, it seems so, Doctor. First case came in four days ago. Shop of a man called Morse Hudson who sells pictures and statuettes and such in the Kennington Road. The assistant was in the back shop and he heard a sudden smash and when he rushed through, somebody had thrown down a plaster bust of Napoleon and broken into smithereens. Oh, valuable? No, worth a few shillings maybe, not much more. Oh. Anyway, the shop fellow ran out to the street, but there wasn't any trace of anybody by that time. But something has happened since, obviously. Yes, last night. There's a well-known doctor called Barnfrott who lives only about a couple of hundred yards from Miss Morse Hudson's shop. Yes, yes, I've heard of him. One of the biggest practices south of the Thames, they say. Yeah. He's a bit of a collector, too, isn't he? Antiques and so forth. Oh. Same man, gentlemen. <laughs> well, he'd got hold of a couple of plaster casts of the famous head of Napoleon by some French sculptor or other called Deville. He put one of them in the hall of his private house and the other in his surgery at Lower Brixton. And when he came down this morning, Doctor, uh, house burgled. And yet there wasn't a thing taken but the bust from the hole. Good question. And believe it or not, it had been carried outside and smashed against the garden wall, same as the other one in the shop. <laughs> ah, this is certainly very novel, Lestrade. <laughs> I thought it would please you, Mr. Holmes. And it isn't the end yet, either. The other bust in the surgery. Exactly the same, Doctor. Smashed to smithereens in the place where it stood. Dr. Barnicot discovered it the minute he opened the door. And that's the whole story, Mr. Holmes, as far as it goes. Oh, well, it's curious, certainly. Now, Watson, 
Come, pray give us your diagnosis. There are no limits, my dear Holmes, to the possibilities of monomania. A man who'd read deeply about Napoleon, for example, or a man who'd received some hereditary family injury through the Peninsular War, for instance. I mean, a man like that very well might conceive some kind of obsession. Come, 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 my dear Watson. Uh, well, considering how many examples of Napoleon's dust there must be, no amount of monomania would explain why such a promiscuous iconoclast should chance to begin on three examples by the same sculptor. Huh? As I take it, Lestrade, these three are all copies of the same original and all bought at this Manhattan shop. Every one, Mr. Holmes. Identical. Uh, why then? The fellow may have an obsession against the sculptor. Possibly. Yet even if it is madness, there's still method in it. You see, he carefully takes the bustables in the house outside to smash it because the noise might have wakened the people upstairs. But in the other case, he smashes the bust in the surgery just where it stands. Oh, really, Poo-Poo, that's too trifling, my oh, dear. One never knows, Watson. One can never be quite sure. Some of my most classic cases have had the least promising beginning. Yes, but you can... remember how that dreadful business of the Abernethy family was first brought to my notice by the death to which the parsley had sunk into the butter on a very hot day. But, Mr. let's trade another cigar, my dear fellow, and drink some whiskey and soda. I have a notion that we may hear more of our friend of the statues. Next morning, as we finished breakfast, a telegram arrived from Lestrade himself. Come instantly, 131 Hick Street, Kensington. With Holmes' usual energy, we did go. Instantly. There, we found the railings outside the house all lined by a curious crowd. By George Watson, it must be attempted murder at the very least. There's nothing else will hold the interest of the London messenger boy. There's the street waiting for us, Holmes. Good morning, Inspector. Good morning, gentlemen. Come in, come in. Yes, Napoleon business again, Mr. Holmes. Ah, I guess as much. What is it this time, Lestrade? Murder, sir. Splendid. Do close the door, my dear Watson. Yes, yeah, sir. This confounded crowd. Uh, this is Mr. Horace Harker, gentlemen, the owner of this house. Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, Mr. Harker. Good morning, uh, sir. How do you do? How do, you do? Mr. Harker's a reporter for the Central Press Syndicate, Mr. Holmes. I've gathered so much already, Lestrade. Well, Mr. Harker, will you kindly tell us exactly what has happened? Well, uh, I'll do my best, sir. It, it, it all seems to center around a, a bust of Napoleon I, I bought for this very room about, about four months ago. Where did you buy it, Mr. Harker? Uh, what? Oh, uh, Harding Brothers, you know, a few doors up from, from the High Street Station. You don't know what that's got to do with it. Anyway, uh, most of my writing work's done at night, you know. <laughs> habit of mine. And I, I was sitting upstairs in my den about three o'clock this morning when, when I suddenly heard the most horrible yell from down here. Oh, the most dreadful sound, Mr. Holmes. Plainly news on your own doorstep, Mr. Harker. <laughs> As a reporter, I should have thought you would have welcomed such a diversion. <laughs> oh, I couldn't. I was too unnerved. I don't mind telling you. I see. Anyway, I, I, I pulled myself together a bit, and, and I got hold of a poker and, and, and came down. And when I got in here, the window was open, Sam. And the first thing I saw was that the Napoleon bust had gone from the mantelpiece. Mm, intriguing. Most intriguing. I'm sure my monomaniac here is the only possible one, Holmes. Yes, yes, of course. And the murder, Mr. Harker. Well, I, I, I rushed to the front door and, and threw it open and... And there, on, on the doorstep. Well? I, and then he fell over. A dead man was lying there. Good gracious me. Yes, he, he, he had a great gash in his throat and, 
And the whole place was swimming in blood. But who was this murdered man? You've made inquiries this trade. Of course. There's nothing to show who he was. We've got the body in the mortuary. You can see it if you want. What did he look like? Tall, thin, sunburned, poorly dressed. Artisan of some kind, I'd say. Obviously a foreigner. There wasn't any name on his clothing. There was nothing in his pockets except an apple and some string, a shilling map of London and a man's photograph. Here it is, Mr. Holmes. Aha. Uh-huh. Plainly not a picture of the fellow himself, judging by your description. What do you make of this, Watson? Oh, uh, let's see. Mm-hmm. Well, someone, someone senior in type, eh? Yes. Thick eyebrows, you see, Holmes? Very peculiar projection on the lower part of the face. Hmm. Altogether, I should say, Southern European, I'd guess. Admirable, Watson. And the bustless trade. What happened to Mr. Harker's bust of Napoleon? We had news of it five minutes before you came. Smashed to smithereens in the front garden of an empty house in Camden Hill Road. Uh-huh. I'm going around to see it now. Want to come? Of course, of course. We leave you in peace now, Mr. Harker. I'm sure you must be impatient to write up your own story for one of your newspapers. Oh, it's too late now, I'm afraid. The first editions are probably out with it already. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> Just my luck. Oh, but perhaps a cup of tea. I've been too confused to write a thing so far. Well, at any rate, you must try it. And you can quote me if you like. Say that I believe my friend Watson's theory is almost certainly the right one. Ah, my dear Holmes, you rarely think that... He is convinced that the crime was the work of a dangerous homicidal lunatic with Napoleonic illusions. Oh, oh, (laughs) thank you, Mr. Holmes. Uh, Yes, I could certainly use that. (laughs) You, uh, you really do believe it, Holmes. Why not, Watson? Why not? It'll serve for the moment. And for the press. Come, let's trade. Let us view the remains. Ah, yes, the body, Mr. Holmes. No, 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 the busts. I propose to indulge in a little jigsaw work. You see, if all the fragments fit together to make the head complete again... What then, Holmes? Well, I may be able to... uh, Well, you and I will have some interesting work to do, Watson. Good morning, Mr. Harker. Come, gentlemen. With some little trouble... Holmes succeeded in reconstructing the whole bust from the splinters scattered over the garden of that empty house. Why he did this, I didn't know. The straight and I obediently, but mystified, fetched and carried at his direction. Holmes' face was enigmatic as he and I next drove to the premises of Morse Hudson, the supplier of the first three busts that had been broken. From him, we learned the name of the original manufacturers of the articles, Messrs. Gelder and Company of Stepney. In a side street, we found the statuette factory, and we learned from the proprietor... Oh, but thousands, Mr. Holmes. We took thousands of carts of the Divine Napoleon. I've no doubt it's a noble work. But this batch of six, noted down in these books of yours which I have before me, you see the entries, Watson, all dated about a year ago. Yes, and marked in two consignments. Yes, one set of three to Morse Hudson. And the other three to Harding Brothers of Kensington. Ah, who does the casting work on these statuettes of yours, Mr. Gilder? We usually Italians with the home. They find they work well. Uh-huh. And you recognize this particular Italian, this obvious Italian? Watson, pray show him the photograph that the trade gave us. Yes, yes, yes. Here, here it is. Ah, the rascal. Beppo, indeed. Well, what was his other name? I never knew it. She'd no use to work here. Oh, he was a madman, sir. I never knew a man with such a temper. 
He knifed another Italian in the street one day, and then he came running into the works with the policeman on his heels, and they arrested him in this very workroom. Well, and what sentence did he get? The man he attacked lived in the street for a year. Uh-huh. I must be out by now, of course. If you wanted to know where he is, we have a cousin of his here who could tell no, you. No, 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 not a word to the cousin, I beg of you. No? The matter's most important, Mr. Gelder. Indeed, the further I go with it, the more important it seems to grow. I don't think we need intrude upon you then anymore, Mr. Gelder. I'm much obliged to you. I'm not at all. Only to get to help you. Uh, we have one more visit to make, Watson. To Harding Brothers back in Kensington. Then luncheon, I suggest. And a telegram to the trade to come to Baker Street this evening. And then, Watson... And then, Holmes? Yeah, well, that invaluable army revolver of yours may once more be pressed into service, old friend. Indeed. We have some dangerous work ahead of us, if I'm not mistaken. There are two of them still at large. Two criminals, Holmes? No, no, only one criminal. But two busts of Napoleon, my dear Watson. Come along! In a moment, we continue this week's story in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And now we continue the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Ah, Lestrade, my dear Lestrade, you weren't busy, I hope. Busy, Mr. Holmes? I'm always busy. It's our motto at the yard, of course. You'll be happy to hear, by the way, that I've solved our mystery. What? You have? Of course. We have our method, too, you know. I've identified the dead man. My dear Lestrade. Oh, yes, Doctor. We have an inspector who makes a speciality of Saffron Hill on the Italian quarter. He knew our corpse the minute he set eyes on him. His name was Pietro Venucci. Amazing as he was. He was one of the most notorious cutthroats in London. Venucci, the last link. He was connected with the old secret society of the Mafia, you see. And it's perfectly clear that he must have broken the rules in some way, so this fellow of the photograph is sent to kill him. Or even perhaps the other way around. You know how fiendish they are in these vendetta things. At any rate, one is shadowing the other, there's a scuffle outside Harker's house, and in the struggle, Venucci gets his death wound. <laughs> How's that, Mr. Holmes? <laughs> perfect, perfect. I confess it seems to hang together admirably. Yeah, except, of course, for Napoleon. <laughs> the busts are only a coincidence. We're on the murderer's trail, of course, as I expect you are too from your war. So all we need to do is to make our way to the Italian quarter where I've no doubt we'll be able to find him. No, 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 my dear fellow. Chiswick. Chiswick's a highly respectable residential district. Ah, and therefore the most likely neighborhood for spectacular happenings. If you've ever trusted me before, my dear Lestrade, trust me now. I'll promise to go with you tomorrow to the Italian quarter if I fail you. Now, for your part, come with Watson and me tonight to Chiswick. Is that a bargain? Well, um, I take you on trust, Mr. Holmes. You do very wisely. You'll have dinner with us first, Lestrade. Oh, now, that's very nice. Have you ordered the four-wheeler, Watson? For eleven? To take us over to be on the other side of Hammersmith Bridge. Good, good. And you have the address, of course, the one we got from the fellow at Harding Brothers. Yes, yes. Laburnum Lodge, Laburnum Vale, Chiswick. Admirable. You never fail me, Watson. Oh, would you pass in my hunting crop there, Lestrade? Uh, is it? Yeah, thank you. The handle is weighted with lead, the most useful weapon, as I've proved before. Now... Let us address ourselves to the important process of nutrition. It may be a long time before we eat again. Now, Red Poe, the Helms, 
Please? Ah, Laburnum Lodge. Well, Holmes, here we are. Excellent. And with this particularly tall fence for our concealment. We've gone to bed, it seems. Whole place is in darkness. Mm, I sent Mr. Brown a personal message asking him to cooperate. Mr. Brown? Mr. Josiah Brown, I said, whose name we obtained as the purchaser of the fifth Napoleon. <laughs> you and your Napoleons, Mr. Holmes. I told you that all that part of it's only coincidence. It's this mafia business, Mr. Wheelcraft. Well, well, if you say so, Lestrade. Now then, Watson, do you crouch down here, uh, close to the hedge? Uh, you better lie down in the long grass, Watson. Here. Yes. And, uh, uh, Lestrade, you stay here beside me. Yes. Good, good. Look there, Mr. Holmes. The open window. What? Ah. What's the wrong after all, then? Yes, that's him. He must have been inside when we arrived. Our luck's in. There's a light there. Flickering. Do you see? Yes, we've got him. And in respectable Chiswick, too, Lestrade. He's climbing out. Oh, thank heaven for the moonlight. Look, he's carrying something white under his arm. Ah, the fifth Napoleon. No, wait, Lestrade. Wait, wait, man. Let's see what he does. He's coming closer, do you see? He's stopped there by the street lamp. Holmes, I do believe he's going to... He's going to... Exactly. Smashed to smithereens like all the others. And while he's busy examining it, Lestrade... Hold him! What? Run! Pass me! I've been attending to our friend the good Napoleon, uh, but with no good results so far, I fear. It seems the final secret still in use of... Call my soul, Mr. Holmes, you beat me. You do, really. Still harping on about these statues. Yes, I'm almost one of Watson's monomaniacs on the subject, Lestrade. Oh, will you please take the prisoner to Bow Street now, Lestrade? And if you'll kindly come round to Baker Street at about six o'clock tomorrow evening, I think I shall then be able to show you that even now you've not grasped the entire meaning of this affair. Come, Watson, come back to Baker Street in our four weeks. What time is it, Watson? Uh... Six o'clock, Holmes. And here comes our man, dead on time. Ah, Lestrade, good evening to you. Good evening, good evening. Well, Mr. Holmes, you were right, of course, of course, of course. I mean about the fellow Beppo. I've been able to check everything. Other name unknown, pretty celebrated as a near-do-well in the Italian colony, Kemper of the Fiend. Used to be a successful sculptor, but fell in evil ways. Watson... That's the street bell, I believe. Ah, yes, and I hear footsteps on the staircase. Would you prepare to receive our visitor? Certainly, Holmes, certainly. Ah, good evening, sir. Mr. Sander for the wedding, I suppose. Uh, yes, sir. Mr. Sherlock Holmes is expecting me. I had a letter from him by special messenger. Yes, yes, come in, Mr. Sanderford. This is Mr. Holmes here. Good evening, sir. Let me, let me take your bag. Carefully, carefully, I beg you, my dear Watson. That bag contains the whole object of our search. 
Uh, that's right, isn't it, Mr. Sandiford? Uh, well, if you mean the Napoleon bust, yes, it does, sir. Uh, it beats me how you knew I had one. Well, we had your name from Mr. Harding of Harding Brothers, Mr. Sandiford. He told us that they'd sold you their last copy, and they gave us your address. Yes, quite so. Now then, sir, uh, do you agree to my terms as I set them out in my letter? Well, you said you'd be prepared to pay me ten pounds for it. Ten pounds it is, Mr. Sampson. Oh, I'm an honest man, Mr. Holmes. Of course, the money attracts me, but uh, I think you ought to know I only paid fifteen shillings for it. I've named my price, Mr. Sandiford, and I intend to stick to it. There you are, sir. Ten pounds. If, and in return, I shall only ask you to sign this paper in the presence of these witnesses. It's simply to say that you transfer all possible rights you ever had in the purchase to me. Thank you so much. Good evening, Mr. Sandiford. The landlady downstairs will show you out. Oh, I'm much obliged to you, I'm sure, Mr. Holmes. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. Good evening. Now, what's now, Lestrade? The bust on the table there, and my celebrated loaded hunting crop in my hand, and... So! Holmes! Great heavens, sir! Holmes, what are you doing? You see? There, the perfect hiding place. That's what I was looking for when I fitted the other bust together in the garden. See, that fragment that was the emperor's ear, embedded like a plum in a pudding? Let me introduce you, gentlemen, to the famous black pearl of the Borgias. Nothing less. What? <laughs> well, bravo, Holmes. Bravo, sir. <laughs> My soul. Bravo, bravo, indeed. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. But what made you link it all together, Holmes? Elementary, my dear Watson. You remember, Lestrade, that at the time when the pearl disappeared, some suspicion fell on the princess's maid, who was an Italian girl named, uh, Venucci. Of course. Lucrezia Venucci. It was believed that she had a brother in London who worked with her as a jewel thief. A fellow who was murdered two nights ago. As you say, Watson. I then recollected that the pearl had disappeared just two days before the arrest of the man Beppo for some crime of violence. Ah. The police were after him. He had the pearl in his possession. He may have stolen it from Venucci, or he may even have been Venucci's confederate. At any event, before the police arrived, he hid it in the only place he could think of in the moment. One of the wet plaster casts of Napoleon's head, which was at that moment being molded in the factory. And he's been in prison for a year. So... And when he came out, he found from his cousin in the factory where that consignment of that day's Napoleons had gone. And somehow or other traced the address of each purchaser. But how did he run across Venucci again? Oh, we'll never know that, Lestrade, unless he decides to talk. I take it that they may have quarreled if they were Confederates, or that Venucci was out for revenge if Beppo had stolen the gem from him. At any rate, he also got on the trail. They met outside Harker's house. There was a scuffle... And behold, your murder, Lestrade. And you knew the pearl must be in the Sandiford bust. Oh, well, naturally, when I saw last night that it wasn't in the fifth one at Liburnum Lodge. Huh? I wrote to Mr. Sandiford, as you know. Bought the pearl in your presence from the owner for ten pounds, and there it lies in all its glory. Well, I've seen you handle a good many cases, Mr. Holmes. But I don't know that I ever knew a more workmanlike one than that. <laughs> We're not jealous of you at the Scotland Yard. Oh, no, sir. We're very proud of you. And if you come down tomorrow, there's not a man from the oldest inspector to the youngest constable who wouldn't be glad to shake you by the hand. Thank you, Lestrade. Thank you.
Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, based on the original stories of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, have been dramatized anew with original music composed by Sidney Torch. Sir Ralph Richardson played the part of Dr. Watson, and Sir John Gilgood, that of Sherlock Holmes. This episode from the life of Sherlock Holmes will be transmitted to our men and women overseas by shortwave and through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Petri Wine brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine... Invite you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And you know something? I had an adventure tonight I wish you could have shared with me. I had a steak about, oh, an inch and a half thick, tender, juicy, and with it I had a glass of Petri California Burgundy. Now there's a combination, steak and Petri Burgundy. That Petri Burgundy is a perfect mealtime wine. It's a rich red wine that's hearty and full of flavor. Flavor that comes right from the heart of the grape. And don't think that Petri Burgundy is only good with steak. It'll make a hamburger sandwich taste like a feast, too. Try Petri Burgundy with any meat or meat dish. It's just wonderful. And serve it proudly, too, because after all, the name Petri is the proudest name in the history of American wines. Now I know Dr. Watson's waiting for us, so let's go in and join him. Come in, come in, come in, come in. Good evening, Dr. Watson. Good evening, Mr. Bartell. You're quite muffled up tonight, I see. Overcoat, scarf, and gloves. Slip them off and come and join me by the fire. Thanks, Doctor. It's quite a nip in the air tonight. Yes, there is indeed. Well, Doctor, you told us last week that tonight's story centered around the activities of a brilliant and beautiful woman. Yes, my boy. Her name was Irene Adler. But I never knew Holmes referred to her by any other name than the woman. She sounds mighty intriguing. Uh, how did you happen to meet up with her? Well, I'll tell you the story from the beginning. One night, it was on the 20th of May in 1888, to be exact, I was returning home from a visit to a patient when my steps led me through Baker Street. Since my marriage, I haven't seen much of Sherlock Holmes. And you and couldn't the... resist stopping by at 221B, I'm sure, Doctor. <laughs> of course I couldn't. As I stood outside the well-remembered door... I looked up at the lighted windows and saw the tall, spare figure of my old friend pass twice in dark silhouette against the blind. He was pacing the room swiftly, eagerly, with his head sunk on his chest and his hands clasped behind him. To me, who knew every mood of his and habit of his, his attitude and manner told their own story. He was hot on the scent of some new problem. I rang the bell and a few moments later found myself standing before him. You look in splendid shape. Yes, Holmes, I'm feeling very well, thanks. And in practice again, I see. You didn't tell me that you'd gone back into harness. Oh, well, how did you know? Elementary, my dear chap. If a gentleman walks into my rooms smelling a biodiform with uh, a black mark of nitrate of silver on his right forefinger and a bulge on the left side of his hat to show where he's uh, secreted his stethoscope, I should be dull indeed if I didn't pronounce him to be an active member of the medical profession. <laughs> Just the same as ever, Holmes. By the way, I'm... Uh... Not interrupting you, are well, you? are, old fellow, but it's, um, it's a most welcome interruption. You're working on a new case? Um, it looks like it. 
Uh, this letter arrived by the last post today. It's undated and has neither signature nor address. Read it. Huh? Let's have a look. There will call upon you tonight at a quarter to eight o'clock a gentleman who desires to consult you upon a matter of the very deepest moment. Your recent services to one of the royal houses of Europe have shown that you are one who may safely be trusted. This account of you we have from all quarters received. Uh, be in your chamber, then, at that hour, and do not take it amiss if your visitor wears a mask. It's all very mysterious. What do you imagine it means? Look carefully at the note, old fellow. What do you deduce from it? Well, now, let me think. The man who wrote it was presumably well-to-do. Such paper couldn't be bought under half a crown a packet. And it's peculiarly strong and, and stiff. Peculiar. That's the very word. It's not an English paper at all. Hold it up to the light. Don't you notice anything? Yes. There's a large E with a small G and and a large G with a small T. That's right. Woven into the texture of the paper. What does that suggest to you? The name of the maker, no doubt, or perhaps his monogram. Not at all, my dear fellow. The G with the small T stands for Gesellschaft, which is the German for company. And the E-G? That stands for Igria. Mm-hmm. It's a German-speaking country in Bohemia, not far from Carlsbad. Oh, so the paper was made in Bohemia. Undoubtedly, my dear fellow. And the man who wrote the note is a German. How do you know that? Observe the curious construction of the sentence. This account of you we have from all quarters received. A Frenchman or a Russian could not have written that. It's the German who is so discourteous to his words. Oh, there's your clamp now. I'd I, I better go home. No, 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 unless you have to. Well, I, I could stay. I thought that Ben, stay, you... old chap. I'm lost without my Boswell, and this promises to be interesting. I, um, I told Mrs. Hudson to let the masked visitor come upstairs unannounced. Come in. Good evening, sir. You received my note? Yes, indeed, sir. Come in, won't you? And sit down. This is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson. You may say anything before him that you can say to me. Whom have I the honor to address? You may address me as uh, Count von Kram. How do you do, sir? You must excuse this mask that I wear. Uh, the august person who employs me wishes his agent to be unknown to you. And uh, I may confess at once that the title by which I have just called myself is not exactly my own. I'm well aware of that fact, sir. You see, uh, Mr. Holmes, uh, the matter I am about to discuss... Uh, implicates the great house of Ormstein, hereditary kings of uh, Bohemia. That has not escaped me either, sir. In fact, if you will state your case, I shall be the better able to advise you. Your Majesty. Uh, How did you... Yes. Yes, I am the king. Why should I attempt to conceal it? Why, indeed. I shall remove the mask. There. Mr. Holmes... I have traveled incognito from Prague for the express purpose of consulting you. Then pray consult. Briefly, the facts are these. Some five years ago, uh, during a visit to Warsaw, I made the acquaintance of the well-known adventuress, Irene Adler. Irene Adler? We know of her, Your Majesty. Uh, Look her up in the index for me, will you, Watson? Uh, It's right beside you on the desk there. I uh, imagine that the name would not be unfamiliar to you. Here we are. A. Abraham's Acton Green Hatchet Murders. Adler. Adler. Splendid. Splendid, old fellow. Hand me the file, will you? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Irene Adler, born in New Jersey in the United States in 1858. Contralto. Mm-hmm. Prima Donna Imperial Opera of Warsaw. Mm-hmm. Retired from the operatic stage, living in London. Quite so. And here's a recent notation. Uh-huh. 
Your Majesty, as I understand, became entangled with this young person, wrote her some compromising letters, and is now desirous of getting those letters back. Precisely so, but how did... Was there a secret marriage? None. No legal papers or certificates? No. Then I fail to follow, Your Majesty. If this young lady should produce her letters for blackmailing purposes, how is she to prove their authenticity? There is the handwriting. Well, that could be a forgery, Your Majesty. But it was private note paper. Stolen. My own seal. Imitated. My photograph. Bought. What? We were bought... In the photograph. Oh, dear, oh, dear. That's very bad. Your Majesty has indeed committed an indiscretion. Oh, did you inscribe the photograph, Your Majesty? Uh, yes, Dr. Watson. I'm afraid I did. Uh, Mr. Holmes, it must be recovered. Perhaps if you were to pay enough, the photograph might be bought. She refuses to sell. Oh, stolen, then. Uh, five attempts have been made. Twice burglars in my pay ransacked our house. Once we diverted her luggage when she traveled. Twice she has been waylaid. There has been no result. Oh, dear. It's quite a pretty little problem. Uh, it is a deadly serious one to me. Your Majesty, what does Miss Adler intend to do with the photograph? To ruin me. Oh, how? Well, I, uh, I'm about to be married to the second daughter of the King of Scandinavia. She is the soul of delicacy. A shadow of a doubt as to my conduct would bring the matter to an end. Mm. And Irene Adler threatens to send the photograph to your fiancée, I suppose. Yes, and she will do it. Rather than let me marry another woman, there are no lengths to which she would not go. Are you sure that she's not already sent it, Your Majesty? I am sure. Now, why, Your Majesty? She said uh, that she would send it on the day my betrothal is publicly announced. That day will be next Monday. Splendid. Then we have still um, three days yet. Uh, Your Majesty will, of course, stay in London for the present. Certainly. You will find me at the Langham Hotel, registered as uh, Count von Kram. Just two questions before you leave, sir. But are they? Is the photograph large or small? Quite large. And uh, it was in a heavy frame. I see. And what is Miss Irene Adler's London address? Brioni Lodge, Serpentine Avenue, St. John's Wood. Uh, thank you, Your Majesty. Good night, and I trust we shall soon have some good news for you. I am placing all my hopes in you, Mr. Holmes. Good night. Good night, Dr. White. Uh, good night, Your Majesty. Setting problem, Holmes. I, I wish I could help you with it. You can, my dear chap. Huh? I shall be glad of your company. Oh, splendid. Uh, what's our first move, Holmes? Well, a good night's rest, I think. We'll meet here at ten o'clock tomorrow morning. And then? Then, my dear fellow, we will see what we can find out about Miss Irene Adler. Late at the Warsaw Imperial Opera Company and at present residing at Bryony Lodge, Serpentine Avenue, St. John's Wood. <laughs> The examination of Brownie Lodge didn't prove very illuminating. No, a bijou residence that represents the essence of dignified suburbia, that tells us very little about its owner. I think a visit to the local public house might prove more instructive. Come on, old chap. I see the door to the coach and horses inviting us from across the road. Well, our disguises shouldn't cause any suspicion, Holmes. That's why I suggested them. In the character of a couple of stable hands... I felt that we might inspire confidence. This is a horsey neighborhood. There's a wonderful sympathy and freemasonry among the fraternity. There we are. Better let me do most of the talking. Yes, I will indeed. I'm sure that your accent will be more convincing than mine. Let's go in, shall we? <laughs> What'll it be, Majis? Oh, for Voldemort, please. Uh, how about you, Charlie? All of a sight? 
two orbs of olden mild. Well, here you are, mateys. That'll be a tenner. Uh, have a drink with us, Governor. Oh, don't mind if I do. <laughs> I'll have a Guinness. You, uh, blokes new round here? Yes, that's right. Come over from Clapham. Clapham, eh? Uh, <laughs> well, just looking at you. Ah. <clears throat> Hunting for jobs? That's right. Uh, we was told that Miss Idler, across the Briony Lodge, needed a new coachman and a groom. Well, it's the first time I've heard of it. Might be true, uh, uh, have you been over there to ask? No, not yet. We thought we'd find out something about the old girl first. <laughs> she ain't no old girl, matey. <laughs> She's the prettiest young thing you ever saw under a bonnet, and that's a fact. You know her, Dublin? Why, of course I know her. Used to drive her carriage, I did. Uh, uh, for I uh, can't work here. Oh, what's she like? Oh, nice little lady, as you'll find, Jim. A uh, work yard? No, no, no. She, uh, she lives quiet, like... Uh, goes out uh, singing at concerts once in a while. The rest of the time, it's money for Jim. She goes out for a drive in the park every day at five and comes back to dinner at 6.30. Uh, the rest of the time's your own. She ain't married, you say? No, no. But uh, she's got a bloke what comes to see her all the time. Uh, he's a barrister. Nice gentleman. Uh, Mr. Geoffrey Norton is his name. Good-looking fella. Uh, wouldn't be surprised to see him get spliced. <laughs> Sounds like a cushy job to me. Come on, Charlie. Let's get over to the house and see what's what. Much obliged to you, chum. Well, <laughs> good luck, mateys, and, <laughs> and thanks for the dinners. What's our next move, Holmes? Let's stroll back to Briny Lodge. I'm undecided whether to continue my investigation there or to try and find out something about Mr. Jeffrey Norton, the barrister. If he's just her lawyer and nothing else, it's more than likely that she's entrusted the photograph to his safekeeping. Uh, hello. There's a cab waiting outside Miss Adler's house. Hurry, Watson. Maybe Mr. Norton's. Here, here we are at the gate. Yes. Here comes a man hurrying down the pathway. Quick. Flatten yourself behind this post. Listen. Where to now, Mr. Norton? Drive like the devil. First to Gross and Hankey's in Regent Street, and then to the Church of St. Monica in the Edgeware Road. Half a sovereign if you do it in 20 minutes. Right, sir, Mr. Norton. Up in. Fire and signal the cab, Watson. We must follow him. Well, here comes one. Oh, no, it isn't. It's, it's a private carriage. It's heartless, no doubt. Here she comes down the pathway. Back behind the post again, Watson. Where to, Miss Adler? The Church of St. Monica's, John. And half a sovereign if you reach it in 20 minutes. The game's afoot, Watson. Quick. We must get a cab and follow them. Well, here comes a hansom. Hi, cabby. Cabby. Here. You blokes got enough money to take a cab? Here's a half sovereign for you, my man. Right you are. Where to, Governor? The Church of St. Monica. In the Edgware Road. And another half sovereign for you if you get us there in 20 minutes. <laughs> the rest of Dr. Watson's story in just a second, but let me tell you something. If you're going to have chicken for dinner tomorrow night, or any night, don't forget to serve that chicken with Petri California Sauterne. Believe me, Petri Sauterne is just about the last word in white wines. It's beautifully golden in color, it's delicate and intriguing in flavor, and it's just... <laughs> well, you taste it and see for yourself. If you want a delicious white wine, you certainly want a Petri Sauterne. 
Well, Doctor, once again, you broke off your story at the most exciting point. Did uh, you and Sherlock Holmes reach that church inside the 20 minutes? Yes, Mr. Bartell, we did, but the other carriages were there before us. Holmes went into the church after telling me to guard the outside. I must have waited for 10 minutes or more before Mr. Jeffrey Norton and Miss Adler came out, spoke a few words to each other, and then left in their separate conveyances. A moment later, Holmes, still dressed as a stable hand, came striding out of the church and down the steps towards me. He was obviously very excited. What? What? Have they left? Yes, in separate cabs. I overheard him say that he was going back to his office. And she said, I shall drive out in the park and at five this evening. Splendid, old fellow. And come on, we can return to Baker Street. Uh, what happened inside the church? Huh? They were married. Married? Of course. The ceremony would have been illegal if it had been performed afternoon. That accounted for their wild dash to the church. Jump into the cab. Where to now, Governor? 221B Baker Street. Oh, so they, they got married, eh? Yes, and it may amuse you to know that I acted as witness at the ceremony. Oh, you did? But how did that happen? Their, their own witness had failed to appear and I was dragged into the breach. The uh, bride gave me this sovereign as a memento. I uh, think I'll wear it on my watch chain in memory of the occasion. What an amazing situation. Things begin to look better for the king, don't they? Yes. Now that she's Mrs. Norton, the chances are that she won't want to expose his majesty after all. I hope so, Watson. I hope so. But we can't afford to take any chances. I think the time is right for us to come to closer grips with the lady. Well, Holmes, now that we've eaten, perhaps you'll tell me your plan. With pleasure, my dear fellow. And while I'm so doing, I'll proceed with applying the makeup for my new disguise. Another disguise? What's it to be this time? I think the character and appearance of an amiable and simple-minded nonconformist clergyman would be most suited to my plan for entering Miss Adler's house. Are you going to try and enter, then? I must, dear fellow. Yes, huh? I'm sure the photograph is there. Miss Adler, or rather Mrs. Norton, will return from her drive in the park at 6.30. We must be at Briony Lodge to meet her. And what then? You must leave that to me. I've already made my arrangements. There is only one point on which I must insist. You must not interfere, come what may. You understand? I'm to remain neutral. Yes, there will be some small unpleasantness. Don't join in it. It will end in my being conveyed into the house. As soon as I'm able to, I shall open one of the windows. You have to watch from the outside. When I raise my hand, it will throw an object which I shall give you through the window and at the same time cry fire. Follow me? Entirely, but what am I to throw? Oh, it's nothing very formidable. Here it is. Huh. Looks like a great big cigar. What is it? Just an ordinary plumber's smoke rocket, fitted with a cap at each end to make it self-lighting. Your task is confined to throwing it through the window. When you raise the cry, fire, it will be taken up by quite a number of people. We then walk to the end of the street, and I'll rejoin you in ten minutes. I hope I've made myself clear. Perfectly. Good. And now, old fellow, as soon as I've done my clerical attire, let's be on our way. There's no time to be lost. <laughs> Nearly 6.30, Holmes. We've been pacing up and down in front of our house for half an hour now. I hope she does come back. I'm sure she will. There seem to be a lot of loafers hanging around her gate. All part of my conspiracy, old chap. You'll see them play their parts in a few minutes. You still think the photograph is inside the house? Yes, I'm sure of it. Hmm? It's most unlikely that she carries it about with her. Remember the king told us it was a, a large frame picture. And also remember that she'd planned to use it within a few days. It must be where she can lay her hands on it. It must be inside her house. But her house has been burgled twice. They don't know how to look. Well, how will you look? I won't. I'll get her to show me. She'll refuse. Well, she won't be able to... Shh. Get up to the carriage now. Remember, Watson, carry out my orders to the letter. Yes, you can trust me, huh? Good luck. 
Blimey, here comes the Duchess of Tiddlewinks. Let's put out the carpet. She might get her tootsie wet. Ah, oh, put a sock in it, Alfie. Leave him alone. She's no better than she ought to be. Let me through. I live here. Well, ain't that nice? We'll all come in and have a cup of cocoa. Move out of the way, please, and let the lady through. Mind your own business. Just cause your collar turned the wrong way, you can't spoil our fun. That's right, Eddie. Keep your nose out of it, Parson. Please, please don't fight about it. I tell you to stop molesting the lady. Do ya? Then how would you like a bip in the nose? <laughs> oh, he hit the poor man. Then he ran away, the coward. Is the clergyman badly hurt? He hit his head, Mum, when he fell. If you ask me, he's hurt bad. He's bleeding something terrible. Can we bring him in, Mum? He can't lie here in the street. Why, of course. Bring him in. Right you are, Mum. Here, Bert. Right out. Give us a hand. Uh, be way. Oh, poor fella. Do you see what happened to him, mister? Yes, I saw my good woman. A very convincing demonstration. What you mean? Uh, weren't you paid by a, a certain gentleman for this performance? Oh, Yen knows about it, too. Yeah, you must be a friend of Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Yes, um, I am. Nice gentleman. He give us five bob apiece for tonight's work. It ain't through yet, though. We got to start yelling fire when somebody tells us. I'm that somebody, my dear lady. Where's Mr. Holmes now? He's inside the house. Yes, he's up near the window. Now he's raising his hand. That's my signal. Now to throw the rocket. Uh, there we are. Ah! <laughs> Holmes, there you are. You have the photograph? No. I know where it is. She showed me as I told you she would. I'm still in the dark. There's no mystery, old chap. When my accomplices started around the street, I had a little moist red paint in my hand. As my good friend Alfie pretended to strike me, I clapped my hand to my head and fell down. It's an old trick. Yes, I understand that, but uh, how did my throwing the rocket help you? It was all important, my dear fellow. When a woman thinks her home is on fire, her instinct is at once to rush to the thing she values most. A married woman grabs her baby. An unmarried reaches for her jewel box. In this case... Of course, it was the photograph. Well, where was it? In a recess in the living room, just above the right-hand bell pole. I caught a glimpse of it as she half drew it out. When I made it known that the fire was a false alarm, she replaced the photograph. As soon as I was able, I assured her that I was feeling well enough to leave. You didn't take the photograph, then? No, I felt that uh, over-precipitance at this stage might ruin everything. And what do we do now? Drive to the Langham Hotel and inform His Majesty of what has happened. Then return with him here. After that, my dear chap, the case will be ended. <laughs> This is Barney Lodge now, Your Majesty. Yes, I am all impatience. You're certain this photograph will still be there, Mr. Holmes. I have every reason to believe so, Your Majesty. Mm, I, I must confess, uh, this is going to be something of an ordeal. And I suggest that you let me do the talking, Your Majesty. I think I know how to handle the lady. Sherlock Holmes, I believe. Uh, yes. I am Mr. Holmes. How did you know? My mistress told me that you would be likely to call. She has left for the continent with her husband. You mean she's left England? Never to return. Uh, then the papers, the photograph. Oh, all is lost, Mr. Holmes. We'll soon see. Follow me. She said you'd be looking for something. I hope you find it. 
This was the bell pull. There's a sliding panel behind it somewhere. Ah, here it is. Uh, it's, uh, it's the photograph there, Mr. Holmes. There is a photograph, but it's a photograph of the lady alone. Uh, here's a letter, and it's addressed to me. Well, what does it say, Holmes? My dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, you really did it very well. Until after the fire alarm, I had no suspicion. But then, when I realized how I had betrayed myself, I began to think. I'd been warned that if the king employed an agent, it would certainly be you. May I congratulate you on your disguise as the dear old clergyman? Great, Scott. You're far more clever than you thought, Holmes. Uh, yeah, yeah, go on. What else does it say? Uh, let me see. My husband and I both thought that the best recourse was flight. So you will find the nest empty. As to the photograph of the king and yourself, his majesty may rest in peace. Thank goodness for that. I love and am loved by a better man than he. Hmm. I leave another photograph, however, that he might care to possess. And I remain, dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, very truly yours, Irene Norton, nay Adler. What a woman, Watson. What a woman. What a magnificent woman. She fooled me completely. But, uh, oh, I... I'm sorry, Your Majesty. I, I've been unable to bring your business to a more successful conclusion. Uh, on the contrary, my dear sir, nothing could be more successful. I know that Irene's word is inviolate. The incriminating photograph is now as safe as if it were in the fire. I'm glad to hear Your Majesty say so. I am immensely indebted to you. Now, pray tell me in, in what way I can reward you. This, uh, Bell uh, ring that I wear. <laughs> I should be proud. Your Majesty of... has something that I should um, value even more highly. You have but to name it. This photograph. Irene's photograph? But certainly. However, you must let me give you something more substantial. Oh, no, 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 no Your Majesty. This is uh, something I shall treasure all my life. This and a golden sovereign I received from the lady's hand. They will remind me that I was once tricked by a woman. A woman that I shall never forget. <laughs> woman, that Mrs. Adler. Or should I say, Mrs. Norton. Ah, that's the kind of woman I could really go for, Doctor. Yes, you could. Just between ourselves, you know, I sort of, well, uh, I sort of could go for her myself. She was intelligent. Yes, she was rich. Beautiful. That's the kind of woman you want sitting next to you in front of a cozy fire on a nippy fall night. Just the three of you. The three of you? Mm-hmm. You, she... And a glass of Petri Port. Miss <laughs> Why not? That Petri California Port is some wine. Boy, that Petri family really knows how to make good wine, all right. And no wonder. Look at all the experience they've had. Ever since they started the Petri business way back in the 1800s, the Petri family has handed down from father to son, from father to son, the art of selecting perfect sun-ripened California grapes and making them into clear, fragrant, delicious wine. Those letters, P-E-T-R-I, on the label of every bottle of Petri wine are the personal assurance of the Petri family that every drop of wine in that bottle is good wine. It's got to be, because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, that was a great story you told well, us tonight. I thought you'd like it, Mr. Bartell. That's why I plan to tell you a, a sequel to it next week. A sequel? Say, that sounds exciting, Doctor. Oh, I think you'll find that it proves to be that, Mr. Bartell. It's a story that takes place 20 years after tonight's adventure. And once again, the principal part is played by a woman, only in this case, it isn't Irene Adler. It's her daughter. Oh, uh, 
And now, Mr. Bartell, before I go, I, I want to remind our listeners that they owe a real debt of gratitude to selective service boards in their communities. At this moment, those selective service boards are working harder than ever, making sure that every returning veteran knows his rights and privileges. And the boards are helping him take full advantage of those rights and privileges. And they're helping our veterans get jobs. Our selective service boards deserve our sincere thanks and they deserve our cooperation. They have done, and they are doing, a splendid job. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher, and is an adaptation of the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, A Scandal in Bohemia. Music is by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. For a solid hour of exciting mystery dramas... Listen every Monday on most of these same stations at 8 o'clock to Michael Shane, followed immediately by Sherlock Holmes. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.